Lecture 13 Myths about American Isolation and Empire In 1898, the United States went to war with Spain for the stated purpose of freeing the Cuban people from the tyrannical Spanish colonial empire and to establish an independent Cuban republic. Yet the ironic result of that war was the creation of an overseas American colonial empire with the acquisition from Spain of the Philippines, Guam, and Puerto Rico, as well as the annexation during the war of Hawaii. Now, by the standard interpretation, this was our first and our last American experiment with overseas imperialism. What one prominent diplomatic historian, Samuel Flagg Bemis, labeled, quote, the great aberration. By this interpretation, the, the United States, being born in an anti-colonial revolt, opposed imperialism throughout its history, and in such statements as the Monroe Doctrine, sought to encourage anti-colonial Republican revolts elsewhere. Along with this anti-imperialism went a desire, as enunciated most clearly in Washington's 1796 farewell address, to remain isolated from the rest of the world and to sign no entangling alliances. Now, as with most historical myths, these contain elements of truth. But in reality, the United States was never as isolated and anti-imperialist as is commonly believed. Indeed, it has been a highly expansionist power always involved with the rest of the world. Illustrative of the difference between the myth and the reality here is the fact that Washington, in the farewell address, never proposed isolationism, and as president, he never practiced it. He never even used the word isolationism or the expression no entangling alliances in his farewell address. The common belief that he did so is yet another myth. In this lecture, we will explore the realities as opposed to the myths of American isolationism and American imperialism. We do have a problem here, semantic one. Both isolationism and imperialism have multiple meanings, and we will need to clarify in this lecture what those different definitions are, which definitions Americans in the past used, and which ones we are using in this lecture. Now, clearly, the original 13 colonies that became the United States were founded in the 17th century as part of an expanding British empire. And in the next century, they rebelled against that empire and its monarchical form of government. But that does not mean that they rebelled against the concept of empire. Interestingly, one of our first military acts in the Revolutionary War was the attempted conquest of French Canada in 1775 in an effort to make it the 14th state. That was an effort that ended in failure at Quebec at the end of the year. In the 1783 peace treaty ending the war with England, the United States acquired not only what had been the 13 colonies east of the Appalachian Mountains, but also the huge territory between those mountains and the Mississippi River. The Founding Fathers did not see the Mississippi as the final boundary of the United States. They often referred to the nation as, quote, our rising empire. Thomas Jefferson talked about this, quote, empire of liberty. What they had in mind 
was an expanding entity, but one that would not acquire formal colonies. Colonies that might eventually rebel against them as they had rebelled against England. Instead, land that was acquired would gradually be incorporated into the Union on an equal political basis. First as an organized territory, then as a state, once an area had enough white settlers. This pattern was first established under the Articles of Confederation in the Northwest Ordinances of the 1780s. Those ordinances would serve as a model for American expansion across the entire North American continent over the next 50 years. And that expansion took place by both war and treaty. Treaty, the Louisiana Purchase of 1803. Florida, Andrew Jackson's invasion, followed by a treaty during the years 1819 to 1821. Texas, rebellion by settlers against Mexico in 1836 and annexation in 1845. California and the Southwest via war with Mexico from 1846 to 1848. Oregon by treaty, albeit with the threat of war, in 1846. And the Southwest Gadsden Purchase by treaty in 1853. There were also continued and consistent attempts to conquer and annex Canada from the War of 1812 onwards. And of course, all of this expansion was accompanied by dispossession of the Native American tribes who had inhabited the land. Now, Americans did not call any of this imperialism because of the political equality granted to settlers in the new areas as opposed to colonial status. In addition, Americans saw the entire continent as theirs by divine right, as can be seen in the expression manifest destiny in the 1840s. But others, Native Americans, the Spanish, Mexicans, Canadians, did not see it that way. They saw it as aggression, subversion, and imperialism. It's important to note that colonialism is not the only form of imperialism. There are other, more informal forms of domination, of one area over another and one people over another. In this regard, I think it's interesting to note that both the southern secessionists before and during the Civil War and the populace of the Midwest and Great Plains, as well as the South in the 1880s and 90s, both the Southern secessionists and the populace defined their sections as economic colonies of the Northeast, despite the supposed political equality within the entire Union. Now, this expansion across the entire North American continent was hardly isolation. Nor was the 1823 Monroe Doctrine asserting that the entire Western Hemisphere was henceforth to be considered off-limits to European colonialism, while it remained open to continued American expansion. Is that isolationism? Not unless one again uses the American belief in manifest destiny, this time to expand across Central and South America, as well as North America. Nor was the expansion of American commerce throughout the world in the late 18th and 19th centuries isolationism. Commercial expansion with Europe, with Latin America, and with Asia 
This will include the opening of Japan in 1854 and other Asian areas throughout the 19th century were hardly moves of isolationism. Was there an American isolationism? Yes. But it was limited to non-participation in Europe's numerous military alliances and wars. Something many Americans had come to the United States to escape and something they saw as being made possible by two factors. The first was what Jefferson had referred to in his first inaugural address. The fact that geographically, the United States was separated by thousands of miles of ocean from what he labeled, quote, the exterminating havoc of one quarter of the globe. The second factor was the American belief that their expanded commerce was a way to avoid war, and that indeed it was a rational alternative to war. In reality, however, commerce could be, and often was, a cause of war. We can clearly see that in the American Declaration of War against Great Britain in 1812 because of British violations of America's commercial neutral rights via seizures of American ships and goods as well as the seizure of American citizens via impressment of sailors on the high seas. In point of fact, Americans viewed both this throttling of their commerce and simultaneous British support for Indian tribes in the Old Northwest as a conscious effort to halt the expansion of the United States, both landed and commercial, to throttle this new American empire and to destroy it. Commerce as a cause of war is also obvious in the declaration of war against Germany in 1917 for violation, of, again, of our commercial neutral rights on the high seas, this time via submarine warfare. And in retrospect, the major reason we did not go to war with a European world power in the 105 years between the end of the War of 1812 and our entry into World War I, Spain was hardly a major power in 1898. The main reason we did not go to war with a major power during this time period was the fact that British balance of power politics maintained overall European peace, and that precluded the emergence of any hegemonic continental power that could threaten us or lead to the outbreak of a general European war. Now, what about the war with Spain? Before we even get to the war with Spain, what happened to this expansionism? Well, sectionalism in the Civil War brought it to a temporary end during the 1850s and 1860s. But throughout the 1850s, numerous adventurers, known as filibusters, and supported by the U.S. government, attempted to conquer Cuba and portions of Central America. They failed. But the efforts were there. Within two years of the end of the Civil War, the United States had purchased the enormous Russian colony, which we know as Alaska. Interestingly, that is the first territorial acquisition by treaty that did not include a provision for eventual incorporation into the Union as a state. Alaska would be officially known as a possession. In reality, a colony. Then came the war with Spain in 1898 and the acquisition of the Philippines, Guam, and Puerto Rico, as well as the annexation of Hawaii. 
Hawaii, where American settlers had a few years earlier overthrown the native Hawaiian monarchy. But much more extensive than this formal colonial empire was the informal empire that the United States created in Central America and the Caribbean in the aftermath of the war with Spain. That empire included protectorates over five nations in the Caribbean and Central America, Cuba, Nicaragua, Panama, the Dominican Republic, and Haiti. All five were nominally independent, but the United States controlled the economies, the finances, and the foreign policies of this country, of these countries, and it reserved the right to intervene militarily in each of them. And it did so. The pattern was first established in Cuba with the 1901 Platt Amendment. It was an amendment to a U.S. military appropriations bill. The Cubans had to agree to this amendment by treaty and add it to their constitution in order to get the U.S. Army off the island, the army that had helped to defeat the Spanish. The Cubans in, within the Platt Amendment had to agree not to incur indebtedness beyond their means and not to do anything else that might endanger their independence. They also had to agree to grant the United States a naval base, which became Guantanamo Naval Base, and to allow U.S. military intervention in the country. A year later, Cuba and the United States signed a commercial reciprocity treaty that linked the Cuban economy to the American economy in a dependent role. The way this was done was by granting Cuban sugar a lower tariff rate than the tariffs on sugar from other countries. What that did, of course, it allowed the Cuban sugar industry to prosper. But it reinforced the island's single crop economy and in effect made the entire Cuban economy dependent not only on sugar, but on a continuation of this lower American tariff, thereby giving the, the United States, in effect, control over anything it wanted in Cuba. Also, in 1903, the United States helped to organize and then supported a successful revolt in the Colombian province of Panama in order to obtain the right to build and fortify a canal through what was now an independent country. As Theodore Roosevelt famously stated, I took Panama and let Congress debate it. Over the next decade, the United States would foist treaties similar to the Platt Amendment on Nicaragua, Haiti, and the Dominican Republic, as well as Panama. And it would intervene militarily in each of them. The Cuban military interventions occurred from 1906 to 1909, 1912, and 1917 to 1922. Nicaragua, it was 1909 to 1910, 1912 to 25, and then 1926 to 1933. Haiti, 1915 to 1934. The Dominican Republic, 1916 to 1924. The United States would also exercise financial supervision over the Dominican Republic, Haiti, Nicaragua, which did not end 
until 1941 for some of these countries. Now, careful examination of the map explains why these nations, as well as Puerto Rico, the Philippines, Guam, and Hawaii, became part of the formal and the informal American empire. Panama and Nicaragua held the two key potential routes for an interoceanic canal, what would eventually become the Panama Canal. Cuba, Haiti, the Dominican Republic, and Puerto Rico controlled the Caribbean approaches to such a canal. They were also vulnerable to a feared European military intervention because of their chronic indebtedness and instability. What about Hawaii, Guam, and the Philippines? They were all stopping points for both commercial and naval vessels needing to resupply. Ships at that point ran on coal, and you needed to resupply your coal. There were coaling stations and stops for other provisions on the route across the Pacific to the fabled China market of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Now, the American policy of free trade, most clearly enunciated in the open door notes of 1899 and 1900 regarding China, also promised and often led to further commercial expansion and domination of other areas. Given the enormous size and power of the American economy by this time, free trade, meaning free of tariff barriers, would almost inevitably mean that American goods were cheaper than those of any other power. The United States could simply produce those goods more efficiently given its awesome economic size. And if the United States controlled trade with certain areas, it would give the United States control of nations in Asia and Latin America, which had much smaller economies. As a famous late 20th century history doctoral examination question in Great Britain posed the issue, free trade is the imperialism of the strong. Discuss. Now, continuation of this commercial expansion during the years between the two world wars has led many historians to question the supposed isolation of the United States during this time period. Now, the United States Senate did reject membership in the League of Nations. But, as we will see in a later lecture, it remained very actively involved in the world during the 1920s signing numerous treaties, and expanding its economy globally. Indeed, the American economy undergirded the entire global economy of the 1920s, and with it, the entire peace structure of that decade. Now, both the American economy and the global economy collapsed during the 1930s, and with them went the peace structure. And admittedly, what both preceded and what followed that economic collapse is what one historian has accurately labeled a mood of isolation. But once again, it was a mood limited to a desire to stay out of another European war. And the closer Europe came to war, the stronger that mood became. 
It would change dramatically in 1940 and 1941 when Nazi Germany conquered virtually all of Europe. And it would result in the permanent demise of any isolationism whatsoever in this country. Indeed, after World War II, the United States would emerge as the most powerful and influential nation in the world, and indeed in world history. But as this lecture has hopefully shown, the shift was not nearly as dramatic as our national mythology would have us believe. Our past isolation has been grossly overstated, as has our anti-imperialism. Now, given this history, why have most Americans continued to maintain that we were once isolationist and almost always anti-imperialist? Partially, it stems from the fact that we successfully rebelled against the greatest empire in the world and thus believe we have an anti-empire tradition and history. Partially, it stems from the fact that our founders defined our empire, in Jefferson's words, as an empire of liberty, not an empire of tyranny, and we tend to equate the word empire with tyranny. Partially, it stems from the 19th century belief via the ideology of manifest destiny that the North American continent was ours by divine right. And thus, our claims were superior to any contrary claims by Native Americans, Europeans, or Latin Americans. Our expansion by this mode of thinking across the North American continent could not be considered imperialistic. Along with that mode of thought went the belief that the entire Western Hemisphere was separated from Europe not only by an ocean, but by the Republican form of government. The 1823 Monroe Doctrine was and still is consequently perceived as a defensive document against European encroachment. And thus, isolationist and anti-imperialist rather than expansionist and aggressive as others have interpreted it. Similarly, we believed we were liberating the Cubans in 1898. We also believed we were both defending and spreading freedom and democracy against mortal threats in World War I, in World War II, and in the Cold War. And partially, our belief that we were anti-imperialist stemmed from the fact that we equated imperialism with formal colonialism rather than viewing formal colonialism as but one form of imperialism. In addition, we have always viewed trade as a rational alternative to empire and war, which it can be, but which it often, as we have seen, is not. Now, a debate did begin during the Cold War as to whether we were indeed an empire. And if we were, then what kind of empire? That debate accelerated after the Cold War ended and the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. It was clear from that point on the United States was the hegemonic power of the world. So were we an empire if we were the hegemonic power? To most Americans, the answer remained definitely no. 
We are not an empire. Our major foreign policies, we are told consistently, are and always have been protection of our own security and promotion of democracy around the world, not the creation of an empire. But in the name of protecting our own security and promoting democracy, numerous critics point out that we have created and we consistently use the largest military force in the world. It is a military force whose total cost is greater than that of the armed forces of all other major nations combined. If that is not imperialistic, the critics asked, what is? There's another fact to consider. Isn't promotion of American-style democracy imperialistic to cultures that do not share or want our democratic values? On the other hand, isn't much of our previous expansion really the unplanned defensive result of our need to counter mortal threats to our security? Mortal threats that appeared first in the shape of aggressive European monarchies, and then in the shape of Nazi Germany and the Communist Soviet Union. Perhaps so. Perhaps so. But that does not negate the domination we have been able to exercise over others in the process of defending ourselves and ensuring our own security. And others clearly define that domination as imperialistic. Now, in truth be told, in a world of nation-states that all claim sovereignty, and keep in mind that sovereignty includes the right to make war, in such a world, the only absolute security is expansion designed to preclude the emergence of any other center of power that could threaten you. Clearly, during the Cold War, that is the way we interpreted Soviet behavior, and in fact, all of Russian history. Realize that in this regard, one nation's defense is another nation's aggression. And that will be the case as long as we live in this anarchic international system, in which every nation maintains that it is sovereign and maintains the right to make war on any other nation. Perhaps relevant here is what the ancient Athenians asserted to the Spartans 2,500 years ago about their empire, that is the Athenian empire, at least according to Thucydides in his classic, The Peloponnesian War. The Athenians said to the Spartans, that their principal motive in acquiring an empire was fear. Then Thucydides added, quote, though honor and interest afterwards came in. Are we all that different from the Athenians? Or indeed, are we all that different from ancient Rome, to which we are often compared by others? And indeed, 
to which throughout our history we have often compared ourselves. Lecture 14 Early Progressives Were Not Liberals Many Americans, whether liberal or conservative, trace contemporary liberalism back to the late 19th and early 20th century reform movement known as progressivism. Progressivism was a movement that began in the cities and that came to dominate both political parties and national politics during the first two decades of the 20th century. Indeed, at least two American presidents, Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, openly identified themselves as progressives and their programs with the progressive cause. Yet a close examination shows that the progressives held many views totally repugnant to contemporary liberals. Now, as with other historical myths that we've looked at, there is a kernel of truth in the supposed connection between progressivism and contemporary liberalism. But it has been grossly overstated, and it distorts the history and meaning of progressivism. It also distorts the meaning of contemporary liberalism and contemporary conservatism for that matter. Part of the problem is that our definitions of liberalism and conservatism have changed rather dramatically over the past century, and they have done so more than once. But the problem is also due to a misunderstanding regarding who the progressives were and just what they stood for. This lecture will attempt to address that misunderstanding by analyzing the progressives and their progressive movement. After doing so, it will then explore the ways in which progressivism is related to contemporary liberalism and the ways in which it is not. Now, the confusion over progressivism is quite understandable. It was never a unified movement. It contained many different groups with many different goals. That fact is clearly illustrated by both the legislation that was passed during the progressive era and the four constitutional amendments that were passed during this time period. These constitutional amendments, number 16, 17, 18, and 19, established the income tax, direct election of senators, prohibition on the manufacture and sale of alcohol, and the vote for women. Now, what in the world, one might ask, do those four have in common? Situation is similar in regard to progressive legislation. Major progressive bills included establishment of the first income tax, bills to regulate the railroads, antitrust legislation, the Pure Food and Drug Act, the creation of the Federal Reserve System, major attacks on civil liberties during and after World War I, and immigration restriction. Again, one might ask, what in the world do these have in common? 
The progressive era would also see the creation of numerous professional organizations with enforced professional standards for doctors, for lawyers, for others. It would also see the rise of social work, social workers, settlement houses to help the immigrants and the poor. We'll also see the rise of a national birth control movement during this time, a further deterioration in the condition of African-Americans, a major movement in the churches known as the social gospel movement promoting progressive reform, and a racist eugenics movement that sought to sterilize those it labeled inferior. Once again, what in the world do these have in common? The movement also elected two of our best-known presidents, Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson. But they came from different political parties, and they had strikingly different personalities. They ran against each other in 1912 on two progressive platforms, but diametrically opposed platforms, and they came to hate each other. The progressive movement also included people famous in other areas of American life, but with little if anything, in common. You had philosophers such as William James and John Dewey, the father of our modern educational system. You had social workers such as Jane Addams, who was also a famous peace activist. At the same time, you had army officers such as General Leonard Wood, who helped bring progressive efficiency to the army and who wanted to inculcate army values into the civilian population. You had ministers such as Walter Rauschenbusch and Washington Gladden who were leaders in the social gospel movement. You had jurists such as Oliver Wendell Holmes and Louis Brandeis, highly influential Supreme Court justices who came from different generations. You had expose journalists called muckrakers by Theodore Roosevelt such as Lincoln Steffens, Ida Tarbell, and you had novelists such as Stephen Crane, Theodore Dreiser, Frank Norris, Jack London, Upton Sinclair. You had imperialists such as Theodore Roosevelt and anti-imperialists such as Robert La Follette. Roosevelt was also an avid internationalist, whereas La Follette is known as an isolationist. Nor is that the end of the contradictions and the confusion. Progressive programs included many ideas from the 1892 populist platform cited in a previous lecture, but most progressive leaders had been anti-populist in the 1890s. Most progressives wanted to regulate big business, but numerous business leaders were part of the movement. Many immigrants supported the movement, even though many of its leaders were anti-immigrant. Many African-Americans supported the movement, even though many of the movement's leaders were highly racist. And many women supported the movement, even though many of its leaders were proponents of legislation to protect women because of their alleged inferiority. Now, historians have for many decades explored progressivism and tried to understand these contradictions and this movement. Perhaps it is best described in the words of one historian, Robert Wiebe, as a search for order, an attempt to redefine American politics 
and American society in light of the enormous, the revolutionary changes that had been created by the Industrial Revolution and the ensuing urbanization of the country. In this regard, a new class of urban white-collar professionals created by the Industrial Revolution and urbanization, accountants, clerks, mid-level managers, would join with the older urban professional middle class of doctors, lawyers, and businessmen to be two of the driving forces in the movement, though far from the only ones. Now, the essential progressive program focused on a series of general goals. One was to end the abuses of power and the corruption that had come to dominate American economic and political life. Progressives wanted to replace corrupted institutions with reformed ones that would restore power to the people via such measures as the initiative, so that the people could initiate legislation rather than the, the corrupt state legislatures, the referendum where people could vote directly on this legislation, and the recall whereby corrupt officials could be thrown out of office before the end of their term. Progressives also favored direct election of senators instead of via corrupt state legislatures, the secret ballot, and extension of the franchise to many previously denied it. Progressives also wanted to restore morality to American politics and American life. Honesty in business, honesty in government, honesty in production. Witness the Pure Food and Drug Act. Progressives wanted to help the victims of industrialization. Children and women forced to work, the new immigrants, and others. Progressives wanted to use scientific and efficiency principles and expertise from both the academic world and the business world to minimize disorder and establish cooperation. In progressive minds, expertise and morality were fused. They were not contradictory, they were complementary. As Woodrow Wilson once said to the experts that joined him going to the Paris Peace Conference, a group known as the Inquiry, tell me what is right and I will fight for it. The experts would know what was right, what was morally right, as well as what was factually right. Progressives also wanted to professionalize and regularize aspects of American life by establishing clear standards for doctors, lawyers, and other professionals. And finally, progressives wanted to restore a sense of discipline, virtue, and service. To get people to look beyond their narrow self-interest and look instead to the good of others and to the good of the country as a whole. The thought was best expressed by the philosopher William James in his essay, The Moral Equivalent of War. War, he believed, was hideous. But it did get people to think not first of themselves, but of the soldier next to them, beyond their own self-interest. If we could get the civilian population to think the way soldiers do, James said, it would be a great advance. General Leonard Wood 
felt similarly. He called for inculcating military virtues into civilian life. Now, for progressives, the key tool to do all of this was positive government action. This is the key shift in what we might call the liberal perspective. And the one very clear link, in fact, some would say the only clear link, between the progressives and contemporary liberals. A belief that government is not the problem, but the solution to the problems that plagued American life at this time. Now, traditional 18th and 19th century liberalism feared government power. It saw government power as the key source of tyranny throughout history, and it had sought to limit government power in whatever ways it could. Witness in this regard the policies that we have previously discussed of Thomas Jefferson and Andrew Jackson. But progressives turned this traditional liberalism on its head by arguing that the large monopolistic corporations and the corrupt urban political machines had become the key problems. And that positive government action was now imperative to control big business, to reform the political and economic systems, and thereby to restore and save the American dream. Now, there is no central theorist for the movement. But one of the most important progressive thinkers was an individual named Herbert Crowley, who wrote a book entitled The Promise of American Life. What Crowley essentially did was to attack Adam Smith's hidden hand that laissez-faire would result in everything being rosy. The marketplace, he argued, was no longer self-regulating, and it was not leading automatically to better things in the economic sphere or in any other sphere. The belief that it was, Crowley maintained, was actually helping to destroy the American dream. And what was needed to restore the promise of American life was greater government power, nationalization, centralization. Or as one cliche to summarize the progressive movement put it, use Hamiltonian means for Jeffersonian ends. Now, while progressives tended to agree on these general goals and the positive use of government, they disagreed over just how government should be used. For example, should it be used in terms of regulating big business uh, to break down large monopolistic corporations, to smash big business, or should it instead merely seek to regulate them? This fact can be most clearly seen in the competing progressive platforms of Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson in the presidential election of 1912. Wilson's new freedom sought to use the government to break up big business in order to restore competition. Roosevelt's new nationalism argued that this was both impossible and counterproductive. Instead, government should seek to control and legitimize big business. Government should also play the key role as arbitrator in differences between business and labor. Now, far from accidentally, this indirect attack on laissez-faire also led the new nationalists to propose legislation to help the victims of industrialization, since these people, in effect, recognized that laissez-faire was not working and that some people would need government help. Now, those who opposed the progressive call for positive government action 
would henceforth be considered conservatives. But in actuality, they were retaining one of the major principles of 18th and 19th century liberalism, fear of government power. In that belief, these American conservatives were diametrically opposed to traditional European conservatives who favored strong government power, indeed some favored absolute government power. It is important to realize in this regard that American conservatives and liberals both based their belief systems on John Locke's concept of the social contract, as was discussed in an earlier lecture. So do those who consider themselves neither conservatives nor liberals, but moderates. None of them follow the concepts of Thomas Hobbes and other European conservative thinkers that underlay the very different European definition of conservatism. Hobbes had maintained that the natural, original state of human life was, in his words, quote, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And that the only way to organize a society so as to overcome this was to give total power and obedience to a monarch or to a small aristocratic group empowered to decide every issue. Now, while some American conservatives just might agree with Hobbes' pessimistic view of human nature, they do not agree with his proposed solution of absolute obedience to a powerful, centralized, authoritarian government. Instead, they argue, as did 18th and 19th century liberals, that strong centralized government, not big business, remains the greatest threat to freedom. This fear of big government has led to the crack that an American conservative is actually a worshiper of dead liberals. If that is true, does that make a liberal a worshiper of dead conservatives? It is also important to note that while the logic of progressive thought does lead to many programs contemporary liberals could support, it also led to many programs that are anathema to contemporary liberalism. Let me name but a few of these. A desire to help the victims of industrialization, which contemporary liberals would applaud, combined with the desire to restore morality to American life, translated during this time period into an imposition of middle-class American morality via legal social coercion in numerous areas. Some have argued that that is something that contemporary conservatives might support as well. Another link of conservatives to um, the progressive movement. The Prohibition Amendment, as well as laws against certain drugs that were passed during this time period, were partially justified on the grounds that alcohol and drugs are immoral and that they create dependency that holds back the working class. In this mode of thinking, social reform becomes social control as the government assumed functions previously performed by the church, by the family, and by the local community. The desire to help the victims of industrialization would also lead to a major movement to Americanize the new immigrants at the expense of their traditional cultures. Now, destroying traditional cultures may seem to us as anything but helpful to new immigrants. 
But that is because our values in this regard have changed so dramatically over the last century. Today, our belief in this regard is aptly summarized by Star Trek's prime directive, not to upset or alter the cultures of other life forms with whom the enterprise comes into contact. But the belief then was that the best thing you could do for the new immigrants was to make them think and behave just like middle-class white Americans. Furthermore, the progressive emphasis on science, on expertise, and on professional standards actually hurt the new immigrants and other poor by depriving them of the doctors, lawyers, who had been willing to serve them. While those individuals might not have been very well trained, at least they were willing to provide service to the poor. Similarly, progressive efforts to destroy political corruption deprived the new immigrants and other poor of the urban political machines that took care of them, in return, of course, for their vote and acceptance of the graft that went with these machines. Tammany Hall's George Washington Plunkett had admitted years earlier to a reporter that he knew every man, woman, and child in his district. And when there was a fire or some other emergency, he didn't ask questions as reformers would get them to fill out forms. Instead, he found them a place to live, got them clothing to replace what they had lost, and they gratefully repaid him with their vote. The fusion of science with pre-existing racism would reinforce the desire to help the new immigrants by Americanizing them and destroying their native cultures. It would also lead to immigration restriction to prevent any more of these inferior peoples from coming over and competing with American labor. That fusion of science with pre-existing racism would also lead to the rise of a movement known as eugenics, and with it calls for forced sterilization of inferiors so as to improve the genetic base of the population. Indeed, this progressive era might very well have been the height of scientific racist thought in this country. It would witness in this regard the publication of Madison Grant's notorious Passing of the Great Race, soon followed by Henry Ford's previously cited anti-Semitic tracts. Nor is it accidental in this regard that the great progressive Woodrow Wilson would expand segregation in the federal government, introducing it to several departments where it had not existed before, and that he would praise D.W. Griffith's racist film, Birth of a Nation, as, quote, history written with lightning. Now, this racism along with the emphasis on the imposition of American middle-class standards of expertise and morality, would also lead many progressives to become avid imperialists in the name of what Rudyard Kipling had popularized as the white man's burden, the need to help these inferior peoples by ruling them. It is no accident in this regard that the progressive era coincides with the establishment, as discussed in the last lecture, of the informal as well as the formal American empire. In fact, most of the military interventions in Central America and the Caribbean occurred during the progressive era under both the Republican Theodore Roosevelt and the Democrat Woodrow Wilson. 
And the progressive emphasis on nationalism and centralization would reinforce, if not create, the suppression of civil liberties during World War I in the name of patriotism. It was done via creation of the first American Propaganda Bureau, the Committee on Public Information, and the passage of the Espionage and Sedition Acts in 1917 and 1918. Those laws virtually outlawed dissent against the war and criticism of the United States government, and they would be supported by the Supreme Court. Indeed, Eugene Debs would be jailed again under these laws, this time for opposing the war. In addition to all of these problems, much progressive legislation simply failed. Big business today is in many ways more centralized and destructive of competition than it was a hundred years ago. Big government has in many ways failed as well, failed to do what it promised. And to many today, whether rightly or wrongly, big government appears worse than the problems it originally grew to address. Fascinating is the fact that progressive political reforms would coincide with a decline in the percentage of Americans who vote, not an increase as the progressives had desired and expected. Nevertheless, progressivism created much of the broad value structure that we live with today, whether liberal, conservative, or in-between, regarding such issues as efficiency, expertise, morality, government control, as well as the inculcation of such values through our educational system. We still use the word progressive. In this regard, we are in a situation similar to the continued use of the word populism. Do contemporary people who use the label progressive have anything in common with the original progressive movement? The answer is probably similar. This is not a lecture on contemporary progressivism. But as with populism, there are links, but there are dramatic differences. What I think can be clearly stated is that most, if not all of us, liberals, conservatives, moderates, progressives, remain linked to progressive ideas. And progressivism thus remains very relevant to contemporary American life. But it does not necessarily remain relevant in the ways that we think it does. Lecture 15, Woodrow Wilson and the Rating of Presidents. Woodrow Wilson is one of the most controversial presidents in all of U.S. history. In most presidential polls, he is put in either the great or the near-great category. Yet to his numerous detractors, both at the time and later, he is vastly overrated. Now, examining the reasons for this sharp difference of opinion provides an opportunity to explore the broader issue 
of presidential ratings in general and the standards by which past presidents are judged. Wilson's reputation in high rating in the polls rests upon what appear to be an extraordinary series of accomplishments during his eight years in office. A former professor of political science and then president of Princeton, Wilson possessed exceptional intelligence, knowledge, and rhetorical abilities. He used these to promote and obtain passage of his New Freedom Progressive Program. This included, during his first two years in office, the Underwood-Simmons Tariff, which was the first major downward revision of the tariff since before the Civil War. It also contained the first income tax in American history. Congress also passed the Federal Reserve Act, establishing the Federal Reserve System. This was our first central banking structure since Andrew Jackson destroyed the Second National Bank of the United States in the 1830s. Congress also passed the Federal Trade Commission Act, which established the Federal Trade Commission, and the Clayton Antitrust Act to curb monopolistic business practices. But that was not the end of it. Wilson then expanded his reform program so as to obtain passage in 1916 of a second round of progressive legislation. You had the Federal Farm Loan Act and Warehouse Act to provide farmers with credits, a Highway Act to help construct and improve rural roads, the Owen Keating Act prohibiting the interstate shipment of goods made with child labor. You also had the Adamson Act, establishing an eight-hour day for railroad workers, and the Kern-McGillicuddy Act, which created a workman's compensation system for federal employees. That's impressive. And in obtaining this collection of progressive legislation, Wilson also became the first president to propose and obtain from Congress a full program. He was also the first president to address Congress personally and use his rhetorical abilities to get what he wanted. Since George Washington and John Adams, Thomas Jefferson had ended that practice. Wilson also exhibited exceptional political skill, both with the Congress and with the public. And by 1916, he had united progressive forces from both parties to support him for re-election. In foreign affairs, Wilson supporters argue, he kept the United States out of World War I for nearly three years. And when forced by German actions to enter the war in the spring of 1917, he quickly became the moral leader of all the Allied nations and the major force for reform of the entire international system. That reform program, as enunciated in his 14 points address, and other major speeches focused on creating a new world order, a world order to be based on the creation of a League of Nations and the principle of collective security. In the past, peace had been maintained by the balance of power. And that balance of power had failed numerous times, most obviously during World War I. Wilson argued that the world should now ditch the balance of power and replace it with an international institution, the League, and a system 
whereby all nations would unite to stop any aggressor state. This would be collective security. Now, Wilson obtained his League of Nations and much of the rest of his international program during his intense negotiations with allied leaders in Paris. But he failed to obtain Senate ratification of the ensuing Treaty of Versailles. According to his supporters, that was because of Republican obstructionists and because of a major stroke that tragically prevented him from successfully mobilizing the American people in favor of the treaty and membership in the League. Wilson had undertaken a tour of the country to mobilize support and suffered the stroke in the midst of that tour, forcing him to cancel it, return home, and in, in effect, no longer act as the president he previously had. Now, despite this final failure, Wilson's supporters argue that his record of achievements is extraordinary. He brought the progressive movement to its zenith. He helped to redefine the role and the power of the presidency and the federal government as a whole. And he redefined the role of the United States in the world arena. Even his failure to obtain Senate agreement to join the League of Nations boosts his reputation, according to these supporters, by clearly illustrating that he was simply ahead of his time. For in 1945, the United States would join the successor to the League of Nations, the United Nations. Now, Wilson's critics see a very, very different record and reach very different conclusions. For a start, although Wilson carried 40 of 48 states in 1912 and won a massive victory in the Electoral College, he carried the Electoral College 435 to 96, the popular vote was another matter. Wilson is a minority president. He ran against Taft on the Republican Party and Theodore Roosevelt on the third party known as the Bull Moose Party. When the vote was counted, Wilson had obtained only 42% of the popular vote. Wilson also ran in 1912 on a very limited new freedom reform program, the critics argue. A program designed essentially and limited to destroy the trusts and restore competition. Yet soon after taking office, he abandoned portions of that program. And by 1916, he had embraced the much broader, yet diametrically opposed, new nationalism reform program of Theodore Roosevelt, with his emphasis not on destruction, but regulation of big business, and on economic and social welfare le legislation. Wilson had opposed all of this in 1912. Why, the critics argued, did he do so? Did he now change? primarily to obtain the votes of Roosevelt's 1912 supporters and thereby achieve re-election. Critics also note that Wilson refused to support women's suffrage and that he was responsible for bringing added racial segregation to the federal government. In foreign affairs, critics note that this supposed anti-imperialist wound up intervening militarily in Latin America more than his openly imperialist predecessors combined. He sent troops into the Dominican Republic, into Haiti, into Mexico. He maintained troops in Nicaragua, 
that had been sent there by his predecessor, William Howard Taft. His military intervention in Mexico almost resulted in a war with that country. What about World War I? Critics point out that Wilson was so pro-allied in his sympathies and his actions that he made a mockery of American neutrality in World War I. He held Germany to much stricter standards than the Allies regarding violations of American neutral rights. In fact, those stricter standards led to the resignation in protest of his first Secretary of State, William Jennings Bryan. And by allowing extensive war trade and loans to the Allies, Wilson effectively made the United States an unofficial belligerent whom Germany was more than willing to attack in 1917. Along with his diplomatic blundering and blindness, this behavior eventually forced Wilson into a war he did not want and one he both could and should have avoided. Once in the war, the critics continue, Wilson's administration amassed almost dictatorial powers. It also established America's first propaganda bureau, the Committee on Public Information, and virtually outlawed dissent with the Espionage and the Sedition Acts. These initiated a period of severe government repression and some of the worst violations of civil liberties in American history. Wilson also participated in the Allied military intervention that attempted but failed to overthrow the Bolshevik government in Russia. And he refused to recognize that government for the duration of his term. In fact, the Bolshevik government would not be recognized until 1933. These moves embittered relations between Russia and the United States for decades, and they were an important factor in the development of the Cold War. At the same time that all of this was going on, the critics note, the Wilson administration attacked domestic and immigrant leftists, and soon after the war, it launched what became known as the first Great Red Scare. Wilson's attorney general, A. Mitchell Palmer, launched what are now recognized to be the totally illegal Palmer raids, the arrest of numerous American citizens, as well as immigrants, and the deportation of some of them. After World War I, the critics continue, Wilson also proved to be a very inept negotiator at the Paris Peace Conference. And in the end, he abandoned many of the lofty principles he had previously championed. The primary cause of Senate refusal to ratify the League of Nations and Treaty of Versailles, these critics maintain, was Wilson's own arrogant refusal to compromise with Senate Republicans, a refusal that doomed the treaty and that one historian has labeled, quote, the supreme infanticide. And that refusal, along with the defective Treaty of Versailles for which he bore so much responsibility, led to a second and bloodier world war only 20 years later. This is a record of overwhelming failure, despite all the lofty rhetoric. As one notable progressive put it at that time, he gave us nothing but words. Even those words are suspect, for in both domestic and foreign affairs, he championed 19th century concepts that would be unworkable 
in the 20th century. Well, how does one deal with these diametrically opposed conclusions about Woodrow Wilson in assessing his presidency? And what can they tell us about presidential ratings and presidential polls in general? Such polls, usually of historians and political scientists, have taken place numerous times over the last 65 years. One of the primary standards used in such evaluations is, and should be, the consequences of presidential actions. By that standard, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and Franklin Roosevelt always rank as the top three presidents. Washington for establishing the new government and setting a host of key precedents. Lincoln for preventing the destruction of the country. And Roosevelt for successfully leading the United States through the worst domestic economic crisis and the worst international crisis in its history. Similarly, the two presidents who preceded Lincoln, Franklin Pierce and James Buchanan, are usually placed at the bottom in presidential ratings because of their policies and the fact that their incompetence resulted in the Civil War. So are Ulysses Grant and Warren G. Harding because of the massive corruption that occurred during their presidencies. Now, in most polls, Thomas Jefferson, Theodore Roosevelt, and Woodrow Wilson are ranked just below Washington, Lincoln, and Franklin Roosevelt. And then they are often followed by James K. Polk and James Monroe. Similarly, John Tyler, Millard Fillmore, Zachary Taylor, and Andrew Johnson are usually ranked at the bottom, either with or just a notch above Pierce, Buchanan, Grant, and Harding. The others who preceded Wilson fall somewhere in between in an average or adequate category. Now, Wilson's high ranking is a bit puzzling in light of his numerous failures and their negative consequences, as well as his numerous successes. But consequences do not constitute the only standard involved in rating presidents. In the case of both Wilson and the others, assessments are often based on the values that the assessors bring to their task. For Wilson, whether or not one approves of the progressive movement and with it, an activist presidency and an activist federal government is critical in determining how one assesses his domestic record. If one is in favor of this, then the assessment will tend to be very positive. Similarly, whether or not one approves of an activist role for the United States in international affairs is critical in determining how one assesses Wilson's foreign policies. Again, if one favors a major role for the United States, the assessment of Wilson will be very high, both for entry into World War I and for his peacemaking efforts and the ensuing League of Nations. But in each case, the assessment will tend to be lower if one disagrees with the idea of an activist president and federal government or an activist role for the United States in the world. Now, such value judgments play a major role in all presidential ratings. Presidents usually listed as the worst, Franklin Pierce, James Buchanan, Ulysses Grant, Warren G. Harding, for example, 
are put in that category for one of two reasons, incompetence or corruption. But these are not the only reasons one could conclude that someone was a terrible president. What about hypocrisy? What about out-and-out lying? Or what about breaking the law? And finally, what about sheer stupidity? Similarly, those usually placed in the highest category, Washington, Lincoln, Franklin Roosevelt, are put in that category because of the enormous dangers the country faced during their tenures, dangers that they had to deal with. Establishing a new government amidst a world war for George Washington, fighting a civil war for Lincoln, and dealing with both the Great Depression and World War II for Franklin Roosevelt. Again, however, should this be the only category for a great presidency? What about political skill in office? What about lack of mistakes? By that standard, I often quip, my choice for the greatest president in U.S. history is William Henry Harrison, primarily because he died before he could do anything wrong. He only served in office 32 days. Furthermore, use of consequences as a standard requires treating with a grain of salt rankings of recent presidents. For we clearly do not yet know the full consequences of their actions. I received a telephone call from a journalist during the impeachment and trial of Bill Clinton, asking me how Clinton's impeachment would look 10 years from now. My reply, that depends on what happens in the next 10 years. By the way, one of my colleagues and friends gave the same reply, but added a quip of his own. Historians don't predict the future. Historians predict the past. Historians deal with the past, something that we have tried to emphasize in this course, and that the past is much more complex than it appears to be. Sometimes the consequences of presidential actions are positive and negative. That is definitely true for Wilson, but he is far from the only president with a mixed record of consequences. James K. Polk, a relatively unknown president, unexpectedly showed up in a 1948 poll in the near great category. Primarily because in his one term in office, he said in advance he would only serve a single term, and he wanted to accomplish four major tasks, and he did. First, a downward revision of the tariff. Next, a sub-treasury plan to replace the second national bank. Third, a settlement of the Oregon controversy with Great Britain, whereby the United States obtained present-day Oregon and Washington in the Pacific Northwest. And finally, the waging of a successful and short war with Mexico by which the United States secured Texas and obtained both California and the present southwestern states. But that war with Mexico guaranteed the enmity of Latin America against the Yankee Colossus to the north. And the acquisition of California and the southwest led to a huge conflict over whether or not to allow slavery into these new territories. It thereby upset 
the sectional peace that had been maintained for so many years by the Missouri Compromise. And of course, that led to the Civil War. So should Polk be highly rated for massively expanding the size of this country, as well as his other accomplishments? Or should he be rated very low, perhaps even as low as Pierce and Buchanan, for the fact that this expansion played a major role in the coming of Civil War? Similarly, how should one rate Richard Nixon? Given, for example, the positive consequences of his establishing relations with communist China and his achievement of detente with the Soviet Union versus the very negative consequences of the criminal behavior that surrounded Watergate. One also needs to recognize that presidential polls and ratings are affected by changing American values and perspectives over time. Our changing views on race relations, for example, have deeply affected our views of the causes of the Civil War and of the Reconstruction era. No longer do we harshly condemn the radical Republicans and their program as was done 75 years ago. Consequently, we no longer view Andrew Johnson, the president those Republicans impeached, as positively as we used to. Now, let me clarify, Johnson has never been in the top category. But in 1948, he was in the 19th position. Recently, he has moved all the way down to 41st place as one of the worst presidents in all of American history. There is also a complementary tendency to revise our negative assessments of Johnson's successor, Ulysses Grant, who has recently gone up in some recent polls. Andrew Jackson dropped from sixth place in 1948 to 14th place in a more recent poll, probably because of our changing views on just how democratic his presidency really was, as well as the negative impact of his destruction of the Second National Bank an impact that included the Panic and the Depression of 1837. Jumping ahead, in the 20th century, Dwight Eisenhower's rating as president went up rather dramatically by 1982 from where it had been in 1961. Why? Well, there was release of additional documents, his diaries. But equally, if not more important, were the failures of his three more activist successors, Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon, as well as belated recognition of Eisenhower's unique, indirect style of leadership. Furthermore, there is often a sharp difference between the rating of a past president taken by historians and the rating by the general public. Harry Truman, for example, received a much higher rating from historians soon after his presidency ended than he did from the public in general. His successor, Eisenhower, at first received much higher ratings from the public than from the historians, and then the historians shifted. And in a 2011 Gallup poll, Americans agreed with the historians only on Lincoln as one of the top three, instead of Washington and Franklin Roosevelt as the other two. They put Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton in that elite group. 
Apparently, for the public, history consists only of an individual's lifetime. Furthermore, public views can change with the passage of time as much as historians' views change. In an interesting irony, the public's rating of Harry Truman went way up in the 1970s and the 1980s. At about the same time, it began to decline amongst many historians. A group of historians began to argue that Truman deserved partial blame for the Cold War and for the second Great Red Scare, known as McCarthyism, even though McCarthyism would be directed against Truman. But, these critics argue, he had started it. Try to keep all of this in mind, as in the next two lectures, we re-examine what I consider to be a few of our underrated and misunderstood presidents. Finally, let's come back to Woodrow Wilson. What about his ratings? They have gone down somewhat since the 1960s. I would argue primarily as a result of our changing views on race relations, women's rights, and civil liberties, perhaps of the UN as well. In 1948, he'd ranked number four. In the 1990s, he ranked number seven. And he's a bit lower in the 21st century. But he's still way up there. Is he perhaps still overrated? His achievements are indeed impressive and consequential. But as we have seen, so are his failures by their negative consequences and by many of our contemporary standards. Yet, his supporters ask, could any of his predecessors or contemporaries have done better given the new and enormous 20th century problems that he faced, both domestically and internationally? Now, that, of course, is a what-if question, a counterfactual. And in a sense, it's unanswerable, since no one else was president from 1913 to 1921. But people love to ask. And I often wonder, what would have happened if Theodore Roosevelt had won the 1912 election instead of Woodrow Wilson? Whereas Wilson's new freedom sought to return to a mid-19th century world of competition, Roosevelt's new nationalism realized that was impossible. And his was the first program to address 20th century realities in terms of business regulation rather than merely trust-busting and social welfare legislation. And in foreign affairs, Theodore Roosevelt, at least in regard to his dealings with the great powers, was one of the most successful diplomats in all of U.S. history. He mediated an end to the Russo-Japanese War, for which he won the Nobel Peace Prize. And he secretly mediated an end to the Moroccan crisis that could have easily led to the outbreak of World War I in 1905-1906. In fact, it almost did lead to the outbreak of war in those years. Now, given that record, one must ask if World War I would have even broken out if Roosevelt had won in 1912. Certainly, he would have actively tried to prevent it, much more actively than did Wilson, who was preoccupied at that date with the death of his first wife. Now, had Theodore Roosevelt failed to halt the outbreak of war, he probably would have joined the war much earlier than Wilson. And I seriously doubt his record in civil liberties would have been any better than Wilson's. It could very well have been worse. 
but I also doubt he would have ever attempted to replace the balance of power with collective security. Collective security was a concept that over and over again in the 20th and 21st centuries has proven to be unworkable. Given that fact, as well as the new freedoms hearkening back to a past era of competition, was Wilson indeed ahead of his time, as his supporters often allege, or in reality, in many ways, behind his time? Lecture 16, The Roaring Twenties Reconsidered. The standard popular view of the 1920s is that the country was tired of progressive reforms and overseas crusades. It elected in 1920 a president, Warren G. Harding, who verbalized its desire for a return to the pre-progressive era with his call for a return to normalcy. The result would be a supposed return to the business values of the late 19th century, as epitomized by President Calvin Coolidge's remark that, quote, the chief business of Americans is business. Coolidge's becoming president on Harding's unexpected death in 1923 also epitomized the supposed return to the social values of the 19th century. He was sworn in by his father, a notary public, by kerosene lamplight at the family home in Plymouth Notch, Vermont, where he was visiting. This was supposedly also a decade of a return to an isolationist foreign policy, as well as a focus on conformity, as epitomized in the popular novels of Sinclair Lewis. It was also a time period when Americans just wanted to have a good time, all of which would disgust the intellectuals and lead them to desert the United States for Paris as the, quote, lost generation. But in reality, the 1920s are far more complex than that, and more revolutionary. Indeed, in many ways, the 20s continued what had begun during the progressive era and set the stage for contemporary America far more than they look back to any past era. Now, underlying all the changes of the 20s is the economic revolution that took place during the 1920s. That revolution was based on continued consolidation and the growing efficiency of business via scientific management. This had been explained by Frederick W. Taylor and indeed was known as Taylorism. And with this came the rise of a new class of business managers and an explosion in productivity as well as business consolidation. Per capita output went up 40%. Production, 46%. Giant national chains emerged in numerous fields, including food, A&P, clothes, Woolworths, and banking, Bank of America. By 1930, 200 corporations owned 50% of the nation's corporate wealth. Now, what I just described may seem on the surface like a continuation of the trends from the 1890s. 
But in reality, it is not. For this business growth and concentration was accompanied by a major shift in American industry during the 1920s. A shift from heavy industry to the production of new and cheap consumer items. This was largely made possible by the previously cited earlier work of Thomas Edison and others with electricity generation in cities, both for factories and for urban homes. By the 1920s, that had developed sufficiently to make possible the development, sale, and use of a host of new electrical devices in the home. The vacuum cleaner, the toaster, the clothes washer, the refrigerator, the mechanization of housework was taking place, in the words of one historian. Now, equally critical to the new economy was the automobile. The automobile was not a new invention in the 1920s. But by the 20s, Henry Ford had made it a consumer item available to the middle and lower classes by using assembly line techniques and scientific management to cut the price of an automobile by more than two-thirds, from $950 to $290. That made it affordable to most, including Ford's own workers, whom he paid the then unheard of sum of $5 a day so that they can buy the cars that they made. In return, however, he issued a total ban on unions, would not tolerate them. Now, some consider what Ford did the start of what would be known eventually as welfare capitalism in industry, something that was put into effect to combat unionization. And you would have eventually the creation of pension funds, profit-sharing plans, etc. I, I would hardly call that a return to the conditions for workers of the late 19th century. Now, as a result of Ford's innovations, automobile production skyrocketed from 4,000 in 1900 to 4.8 million in 1929. Auto ownership jumped from 8 million to 23 million. Like electricity, the automobile would have a ripple effect on the entire economy, especially in such industries as steel, rubber, glass, oil, and electronics that are all involved in making cars. But there was also an indirect impact. Highway construction, concrete, roadside restaurants, gas stations, and the new Motor hotels, or motels. The automobile became the focal point of the entire economy. And it began to dramatically alter numerous aspects of American life. Including, some have argued, sexual mores for youth. The backseat of the automobile, as one put it, became an American institution. Now, along with this economic revolution comes a phenomenal growth in advertising to convince people to buy all the cheap new consumer products that are now available, as well as the automobile. Now, again, advertising is not new, 
But there is a massive expansion of the industry, along with a major shift from trying to inform the public of a product's existence and what it supposedly can do. Um, it's not the, truth in advertising is a flexible term at this time. But a shift from that to playing on psychological desires and needs, such as acceptance, prestige, sex, popularity. General Motors, for example, sought to compete with Ford by offering different brands of cars for different classes and different colors, as opposed to Ford's single brand and single color. When asked about colors, Ford's crack was that his customers could buy a Ford in any color, as long as it was black. This advertising mania becomes known as boosterism. And it was epitomized by Bruce Barton's best-selling 1925 book, The Man Nobody Knows. In it, Barton portrayed Jesus Christ as the greatest advertising executive and businessman in history. He thought of his life as business, Barton wrote. Every advertising man ought to study the parables of Jesus, schooling himself in their language and learning the elements of their power. Why? Because, Barton wrote, he picked up 12 men from the bottom ranks of business and forged them into an organization that conquered the world. The 20s also witnessed the rise of installment buying as a way the middle and lower classes could afford all these new items. The resulting economic boom would both feed and be fed by the continuing urbanization of the country. Indeed, it is in this decade that urban dwellers, and at this point, Urban is defined as a city or town of 2,500 or more. It's in this decade that urban dwellers come to outnumber rural dwellers. That will mean new and expanded markets for goods and greater industrial concentration that is able to produce more, as well as a new and national urban culture that we still live with today. Now, helping to spread that new national urban culture will be the new mass media that emerged during this era, most notably radio and motion pictures. They will also create new national heroes. Radio will aid in the rise of spectator sports as a big business, both professional and collegiate. Especially noteworthy in the professional realm is baseball which had a major scandal in 1919, the Black Sox scandal. But after the cleanup of that scandal, baseball became the national pastime with such national heroes as Babe Ruth. That is no accident. Baseball is a game made for radio, as I discovered a few years ago. Consequently, I now listen more frequently to baseball games than I watch them. As for movies, aided by the advent of sound, the industry will explode in the 1920s. With 100 million people out of a total population of 120 million, 
attending at least one movie each week. That's compared to 60 million who will go to church each week. The movies will also be shown overseas, and they will play a major role in the expansion of American culture overseas and the overseas image of the United States. Movies, as with sports, will create their own national heroes, movie stars. One, if I can pronounce his name correctly, Rodolfo, Alfonso, Raffaello, Pierre, Philibert, Guglielmi, De Valentina, De Anton Guola, better known, of course, as Rudolf Valentino, whose death at age 35 led to a mass hysteria at his funeral. But the ultimate hero of the 20s was Charles Lindbergh for his 33-hour solo flight across the Atlantic Ocean. Now, contrary to common belief, Lindbergh was not the first to fly across the Atlantic. It had been done in 1919 on a flight from Newfoundland to Ireland. Yet it is Lindbergh who became the hero, the ultimate symbol of the era, as man still the individual master of all these new machines. Also contrary to popular belief, the economic boom did not occur in all areas of the economy. Agriculture, for example, suffered enormously during this decade as wartime overseas demand ceased and European agriculture recovered from World War I. The economic boom that did occur would also be fed by government assistance and other moves to help business and thereby create prosperity for all. Once again, as emphasized in a previous lecture, there is no return to a 19th century laissez-faire attitude. The government will also help businesses to find new overseas markets during this time period to keep the prosperity going and to expand it globally as a way to preserve international peace. That is anything but isolationist. So let's take a look now at government actions, both domestically and overseas, during this era. The 1920s will witness a return to Republican dominance in national politics as the majority party. The Republicans had been the majority party really since William McKinley's election and the realignment of 1896, the only time they did not hold the White House and control the government was during the presidency of Woodrow Wilson. And Wilson, you will remember, won the first time with a minority of the vote because the Republican Party split. What you now get is a return to Republican majority rule, overseen by three presidents who are usually considered highly conservative. Presidents whose administrations supposedly harken back to the late 19th century. Warren G. Harding, Calvin Coolidge, and Herbert Hoover. Each of these administrations also retains a stigma in historical memory. Harding's for corruption, Coolidge's for not heeding warning signs about the state of the economy, and Hoover's for failure to act in the ensuing economic collapse. But in reality, these reputations are not fully deserved. 
and they distort the records of all three presidents. All three administrations believed in using the World War I experiences in government business cooperation to foster even greater cooperation. That cooperation was admittedly to be an alternative to regulation. But it is still a very, very active role for the government. The aims, greater growth, greater efficiency, greater prosperity, and international peace on the grounds that a prosperous world will be a peaceful world, and a peaceful world enables you to have more prosperity. Positive government action in this regard will include not only lower taxes, but also the very high Fordney-McCumber tariff, and a Federal Highway Act and Bureau of Public Roads to provide federal aid for state roads and a plan for a national highway system now that you have all of these automobiles. Government itself will become more efficient during this time via the creation of the Budget and Accounting Act that established a director of the budget. That enabled the executive branch of government to plan and produce for the first time a unified, coherent national budget. Progressivism is not dead either. To cite but a few of the many examples of progressivism in the 1920s, 34 states out of 48 will pass workmen's compensation laws during this time period. In the 1924 presidential election, a newly reformed progressive third party nominated Wisconsin progressive Robert La Follette for president. La Follette obtained 16% of the popular vote. Women will obtain the right to vote nationally, which had been a progressive reform movement. And they did so with the passage of the 19th Amendment in 1920. Also on a national level, immigration restriction that had been championed by the progressives achieved its most notable success with the passage in 1924 of the National Origins Act. That act totally excluded Asians and established very severe quotas on immigration that would henceforth be allowed from Eastern and Southern Europe. Approximately 2% of the number of such people in the United States in 1890, which was before the great wave from Eastern and Southern Europe really peaked. This law would essentially stay in effect until the 1960s. Now, one might argue that progressivism also continued via the related and continued, if not expanded, popularity of scientific racism, which in turn fed a continuation and expansion of the religious and racial intolerance that we had seen in the last years of the progressive era. This is the decade of Henry Ford's previously quoted anti-Semitic tracts. It is also the decade of the rise of a new Ku Klux Klan, which had somewhere between three and five million members, many of them now in the north as well as the south. This new expanded Klan did not limit itself to attacks on blacks. It now also attacked Catholics, Jews, and immigrants. 
40,000 Klansmen will march in Washington in 1925. Now, the continued great migration of southern blacks into northern cities would feed this emergence of the Klan as a northern as well as a southern phenomenon. This is also the decade of continued government assaults on the American left, as well as leftist immigrants known from the progressive era as the first great Red Scare. It had begun during World War I. It had continued immediately after the war with the notorious Palmer Raids of 1919 to 1920, engineered by President Wilson's Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer. During those raids, more than 4,000 people were illegally arrested and detained for their political beliefs. 249 alien radicals were deported. Now, this also continued throughout the 1920s and was symbolized for many by the arrest, conviction, and execution in 1927 in Massachusetts of Nicola Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti, two Italian immigrants and anarchists. They were charged with armed robbery and murder. Their numerous supporters, both in the United States and around the world, argued that they had not committed the crimes and that their guilt had not been proven at their trial. Instead, these people argued, Sacco and Vanzetti had been found guilty and had been executed for what they were, immigrants and radicals. The 20s is also the decade of prohibition, another progressive reform. The 18th Amendment to the Constitution passed in 1919, and along with the Volstead Act, which defined anything as alcoholic that had one half of 1% alcohol, it went into effect in the following year, with such well-known consequences as the rise of bootleg whiskey and organized crime. But contrary to popular belief, prohibition did lead to a significant decrease in alcohol consumption, went down to one-third of the pre-World War I level and the lowest level of, in American history. It also led to the total demise of the saloon, which had been a key target of the temperance movement. And interestingly, organized crime became a way for many in the new immigrant groups from Southern and Eastern Europe to rise out of poverty and for their families to enter the middle class and fulfill the American dream, as well as attain respectability and acceptance. Organized crime may have also been, in one sense, the only truly laissez-faire business at the time. The government did nothing to aid it. And some would argue the government did close to nothing to suppress it. One other aspect of progressivism in the 1920s needs to be mentioned here. Herbert Hoover, who was a key figure before his own presidency as Harding's and Coolidge's Secretary of Commerce, had been a famous Wilsonian progressive. And as we will see, in many ways he remained one. He was also one of the great heroes of this era, an engineer and an efficiency expert who in World War I had used his expertise for the humanitarian goal of feeding the starving populations of Belgium and other European countries. In the 1920s, Hoover will actively use his Commerce Department 
to help American corporations find new and expanded overseas markets. Along with the State Department, the Commerce Department will also promote overseas investment. One of the most notable such investments, and that's actually a lot more than an investment, was the Dawes Plan. In the Dawes Plan, the United States loaned private money to Germany and negotiated a linked reparations repayment schedule between Germany, France, and Britain. That ended a major European crisis over reparations payments. Now that, I would argue, is hardly isolationism, despite the continued American refusal to join the League of Nations. Similarly, the State Department under Secretaries of State Charles Evans Hughes and Frank B. Kellogg will be quite active in promoting and signing a series of treaties to help preserve the peace and prosperity of the era. You have naval arms limitation agreements, such as the 1921-22 Washington Treaties, which included the four, five, and nine power packs, limiting the size of the world's navies and maintaining both the status quo in the Pacific and the open door for China. You also have the 1930 London Naval Arms Limitation Treaty and the 1928 Kellogg-Briand Pact, outlawing war as an instrument of national policy. Again, all of this is hardly isolationism. The era will also witness major clashes between the newly emerging national urban culture and the traditional American rural culture. In its 1924 National Convention, for example, the Democratic Party will split so badly between its northern urban and southern rural wings over who to nominate and over such issues as prohibition and the Ku Klux Klan as to virtually commit political suicide. Condemnation of the Klan failed to pass by one vote. 543 to 542. The conflict over the presidential candidate pitted New York's wet governor, Al Smith, a Catholic who opposed prohibition, against the dry Protestant, William McAdoo, who supported prohibition. It left the convention deadlocked for an incredible 102 ballots before a lackluster compromise candidate, New York Corporation lawyer John W. Davis, could be nominated on the 103rd ballot. Equally, if not more telling, is the famous Scopes trial in Dayton, Tennessee, where the state had outlawed the teaching of evolution. High school biology teacher John Scopes challenged the law and was arrested. He would be convicted at the trial. But that was really not the main attraction. This was the first trial ever broadcast over radio. And the center of attention was the duel that emerged between William Jennings Bryan, who stood forth as an expert Bible witness for the prosecution, and the prominent lawyer for the defense, Clarence Darrow. It was a duel in which Darrow humiliated Bryan and his cause by mocking Bryan's literal interpretation of creation, pointing out that if Joshua had indeed made the sun stand still, the earth would have turned into a molten mess. He also forced Brian to modify his literal interpretation by admitting that creation might have lasted millions of years rather than six days. But at least as telling as all of that 
was a rural urban exchange that took place during Darrow's interrogation of Brian, when the courtroom audience applauded Brian after he had made a statement. Darrow acidly commented, great applause from the bleachers. From those you call the yokels, Brian mockingly shot back. That is the ignorance of Tennessee, the bigotry. Those are the people who you insult. You insult, Darrow responded, every man of science and learning in the world because he does not believe in your fool religion. The jury found Scopes guilty in less than 10 minutes, but his cause had won. Brian was humiliated, and he died very soon after the trial. Now, historians recognize the 1920s is much, are much more complex and multifaceted than the traditional popular image of the era. It was conservative in many ways. The elimination of numerous taxes on the wealthy, uh, the slashing of the federal budget. But in many ways, we see in the 1920s both a continuation of portions of the progressive era and the birth of the modern American economy and urban culture. We also see a very active foreign policy, despite the refusal to join the League of Nations, an active foreign policy befitting a nation with the largest economy in the world. We also see the continued development of a government-business partnership, both domestically and in foreign affairs, designed to achieve the twin goals of peace and prosperity. And in most areas, the result is an incredibly peaceful and prosperous United States and world. Indeed, this is probably the most peaceful and prosperous decade of the 20th century and the one in which the United States was more secure than in any other decade of the 20th century, despite the very low budgets and size for the armed forces. But all of this depended upon the continued health and growth of the American economy, a health and growth that collapsed in late 1929. And that collapse would transform the United States and the world. Lecture 17, Hoover and the Great Depression Revisited. Herbert Hoover is generally considered an abject failure as president for his refusal to deal aggressively with the Great Depression. In the process, he is often classed with his two Republican predecessors as a conservative who did not believe that government should play a major role in the economy or in anything else for that matter. As Franklin D. Roosevelt famously asserted in the 1936 presidential campaign, for 12 years the nation had been afflicted with, quote, Hear nothing, see nothing, do nothing government. The nation looked to government, but government looked away. The Republican philosophy, Roosevelt sarcastically continued, was that government was best, which was, quote, most indifferent. Yet, Hoover had previously been known as a major and highly successful progressive figure, the forgotten progressive, in the words of one of his biographers. Furthermore, he did more than any previous president to combat serious economic depression. 
And in doing so, he began many programs that would later be associated with Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal. Roosevelt, the man who defeated him in the 1932 election and whose programs Hoover would sharply attack. This lecture will take another look at Hoover and try to explain the reasons for this discrepancy between his record and his reputation. Well, who was Herbert Hoover? He was a mining engineer who developed an extraordinary reputation as an effective and efficient administrator and humanitarian. During World War I, he organized Belgian food relief. He then served as head of the U.S. Food Administration once the United States entered the war. After the war, he accompanied Woodrow Wilson to Paris and organized major food relief programs for the peoples of Central and Eastern Europe. Throughout this time, he was considered a progressive with great political possibilities. Both parties courted him. He chose to be a Republican. He had been a Theodore Roosevelt Bull Moose supporter in 1912 before he joined the Wilson administration. And he was, as previously noted, a major figure in the administrations of Harding and Coolidge as Secretary of Commerce. Now, again, as noted in the last lecture, the 20s were in some ways a continuation rather than a rejection of progressivism. Hoover, as Commerce Secretary, became one of the great symbols of this. In many ways, the perfect symbol of the organizational revolution of the 1920s. He was the personification of the new managers, specialists, and social engineers who worshipped efficiency and business government cooperation, the men who were reorganizing American society. He also was optimistically predicting continued and never-ending prosperity. Indeed, in the 1928 election, Hoover famously stated that, quote, we in America today are nearer to the final triumph over poverty than ever before in the history of any land. The poorhouse is vanishing from among us. We have not yet reached the goal, but given the chance to go forward with the policies of the last eight years, we shall very soon, with the help of God, be in sight of the day when poverty will be banished from this nation. Hoover easily defeated his Democratic opponent, Al Smith of New York, in the 1928 election. But his prediction about ending poverty, of course, proved to be anything but accurate, as the stock market, the American economy, and the global economy all collapsed during his presidency. Now, the causes of this financial and economic collapse are numerous, complex, and still being debated. But in summary, the major factors were as follows. First, as numerous historians have noted, a mass production society requires mass consumption. And while the United States had become a consumer society, its consumption was not adequate. This was true in both agriculture and industry, and it had been for many years. Again, as noted in the last lecture, agriculture was depressed throughout the 1920s. So were the coal and textile industries. And increased industrial mechanization had already led to serious unemployment. Now, whether you define the issue as overproduction or underconsumption, the result was a very serious economic problem. Now, one major reason was maldistribution of wealth. The great prosperity of the 1920s was not shared by all. Indeed, 
Anywhere from 40 to 60% of the population live below the marginal subsistence level than $2,000 a year. That translated into very limited purchasing power. Compounding this problem was an unsound corporate structure in which 200 out of 400,000 corporations owned 43% of the national wealth. That led to price rigidity despite lack of consumer purchasing power and a pyramid structure that could collapse entirely via a chain reaction. The banking structure was equally unsound. It had been since the days of Andrew Jackson, with thousands of local unsound and unregulated banks. What about the Federal Reserve System? Well, it was still in its infancy. It had only been established in 1914. It was still underutilized. And it had little or no control at this time over many banks. It did nothing to prevent an eventual collapse. In fact, as we will see, its 1927 policies played a role in that collapse. And when it did finally act, the Fed pursued policies that, in retrospect, were the reverse of the policies it should have pursued. It thus made the problems worse. All of this was aggravated by unprecedented speculation in the stock market because of the lack of investment opportunities and because of the belief that the market would always go up. The international economic and financial structure was equally unstable due to World War I and its aftermath. Both the United States and other industrialized nations had responded in the 1920s with higher tariffs. But higher tariffs, in turn, led to a decline in international trade. That led to more economic strains, the withdrawal of foreign funds from the United States, and eventually the withdrawal of U.S. funds from overseas. Installment buying and the creation of artificial demand via advertising only masked these problems. And in doing so, and thereby postponing the day of reckoning, installment buying and advertising made the situation worse. While the economy was thus already in serious trouble by 1928, the stock market continued to boom. Obvious question, why? Well, with consumer demand saturated, corporate profits from the 1920s went into stock speculation rather than more plant and machinery. Since there was less corporate demand for loans for expansion, banks loaned more money for stock purchases. Now, much of this went not into direct stock purchases, but into call loans that stockbrokers made to customers at a high interest rate so as to enable people to buy stock on margin, to put down only a percentage of the money that was needed to purchase the stock. If you stop and think about it, it's actually a form of installment buying as applied to the stock market. Corporations did this too, and you only needed anywhere from 10 to 50% down in this system. Now, people with money, but already saturated with consumer goods, and people without money who wanted to get in on the action, can do so via this easy credit system. And the stock can then that you purchase on margin can then be used as collateral for more loans for more margin purchases on the market. For example, you could start off with $100, buy stock that cost $1,000. As that stock went up, sell it and use the proceeds to just keep on building this way. 
The Federal Reserve made matters worse by lowering the rediscount rate at which banks could borrow in 1927. With easy credit, the banks borrowed from the Fed at the 3.5% interest rate, but then relent the money they had borrowed to the coal market for a 10% interest rate or higher. This entire boom had utterly no economic foundation on which to rest. It was a speculative mania, a bubble fueled by the belief that the market would go up forever. Previous shocks were dismissed since they had been temporary. As the historian David Kennedy has noted, quote, mere money was not at the root of the evil soon to befall Wall Street. Men were, men and women whose lust for the fast buck had loosed all restraints of financial prudence or even common sense. Full panic hit during the last week of October, first Black Thursday and then the incredible October 29th. Stocks would lose one-third of their value in three months. Indeed, between September 3rd and November 13th, 1929, GE stock fell from approximately 396 to 168, General Motors from 72 and three quarters to 36, Montgomery Ward from nearly 138 to less than 50, Union Carbide from nearly 139 to 59, and U.S. Steel from nearly 262 to 150. Westinghouse fell from nearly 289 to less than 103, and Woolworth from about 100 to less than 53. Now, this did not cause the Depression. In effect, the Depression had previously begun, but it did make things substantially worse. How? The incredible loss of money wiped out purchasing power. The loss of stock money also led to bank failures, and a bank failure wipes out the savings of the people who had put their money into the bank and thus hurts purchasing power even more. There was, at this point, no Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. If your bank went under, that was the end of your money. Now, all of this forced industry to cut back on production, which meant layoffs and lower wages and thus even less purchasing power for the nation as a whole. In addition, because of the bank failures, no loans were available, and loans are the needed lubrication for the entire economy to work. The banking system as a whole then began to collapse in late 1930. 600 more banks failed in November and December of that year. The total was 1,352 failed banks by the end of the year. Now, if you had money in a bank that had not failed, the immediate panic reaction is pull your money out. And what occurred were runs on the other banks. Now, banks do not keep all their money on hand. They had to call in their loans and sell their assets in order to meet these runs. That, in turn, drove down the value of other assets and further contracted the money supply and tightened credit. The result, a vicious cycle that fed into other pre-existing problems. As if all of that was not enough, in 1931, the European financial structure began to collapse. This was due to a drying up of American loans, which led to a drying up of German reparations to the World War I allies that had been linked to those loans by the Dawes Plan. In addition, the French pressured 
to stop a German customs union with Austria. And that set off a panic in Vienna that then spread to Germany. Europeans, and the Americans as well, responded with high tariffs and capital export controls to prevent a gold drain. But that froze a large percentage of the world's financial assets and crippled international trade, which went down from $36 billion to $12 billion during the years 1929 to 1932. And that, in turn, led to a new run on U.S. banks and more failures. In 1931, 2,294 failures. That was a record. The Federal Reserve at first did nothing to save the banks. And when it eventually acted, it raised the rediscount rate to stop the outflow of gold, which in retrospect was exactly the opposite of what it should have done once again. It had at first provided easy money when it should have been tight, 1927 to 29. Then it did nothing to save the banks when it should have done something. And then it pursued a tight monetary policy in 1932 when it should have lowered the rediscount rate. You have the perfect storm. Well, what is Hoover's response going to be to this? Financial collapses and economic depressions are nothing new in U.S. history. Previous ones had occurred in 1819, 1837, 1857, 1873, 1893, to name but a, a few. These depressions had been viewed as a normal part of the business cycle and part of the market's self-correcting mechanism via Adam Smith's invisible hand. The traditional response had, of government had been to do nothing and let the market correct itself. Contrary to popular opinion, Hoover did not accept this logic, and he refused to do so for a host of reasons. First, he is one of the world's most famous humanitarians. He would not let Europeans starve during World War I, and he is not about to let Americans starve under his presidency. He is also a famous progressive who does not believe government is powerless and should do nothing. People no longer believe that government can or should do nothing either. And they no longer believe that a depression like this is normal. But what about all that talk that Hoover made in 1928 about wiping out poverty, many Americans ask. Surely he can and should do something. In addition, or connected with this, doing nothing could mean revolution. And indeed, it did mean revolution in many countries, especially Germany, where the Nazis became the largest party because of the Depression. Now, Hoover did come up with a program. It was a program that reflected his values, most notably his belief in the so-called associational society, voluntary groups for rational scientific planning, Government's role, stimulate and encourage such groups, but don't dictate to them. Hoover thus holds a series of conferences with business and labor leaders to reach voluntary agreements to keep production up and wages up. For agriculture, he uses the just-passed Agricultural Marketing Act of 1929, setting up the Federal Farm Board to promote agricultural cooperatives and stabilization corporations that would agree to limit production. There was also some limited ability here to buy surplus. 
Hoover also agreed to a modest public works program to provide jobs. And he supported the Smoot-Hawley tariff, the highest tariff in all of American history, to eliminate external competition for agriculture, to encourage business, and to restore confidence. Hoover will also encourage state and local public works projects via the, his 1932 Emergency Relief and Construction Act, which will provide $2 billion for public works and relief loans to the states. Nor is that the end of it. Hoover also supports voluntary programs to provide loans to endangered financial institutions, with sound banks to provide funds to the banks in trouble. But these programs do not end the Depression. The Depression only gets worse. And with their failure, Hoover in 1932 goes even further in an effort to save a financial structure about to collapse entirely. To deal with frozen assets, the Glass-Steagall Banking Act of 1932, not to be confused with the Glass-Steagall Banking Act under Roosevelt of 1933, the 1932 Act allowed commercial paper to be accepted as collateral for Federal Reserve loans and notes. That also allowed for the release of gold and the expansion of the money supply. With the same goal, the Federal Home Loan Bank Act allowed home mortgage paper to be accepted as security for loans at new home loan banks. The Reconstruction Finance Corporation, modeled on the World War I War Finance Corporation to fund the construction of military plants, provided government funds for emergency loans to banks and large businesses. Congress provided the corporation with $500 million to start with and the authorization to borrow anywhere from one to five billion more. Now this did mark a shift from Hoover's previous insistence on voluntarism to direct government action. Direct government action will be a key component of Franklin Roosevelt's later New Deal measures as well. New Dealer Rexford Tugwell later stated in this regard that most of the New Deal policies were, as he said, extrapolated from programs that Hoover started. Now, all of this is unprecedented. Obvious question, why then does Herbert Hoover get such a bad do-nothing reputation? Well, there are numerous reasons. Partially, it is the result of Democratic campaign propaganda in the 1930s. It is also the result of the fact that later New Deal measures went much further than Hoover and made his efforts appear nearly non-existent in comparison. In this regard, future events will distort our understanding of what Hoover actually did during his presidency. And his own later strident attacks on the New Deal only exacerbated such perceptions. But equally, if not more important, is Hoover's own behavior from 1929 to 1932. First, his public relations turned very bad as a result of his methods. Now, in good times, Hoover had come across as a deeply respected efficiency expert. But now in bad times, he comes across simply as very, very cold. I think it important to realize in this regard that despite being elected president in 1928, Herbert Hoover was not a professional politician. He was an engineer 
and an administrator. He had held no elected office since college. All of his positions had been appointed, not elected. As an engineer and an efficiency expert, he likes to cite statistics. That's fine during prosperity, not during depression. Hoover also consistently utters optimistic statements that are simply at odds with reality. Why does he do so? He believes the system is basically sound and that he needs to restore confidence and maintain faith. But as a result, he seems like a fool lost in his own world. It's important to realize that Hoover is far from alone in a belief that the system is sound. It's a belief shared by numerous businessmen. Henry Ford will comment that the crash is just, quote, a speculator's panic and that the key remains production and business leadership. He'll also tell workers not to depend on employers, but find their own work and cultivate a plot of land. Wonderful advice given the situation. It's also important to realize that Hoover is an ideologue who insists on working within clearly prescribed limits and who has a tremendous fear of what will happen if the government ever begins to dictate policy. He thus sticks at first with a voluntary cooperative approach. And it fails because the system is not sound and the agreements made cannot be kept. Furthermore, some of his actions to restore confidence, such as the smooth Hawley tariff, only make recovery more difficult by shutting down international trade and finance. In addition, and linked to this fear of the consequences of having the government dictate policy, Hoover adamantly refuses to supply federal relief. He labels it a, a dole that will destroy individual initiative and the American system. He thus vetoes the Garner-Wagner relief bill and insists that states must provide relief to prevent federal tyranny. But the states have no funds to do so. Well, Hoover says we can loan you the funds to do so. But that really is not going to do it. And in this refusal to provide federal relief, the great humanitarian comes to be perceived as either inhuman or blind to reality, or perhaps both. And when Hoover's cooperative associational approach fails, he falls back on the World War I model and trickle-down theory, whereby he is willing to loan federal money to banks and big businesses through the Reconstruction Finance Corporation and other units. Combined with his veto of federal relief, he looks like he's willing to save the banks, but not the people from starving. In the words of historian David Kennedy, the great humanitarian, the great engineer, now appears to be the great Scrooge. To make matters worse, Hoover adamantly refuses to go any further than he has to provide federal aid to business. He rejects the so-called SWOPE plan for an operation similar to what would become the New Deal's National Recovery Administration because of his fear of government control. He also says no to corporate requests for cartel agreements. Indeed, he even begins to pursue antitrust prosecutions, which alienates business as well as everyone else. Hoover also follows his innovative 1932 acts with a counterproductive effort to rebalance the budget via tax increases, as well as insistence on remaining on the gold standard and on international currency stabilization. 
And if anything, he becomes more ideologically and personally rigid as a result of being forced into the drastic measures of 1931-1932. That rigidity can be seen in his continued support of prohibition, a key experiment to him in moral values overcoming crass materialism, as well as being a progressive measure and a way to counter the economic costs of drink, but one that has clearly failed by this time. Yet Hoover refuses to admit this. Even more illustrative of his growing rigidity is his reaction to the so-called bonus army. World War I veterans from the American Expeditionary Force, known as the AEF, who organize as the bonus expeditionary force, the BEF, they march on Washington and they camp on Capitol Hill to demand early payment of the bonus granted them in the 1920s. When the Senate refused to agree, most of them accepted the offer of a free railroad ticket home, but 2,000 remained camped at Anacostia Flats. When conflict with the police and condemned buildings then occurred, Hoover, on the recommendation of Secretary of War Patrick Hurley, called out the Army on July 28th. Army Chief of Staff General Douglas MacArthur, with his then aides Dwight Eisenhower and George Patton, then exceeded his orders and attacked the veterans and their families with tanks, tear gas, machine guns, and a thousand troops. As an eyewitness put it, soldiers attacking former soldiers was, quote, like sons attacking fathers. Hoover and Hurley then defended these actions by asserting that the bonus marchers were subversives, an absurd charge and a clear sign of Hoover's frustration and his losing touch with reality. Well, what can we conclude from all of this? First, our understanding of Hoover and his policies has been seriously distorted by a series of factors. These include not only the failure of his programs, but also the propaganda of his political opponents, later government measures that made his efforts appear nearly non-existent, and his own later attacks on those measures. In this regard, future events distorted our perceptions of what Hoover actually did from 1929 to 1933 and who he was. But equally important was Hoover's own behavior, most notably his ideological rigidity, which made him appear cold, heartless, and willing to save the banks and big business, but not the people. Ironically, his past image as a great humanitarian was thus not only shattered, but actually reversed. Furthermore, the shift in the economy from prosperity to depression combined with his training and mentality as an engineer and reputation as an efficiency expert, turned his previously very effective public relations into the exact opposite. And without extensive political experience, this highly intelligent super administrator was not able to adjust and reverse the process. In this regard, all of Hoover's intelligence, training, and experiences were, if anything, counterproductive. He is not alone in having had such an experience as president. Indeed, it's interesting to note in this regard that two of the brightest men elected president in the 20th century had been engineers and both failed as president and were not re-elected. Herbert Hoover 
and Jimmy Carter. Intelligence and ability in areas of engineering and administration, it appears may not translate into success in the political realm. Lecture 18. What did Roosevelt's New Deal really do? During the 1930s, Franklin D. Roosevelt was simultaneously one of the most beloved and one of the most hated presidents in U.S. history. In 1936, Roosevelt received the largest majority vote in the history of presidential politics. And to many, he was one of the greatest presidents in all of American history for his New Deal program to combat the Great Depression, as well as his leadership in World War II. To Roosevelt's numerous critics, however, he was a dangerous hypocrite with dictatorial tendencies whose New Deal program threatened the survival of economic and political liberty in the country. Now, with the advantage of all these years of hindsight, seven decades, it is now safe to say that Roosevelt and the New Deal did not destroy economic or political liberty in the United States. But it is equally true that the New Deal failed to end the Great Depression and that it spawned many of the political and economic problems that we live with today. Yet both of those statements that I just made are only partially true. And each of them, if not qualified, provides a very distorted view of Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal. In this lecture, we will look at what the New Deal attempted to do and what it actually did. And once again, we will see a host of unintended as well as some intended consequences. Now, to do so, we will first look at the crisis Roosevelt faced and briefly go through the major New Deal actions in that crisis. We will then assess Roosevelt's successes and failures, the reasons for those successes and failures, and the long-term consequences of the New Deal. So let us begin with Roosevelt's basic goals and the facts. Roosevelt was elected and then inaugurated amidst the greatest economic crisis in U.S. history. On Inauguration Day, March 4, 1933, the Great Depression had brought the economic and financial life of the country to a virtual standstill. A full 25% of the workforce was unemployed. The New York Times stock index, which had been as high as 452 and then had fallen to 224 by the end of 1929, was now down to 58, with the consumer price index having fallen from 53 to 38. U.S. Steel which had gone from 250,000 employees to 18,000 employees, now had no full-time employees. The gross national product was now down to half its 1929 figure. One-third of all U.S. banks had already failed. And in February 1933, the remainder began to fail. By Inauguration Day, 38 state governors had closed the banks so as to prevent a total financial collapse. Symbolically, the New York Stock Exchange and the Chicago Board of Trade both closed on what was a dark, gloomy Inauguration Day in Washington. 
Now, Roosevelt's first and most important goal was to end this financial crisis, and primarily by psychological means that would restore people's confidence and prevent further runs on the banks. In this, he was very successful, and quite quickly. The process began with his famous inaugural address, in which he insisted that there was nothing to fear but fear itself. The address as a whole stunned a numbed nation and gave it what one biographer labeled, quote, a huge shot of adrenaline. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. But saying there was nothing to fear was utter nonsense. There was plenty to fear. Yet what mattered on March 4th was not the content, but the tone. And the address hit a public nerve. The White House was flooded with mail of unprecedented volume and intensity. 450,000 letters arrived in the first week alone. Now that pace would not continue, but letters to Roosevelt would average four to 7,000 a week. And that would require an expansion of the White House mailroom staff from one to 70. On the day after the inauguration, Sunday, March 5th, Roosevelt used a World War I-era law to shut all banks in the country still open in order to prevent even more runs and a total financial collapse on Monday. But he ingeniously labeled it a, quote, bank holiday and stopped all gold transactions, called Congress into special session, which was to begin on March 9th, and then disappeared with his staff to draft legislation that would be presented to Congress. On March 8th, he held his first press conference. When Congress convened the next day, it was presented with an emergency banking bill, largely written by and for bankers. It would provide for government inspection and assistance to reopen sound banks. It passed the House of Representatives unread in 38 minutes. It received Senate approval and presidential signature within eight hours. Roosevelt then presented and Congress quickly passed a bill to cut federal spending in an effort to balance the budget by cutting veterans' benefits and federal salaries. There was also a bill to allow the sale of and taxing of beer and wine now that the Prohibition Amendment had been repealed. On March 12th, FDR gave the first of his famous fireside chats over the radio. 60 million Americans heard him say the banking system was sound and that the banks would reopen on the following day. The bank holiday, while resulting in many cases in great inconvenience, is affording us the opportunity to supply the currency necessary to meet the situation. On that day, March 13th, the banks opened to lines of people not lined up to withdraw their funds, but to deposit more funds. The immediate financial and psychological crises were over. But beyond ending the immediate crisis, Roosevelt and his advisors sought through their policies to achieve three fundamental goals, the so-called three R's, relief, recovery, and reform. Temporary relief for those suffering the most from the Depression until full recovery occurred, economic recovery in both agriculture and industry, and reform of the economic and financial system so that a collapse like this could never occur again. To do this, 
Roosevelt would propose over the next few weeks 15 major bills, all of which Congress passed in the ensuing six weeks as part of the famous 100 days. These included, just to name a few of the most important and well-known, the Agricultural Adjustment Act, the National Industrial Recovery Act, the Homeowners Loan Act, and bills establishing the Civilian Conservation Corps, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, and the Tennessee Valley Authority. Then in 1935-36, Roosevelt and Congress went much further. The most famous of these so-called Second New Deal bills included a massive public works program that put millions of unemployed to work, and with this, the establishment of the Works Progress Administration under Harry Hopkins that would wind up employing a total of 8 million, about one-third of the jobless, for a total cost of about $11 billion. You also had the Social Security Act providing national old age insurance, as well as care of the destitute and dependent, and the beginnings of unemployment insurance. You had the Wagner Labor Relations Act that established the National Labor Relations Board, and for the first time, threw the weight of government behind the right of labor to collective bargaining. You had higher taxes on the wealthy, rural electrification, and more federal control over the banking system and public utilities. Now, these bills from both the first and second New Deals were partially, but only partially successful in achieving the goals of relief, recovery, and reform. In the first New Deal, the downward spiral was halted and recovery started. Confidence was restored, starvation avoided, hope sustained, suffering cushioned. There was also a modest recovery by 1934, but then recovery stalled, and it stalled far short of the economic figures of 1929. Now, as a result of the second New Deal measures, additional and major recovery did take place. Indeed, the economy was nearing its 1929 levels by the end of Roosevelt's first term. But most of the gains were then wiped out by a major recession in 1937-1938. The New Deal's relief bills did succeed in helping many of those suffering the most, but the bills were too modest to help all. And New Deal recovery policies simultaneously made the economic situation worse for many of these people. I'll talk a bit more about that later. Now, while the moves to reform the system did prevent another collapse, that is, until those moves were partially dismantled in the 1980s and 1990s, they did not prevent the major recession of 1937-1938. To understand fully why the New Deal was only partially successful, we must first take a closer look at Roosevelt himself and his advisors to see how they operated and what they believed. Franklin Roosevelt may well have been the greatest politician this country has ever produced. But for that very reason, he is extremely difficult to figure out. One can never take his public or even his private statements at face value. He was an evasive charmer, a master manipulator of people with a front of jovial simple-mindedness masking a very complex and secretive interior. He reserved his innermost thoughts to himself. Furthermore, ideas and consistency were not very important to him. He was not a deep thinker. Oliver Wendell Holmes once said he had a second-class intellect, 
but a first-class temperament. He also had a very short attention span, but a mind like flypaper, as one historian put it. Another has compared his mind to, quote, a spacious, cluttered warehouse, a teeming curiosity shop continuously restocked with randomly acquired intellectual oddments. Roosevelt was willing to experiment and see what worked, but his experimentation had severe limits. He did not exist in an intellectual vacuum, and he was part of his era and his class. Consequently, he had no socialist or Marxian ideas. Nationalization of the banks in 1933, for example, was never considered an option. And he was actually a very conservative individual who wanted to preserve the essentials of the American system and believed the only way to do so was to change that system. Roosevelt's expertise was not with ideas, but in getting ideas accepted by Congress and the American people. In this, he was a political genius and a media genius. But for that very reason, as well as the others just cited, Roosevelt's program often made more political sense than it made economic sense. To make matters worse, his advisors, known as the Brain Trust, disagreed sharply in what they recommended to him. All of them had roots in the progressive era and believed the government had a responsibility to ensure some sort of security for all. But there was no unity beyond that regarding what specific policies needed to be enacted. One group, the old Theodore Roosevelt nationalists, accepted large corporations and the end of the free and open market. They wanted to establish some form of business government cooperation that would both curb big business and restore it, as well as agriculture. But within that group, there was no agreement as to what or how to do this. You also had the old Woodrow Wilson New Freedomites, who wanted to discipline the financiers and break up big business to restore competition. Others had ideas that came from the populists, such as a fear and hatred of Wall Street and a focus on helping and regulating agriculture. And urban social reformers, influenced by the old social gospel movement, favored aid to the aged and poor. Others with World War I experience would, fo would focus on central direction of the economy. Now, contrary to popular mythology, most of these reformers also wanted a balanced budget, and they did not believe in massive deficit spending to create purchasing power, something that was at that time being recommended by the British economist John Maynard Keynes. Further complicating the situation was Roosevelt's style of government, what we would today call the theory of competitive administration. Roosevelt staffed offices with people having opposing ideas, often within the same department. Now, that can lead to great creativity when there's agreement on fundamentals. But as we've just seen, there was not agreement on fundamentals, and Roosevelt did not provide it. The result was often chaos and immobility. The result of all of this would be a hodgepodge of legislation stemming from the ideas of all the different groups. All were concerned with the three R's of relief, recovery, and reform, but with different emphases at different times. As the New Dealer Raymond Moley said, thinking there was a master plan was equal to believing that, quote, the accumulation of stuffed snakes, baseball pictures, school flags, old tennis shoes, carpenter's tools, geometry books, 
and chemistry sets in a boy's bedroom could have been put there by an interior decorator. Now, Roosevelt at first focused on restoring confidence and recovery. And while the emphasis was on recovery, there was something for everyone in the first 15 bills of the first 100 days. In the National Industrial Recovery Act, for example, there was one section for collective bargaining for labor, and other section establishing work relief, even though the primary purpose of the bill was the recovery of business. But in general, and again contrary to mythology, the emphasis in the first New Deal was very pro-big business, as per the New Nationalists and those with World War I ideas. Government planning in conjunction with business. This is best seen in the National Recovery Administration, which actually encouraged price fixing and the formation of cartels. But the ensuing recovery was very limited. Why? Two major reasons were the competing nature of the spending programs. And along with that, continued fiscal conservatism by the president, his advisors, and Congress. The goal remained a balanced budget as seen in the New Deal's early legislation to cut federal spending and increase revenues via a tax on beer and wine. And contrary to the myths, there was no great increase in government and deficit spending at this time. Furthermore, the relief measures were too limited to generate full employment and thus full recovery. And they were often at cross-purposes with the recovery measures. The Agricultural Adjustment Act, for example, focused on the destruction of crops to raise prices, but that had a very negative effect on tenant farmers. Now, the failures in the first New Deal made Roosevelt more willing to experiment with more drastic measures in 1935-36. So did the fact that despite the conservative and pro-business orientation of the first New Deal, businessmen turned against Roosevelt as the immediate crisis receded. And by 1934, there were cries that the New Deal was going communist. Obvious question, why? Businessmen were appalled by the relief measures and the administrative chaos of the New Deal. And perhaps more importantly, they were appalled by what they perceived as a threat to their managerial power and a loss of status to the government that was implicit in such measures as the National Recovery Administration. At the same time, Roosevelt came under attack from the left and from a series of demagogues such as Huey Long of Louisiana, who threatened to challenge his re-election and claimed that he was not doing enough. Roosevelt also faced a growing militancy from farmers, newly unionized industrial workers in the CIO, who had more than tripled in numbers, and congressional Democrats who had increased their numbers in the 1934 election and were pressing for much more than Roosevelt was willing to offer. <laughs> As if all of that was not enough, the Supreme Court in 1935 declared both the National Industrial Recovery Act and the Agricultural Adjustment Act, which were the centerpieces of the first New Deal's recovery legislation, to be unconstitutional. Under the impact of these attacks and threats, Roosevelt swung to the left in 1935 and 1936 and sided with both the anti-big business New Freedomites and the big spenders in the Brain Trust. These Second New Deal measures, particularly the heavy deficit spending, 
4 billion in 1936, and the subsequent employment of millions of workers in work relief projects raised the economy nearly back to its 1929 levels and lowered unemployment to 14%. But as with the first New Deal, these measures were much less radical than they appeared, and they negatively affected many Americans. For example, under Southern pressure, Roosevelt agreed that Social Security would not apply to farm laborers, domestic servants, or those working in establishments with fewer than 10 employees. That left out 9.4 million workers disproportionately black. Furthermore, the new tax bills did not redistribute wealth, and parts of them were a sham and for show. And for every dollar spent on unemployment relief and public works, another dollar was spent subsidizing banks and businesses. Roosevelt also made clear that he was not in favor of long-term relief. He labeled it a narcotic that, quote, induces a spiritual and moral disintegration fundamentally destructive of the national fiber. And never did he call for an egalitarian society. One of his foremost biographers, James McGregor Burns, has consequently labeled him more a British-style classic conservative than a progressive or a liberal. And this is an aristocratic conservatism that focuses on social responsibility, a respect for the limits of human knowledge, and a respect for traditional forms of religious worship, a recognition of the importance of personal property, and perhaps most importantly, an understanding that stability is not the equivalent of immobility. Furthermore, and again contrary to mythology, Roosevelt never accepted Keynesian concepts of deficit spending. He saw any deficit spending as a very temporary expedient, and he remained firmly committed to the balanced budget. Consequently, after his re-election in 1936, he concluded incorrectly that the Depression was over and it was time to rebalance the budget by cutting government spending, particularly deep cuts in the Works Progress Administration and the Public Works Administration's work relief programs. At the same time, the new Social Security tax actually removed another $2 billion of potential spending money. Benefits would not begin until 1940. And the Federal Reserve, fearing inflation, contracted the money supply by increasing reserve requirements for member banks. The result of all of this, a major recession in 1937-38 that wiped out many of the gains of the first term. Industrial production dropped 33%, wages 35%, national income 13%, unemployment increased by 4 million. At the same time, Roosevelt's ill-considered attempt to pack the Supreme Court broke his political hold over Congress and led to cries of dictatorship. In effect, it ended the New Deal after one final burst of legislation in 1938. But full recovery was not reached until 1941, and then largely under the impact of World War II. So what then did the New Deal actually do, and what did it not do? It clearly did not end the Great Depression. World War II did. Nor did it establish socialism or even desire to do so. Nor did it accept and institute massive deficit spending. That happened only during World War II. 
There was no major redistribution of wealth, no change in the basics of the American capitalist system. Indeed, in retrospect, it was quite conservative in what it attempted to do. But that is only part of the story. It did not appear conservative at the time, and it had an enormous impact on almost all aspects of American life. The consequences were both positive and negative. And while some were planned, many were totally unplanned, as the historical law of unintended consequences asserted itself once again. First of all, while the New Deal did not end the Great Depression, it did stop the downward spiral and did achieve a great deal of recovery, at least before the recession of 1937-38. As such, it may well have prevented a total collapse of the capitalist economic system and the American democratic political system. Look in this regard at what happened in the rest of the world with the appeal and rise of fascism and communism. And while the New Deal did not accept and institute massive deficit spending as a permanent and viable feature of the budget and the economy, or redistribute wealth, or challenge the basics of capitalism, it did experiment. And in the process, it created a new role for government in people's lives and the modern American government and economy, the so-called welfare state. Now, the welfare state is not socialism. The economy remained in private rather than government hands, with the partial exception of the Tennessee Valley Authority. But the New Deal did establish a new regulatory state to oversee the capitalist economy and prevent another Great Depression. It also established a safety net for individuals within the capitalist system. As Roosevelt stated in this regard, quote, Government has a final responsibility for the well-being of its citizenship. If private cooperative effort fails to provide work for willing hands and relief for the unfortunate, those suffering hardship through no fault of their own have the right to call upon the government for aid, and a government worthy of its name must make fitting response. That marked a fundamental shift in the role of government within this country. Historian David Kennedy sees coherence within the New Deal in this regard, the goal of security, stability. For good reason, Kennedy used one of Roosevelt's famous 1941 Four Freedoms as the title of his prize-winning book, which was a history of the United States from 1929 to 1945. The title, Freedom from Fear. And in that Freedom from Fear, the New Deal created a relatively riskless capitalism that kept it palatable to most Americans in their most difficult hours. The true legacy of the New Deal was thus not recovery, but reform. The New Deal also led to a massive expansion of the federal government, and with it, a massive expansion of the power of the president. Power shifted from Wall Street to Washington, with the president becoming the nation's chief economic engineer. But this had enormous negative as well as positive consequences. Two of the negative results were a hodgepodge economic system without coherency and a growth in executive and federal power that has proven quite dangerous to the constitutional system of checks and balances. And while the New Deal did not redistribute wealth, it clearly brought previously forgotten groups into American politics and cultural life. 
labor, the elderly, the unemployed, and immigrant groups from Eastern and Southern Europe on both symbolic and real levels. The New Deal's pro-union stand also broke with previous government policy and helped to create the largest middle class in American history, as many industrial workers joined the middle class. And the gains for labor were not just financial. Steel mills, which used to have 12-hour shifts seven days a week, shifted to five-day, 40-hour weeks with paid vacations and sabbaticals. The New Deal's impact on agriculture was mixed. The aim to raise agricultural prices by cutting production succeeded to an extent, but this had a terrible impact on sharecroppers and tenant farmers in the South, white as well as black, and it did not succeed in raising prices to the so-called parity level of the World War I years. In addition, New Deal measures as well as the increased mechanization wound up increasing consolidation in agriculture and led to agribusiness. And those who survived this consolidation, became a vested interest group dependent on federal aid. In this regard, and in other ways, the New Deal also created what has been labeled the broker state or interest group state, whereby groups would organize and pressure the government to get their piece of the pie. That in turn could be seen as a continuation of the organizational revolution from the progressive era and the 1920s. But groups that either could not or did not organize, such as migrant workers and tenant farmers, were left out in the cold. African Americans were both helped and hurt by many New Deal measures. Agricultural policies hurt black tenant farmers and led to them being evicted from the land in favor of expanded mechanization. But other New Deal measures, such as support for organized labor, helped those who moved north and organized. Roosevelt refused to support civil rights for blacks or even an anti-lynching bill because he wanted the votes of Southern white legislators for his New Deal. But the integrationist ethos of many New Dealers and the rise of a new generation of black leaders set the foundation for the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s, which then had a ripple effect on other minorities. Women were similarly helped and hurt by the New Deal. On the positive side was their movement into the national political world, symbolized by the appointment of the first female cabinet member, Frances Perkins, as Secretary of Labor, and the incredible political activities of Eleanor Roosevelt, who redefined the role of First Lady. But from our 21st century perspective, the New Deal also reinforced traditional roles and stereotypes of women as illustrated by the assumption in the Social Security Bill that women could not support themselves and the societal belief that any woman in the workforce was taking away a man's job. The New Deal helped to reassert an ethic of social consciousness in the arts, letters, and society in general, and it pioneered in government patronage of the arts. It also firmly established the progressive concept of using experts in government and brought intellectuals back into service but that in turn precluded the intellectuals from fulfilling what some consider to be their proper role as social critics of the existing order. Politically, the New Deal made the Democratic Party the majority party of the country and created the Democratic coalition that would dominate American politics for the next 40 to 50 years. But that coalition held within it seeds of its own destruction, something that had been predicted by Samuel LaBelle as early as 1950. Will, he asked, 
groups that had made it during the New Deal agree to keep the door open for other groups, or will they turn in order to protect what they already have gained? Furthermore, the alienation of business not only led the Democratic Party to rely on labor unions for financial support, but it also may have been a key reason for the limited nature of the economic recovery in the 30s. Keynes had called for deficit spending to prime the pump in conjunction with moves to mollify business. But priming the pump, as well as other New Deal measures, alienated business, which made recovery totally dependent on deficit spending rather than partially dependent. Roosevelt never agreed that this was the case, and he never asked for enough deficit spending to compensate for the alienation of business and the ensuing lack of business confidence. Nor did he ever understand why business hated him. As Eleanor once told him in response to his puzzlement, quote, they are afraid of you. Now, all of these negative consequences should not blind us to all that the New Deal did accomplish. One historian who tried to summarize those accomplishments uh, needed a sentence 24 lines long, 240 words, just to begin the process. Perhaps in a nutshell, the New Deal gave us the American economic and political systems that we still live with and that we still argue about today with all its successes and all of its problems. Lecture 19, World War II, Misconceptions and Myths. World War II remains one of the most popular of all U.S. history subjects. Books and movies about it abound. New ones are constantly coming out. And college courses about the war consistently fill in record time. In our collective memory, it is, to use the titles of two best-selling books, The Good War, fought successfully by The Greatest Generation. Unfortunately, the version of the war existing within this collective memory is filled with misconceptions and myths, probably more misconceptions and myths than those existing for any other single event in U.S. history, save perhaps the Civil War. And those misconceptions and myths have ever since 1945 dominated our view of the world and heavily influenced, often disastrously, our foreign and military policies. This lecture will challenge some of those misconceptions and myths by comparing them to the actual history of the war as we now know it. It will also try to explain why these misconceptions and myths developed and show the long-term and often pernicious effect they have had on American policies since 1945. Let's begin with myths about the origins of the war. The standard approach to the origins of World War II holds that it was caused by power-mad dictators in Germany, Italy, and Japan who illegally seized power against the will of their peoples, sought to conquer the world, and combined into the Axis alliance for that purpose. They were aided in their efforts by the disastrous British and French policy of appeasement, a policy indirectly reinforced by American isolationism in the two decades between World War I and World War II. 
All this appeasement actually did, according to this interpretation, was to whet the appetites of these dictators and allow them to begin the war enormously strengthened by their previous conquests. They came very close to total victory in 1940-41, and they were stopped by belated American recognition of the threat they posed and the ensuing American decision to aid militarily those nations still fighting the Axis, first Great Britain, then China, and the Soviet Union. That, in turn, led the Axis powers to make war on the United States via the Japanese sneak attack on the U.S. fleet at Pearl Harbor, a day, in Roosevelt's words, that would live in infamy. Now, in many popular versions of the war, that attack, although launched by Japan, had actually been masterminded by Nazi Germany, though a minority has argued that it had been masterminded by FDR as a backdoor to war. The historical reality regarding the origins of World War II is quite different on at least seven major points that I'll deal with here. First, it is a misnomer even to think about a single war before December of 1941. In effect, what began in the years 1931 to 1941 were a series of regional and largely unconnected wars in Asia and Europe that became partially fused in late 1941, but only partially. Russia and Japan, for example, remained at peace until August of 1945. Secondly, the dictators who ran the Axis powers did not seize power against the will of their peoples. The Nazis, for example, were the largest party in Germany during the early 1930s, and Adolf Hitler had made crystal clear that if he was elected and made chancellor, he would destroy the Weimar Republic. Furthermore, he, as well as Benito Mussolini in Italy and General Hideki Tojo in Japan, took power with the acquiescence and or connivance of the existing powers that be in each of these three countries. One must understand in this regard the enormous worldwide appeal during the interwar years of the ideology of fascism, an ideology with deep roots in the 19th century romantic movement. Fascism opposed capitalism and communism. It also opposed democracy and individualism. It worshiped war, and it held the true freedom lay in acting as part of a group, not individually, with a single dictatorial leader serving as the incarnation of the group's spirit or Volkgeist in German. Now, this ideology arose and gained enormous popularity during the interwar years as a result of World War I and the Great Depression, which was viewed as the failure of capitalism and democracy. It also had enormous emotional appeal on its own, an appeal that Americans find difficult to comprehend. My students, when I describe this, freedom is not individualism, being part of the group, they look at me as if I'm a bit nuts. What I use as an, an analogy often is to ask them how they feel when they go to a huge rock concert, that surge of energy that comes with all those people around you and the feeling of being part of that mess. And then I show them Lenny Riefenstahl's Triumph of the Will, where you see that mass in uniforms. Third, and again in contrast to the popular version of the war, the historical reality is that despite their common ideology, the Axis powers were united in name only. 
They distrusted each other. They never coordinated their military activities. They never informed each other of their planned moves. Hitler, for example, never told the Japanese about either the Nazi-Soviet pact or his intention to invade Russia in 1941. Consequently, the Japanese, in April of 41, signed a neutrality treaty with the Russians. Mussolini never told Hitler that he intended to invade Greece. The alliance was basically a diplomatic bluff designed to scare potential adversaries into inaction via the threat of having to fight all of them rather than just one. Fourth, the United States was not isolationist during this time period, or as we previously saw, at any other time period during its history. Despite its refusal to join the League, it remained quite active in world affairs throughout the interwar years. Indeed, its economic power and policies had undergirded the entire peace structure of the 1920s and its isolationism in the 1930s, as expressed in the Neutrality Acts, was limited to a belief that entry into World War I had been an avoidable mistake not to be repeated should a second great war erupt in Europe. Fifth, appeasement was not a new policy by any means during the 1930s. Nor was it or is it a dirty word. The British had practiced appeasement vis-a-vis -vis Germany during the 1920s as well as the 1930s, as had the United States. And it is one of the oldest principles and practices in the history of diplomacy. Indeed, it's one of the oldest practices between human beings as well. When was the last time, for example, that you appeased a friend or a family member, or they appeased you? The problem in the 1930s was that Hitler was unappeasable. Successful appeasement is usually based on some shared desires and values, something totally absent when Hitler dealt with the British. Indeed, British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain was not a diplomat or a soldier. He was a businessman before he became a politician who incorrectly believed that Hitler was a businessman too who shared his values. Needless to say, that was not the case. Furthermore, while appeasement did allow Hitler to begin the war enormously strengthened by the previous appeasement, especially at Munich in 1938 regarding Czechoslovakia, it also helped the British. It allowed them to be much better militarily prepared for war in 1939 than they had been at the time of the Munich Conference. They also went to war in 1939 with the full backing of the Commonwealth countries as well as the British public, which they would not have had in 1938. Sixth, the Axis bid for total victory in 1940 and 1941, was halted not by American material aid, but by the continued and successful resistance of the Chinese in Asia and in Europe of first the British and then the Russians. Finally, U.S. material aid to these countries did not lead to the Pearl Harbor attack. Rather, it was American economic sanctions against Japan in 1940-41, combined with Japanese reliance on U.S. oil and steel that was now cut off, plus the opportunities Hitler's European victories created for the Japanese to now obtain these resources in Southeast Asia. That is what led them to decide to conquer the European and American colonies in the area. The attack on Pearl Harbor 
was designed to remove the threat to the flank of their southward movement that was presented by the U.S. fleet, which Roosevelt had moved from its California base to Pearl Harbor as a deterrent against Japanese expansion. A deterrent, however, is also a target. And Hitler had utterly nothing to do with it. Nor did Roosevelt. The backdoor to war thesis relies upon information not available to Roosevelt and his advisors. Proponents of the backdoor to war thesis, for example, say, ah, the United States had broken the Japanese codes. How could they not know the attack was coming? Well, the United States had broken the Japanese diplomatic code, not the highest naval code. The Americans knew war was coming, but they expected the attack to hit the Philippines, not Pearl Harbor, given where the Japanese troop ships were sailing. The Americans did not have a lack of information. They had too much information, what in the intelligence business is known as noise. And how do you separate the intelligence that can help you versus the intelligence that is not relevant? The critics also say, ah, the aircraft carriers were not in Pearl Harbor. The battleships were, and the battleships were dated. But that was not known on December 7, 1941. It was only with Pearl Harbor, followed by Coral Sea and Midway, that it was clear that the aircraft carrier had replaced the battleship. Furthermore, any conspiracy like this would have had to involve the entire cabinet, the Army and Navy Chief of Staff, uh, the Secretaries of War and Navy. It would have also required Roosevelt to believe that Hitler would obey a treaty he had signed for the first time in his life, and indeed that he would go beyond the terms of the Tripartite Pact. The Tripartite Pact had established only a defensive alliance in the event that one of the three powers was attacked by a presently neutral power, meaning the United States. Why Hitler declared war on the United States anyway, when he didn't have to, has puzzled historians ever since. It has led to numerous hypotheses. All that is absolutely clear is that this move, Hitler's declaration of war on the United States, did link the existing regional wars that already existed, though not completely as previously noted. Let's now turn our attention to numerous myths about fighting and winning the war and losing the peace. Our collective memory holds that we were primarily, indeed almost single-handedly responsible for the total military victory over the Axis powers. We provided our allies with critically needed military supplies free of charge via the Lend-Lease program. Simultaneously, we undertook a massive military as well as an economic mobilization that placed over 15 million Americans in uniform and enabled us to equip them and our allies simultaneously. We then deployed our uniform forces around the world. We destroyed the German and Italian armies in major battles in North Africa, Sicily, Italy, and Western Europe. We then destroyed the Japanese army and navy in the Central and Southwest Pacific theaters in such major battles and campaigns as Midway, Guadalcanal, MacArthur's leapfrogging in New Guinea and the Philippines, the Navy's Central Pacific advance, 
and major naval victories over the Japanese Navy in the Philippine Sea and Lady Gulf. Then in 1945, you had Iwo Jima and Okinawa. At the same time, by this interpretation, our air forces destroyed German and Japanese war production and German and Japanese cities, culminating in the atomic bombs that destroyed Hiroshima and Nagasaki and ended the Pacific War. Our collective memory also holds that during the war, we realized that we had made a terrible mistake at the end of World War I by refusing to join the League of Nations. We also realized that we had now been granted a second chance to correct this error and achieve Woodrow Wilson's dream by joining a new international collective security organization, the United Nations. But this time we would not be as naive as Woodrow Wilson. This time there would be no talk of disarmament. Such talk only encouraged power-mad dictators. Instead, we would maintain our military strength. Munich and Pearl Harbor had been our lessons regarding the awful consequences of military unpreparedness as well as appeasement. As President Harry Truman stated in an October 27, 1945 Navy Day speech, this time there would be no full demobilization of the United States Armed Forces. Why? Because, quote, we have learned the bitter lesson that the weakness of this great republic invites men of ill will to shake the very foundations of civilization all over the world. We seek to use our military strength solely to preserve the peace of the world. For we know that this is the only sure way to make our own freedom secure. Franklin D. Roosevelt's great failure, Americans would soon argue, had been his inability to see such a man of ill will, a new Hitler, in his Soviet wartime ally, Joseph Stalin, along with his naive and futile attempt to appease Stalin, most notoriously at the 1945 Yalta Conference, where he supposedly gave away half of the world to the Soviet dictator for worthless promises of free elections in Europe that Stalin quickly broke, Soviet entry into the war against Japan, which was totally unnecessary in light of the atomic bomb, and useless agreement to join what turned out to be the useless UN. The result of such naivete and appeasement was the Cold War. That is the popular version. But what were the realities of fighting the war and losing the peace, as opposed to this collective memory of it? For a start, World War II was not won by the United States alone, but by an allied coalition whose other members contributed at least as much as the United States. While the United States did put 15, more than 15 million Americans into uniform, that constituted only 12% of its population. That is one of the lowest mobilization percentages for any major belligerent in the war. And American forces constituted only 25% of Allied forces during the war. The United States did, however, produce more than 50%, indeed nearly two-thirds of all the war material used by the Allies to defeat the Axis powers. It was able to do this both because of the size of its e enormous economy 
and its protected geographic position behind two large oceans. The United States was the only major belligerent in World War II not invaded or bombed. At least as important as this U.S. contribution to the war was the contribution of Great Britain and the Commonwealth countries. They played a major role in every victory claimed by the Americans in the North African, Mediterranean, and European theaters, including Normandy, where they took and held three of the five total beaches. Chafe, Eisenhower's headquarters, stands for Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Forces, not Supreme Headquarters American Expeditionary Forces. Indeed, while the British were and remain tremendously grateful for the American aid they received, it is important to note that the war would have ended in total German victory in the spring or summer of 1940 without the British decision and success in fighting alone. Indeed, in British minds, we traded our weapons for British blood during that time period. The British also found the Americans to be hypocritical and naive. British wartime Foreign Secretary Anthony Eden once said, Soviet policy is amoral. U.S. policy is exaggeratedly moral, at least where non-American interests are concerned. One British Foreign Office official referred in 1944 to U.S. foreign policy as, quote, an unwieldy barge liable to wallow as a menace to navigation without a British pilot. Future British Prime Minister Harold Macmillan told a subordinate in North Africa during the war that, quote, we are Greeks in this new American empire. You will find the Americans, much as the Greeks found the Romans, great, big, vulgar, bustling people, more vigorous than we are, and also more idle, with more unspoiled virtues, but also more corrupt. We must run Allied Force headquarters in Algiers, Macmillan said, as the Greek slaves ran the operations of the Emperor Claudius. As for the Soviets, their contribution to victory and their ensuing casualties dwarfed those of both the United States and Great Britain. U.S. combat deaths in World War II were 291,557. Total deaths were approximately 405,000. Combat deaths, 291,557. The Russians had at least that many dead in the single battle of Stalingrad. Total U.S. and British deaths combined are between eight and 900,000. That compares to anything between 25 and 29 million for the Russians. For every American to die in the war, approximately 65 Russians died. In the process, they inflicted 93% of all German casualties prior to the D-Day invasion in June of 1944. And that invasion had previously been promised to them to relieve the German pressure in 1942 and again in 1943. It was not delivered until 1944, a two-year delay that they considered deliberate and designed to bleed them to death. Even after the Normandy invasion, the Russian contribution to victory far exceeded that of Britain and the United States combined. In their summer of 1944 offensive, 
that destroyed German Army Group Center. The Soviets inflicted 900,000 casualties on the Germans. That figure exceeded by 200,000 the total number of German forces deployed against General Eisenhower at that time. As for Roosevelt's supposed naivete in dealing with Stalin, the Soviet leader did not consider him naive at all. In June of 1944, he commented to the Yugoslav communist leader Milovan Zilas that if you turned your back on him for a minute, Churchill would steal a kopeck out of your coat pocket. But Roosevelt, he only, quote, dips in his hand for bigger coins. More importantly, Yalta was a wartime conference, not a post-war peace conference. Its accords were wartime agreements designed to maintain the alliance until the Axis had been totally defeated and to keep the alliance together in the post-war era so that the Germans could not rise up yet again to start a third world war. The peace conference never took place, however, because of the Cold War, which is why we tend to think of Yalta as a peace conference. In addition, Roosevelt did not give away at Yalta or ever give away to Stalin any territory occupied by U.S. soldiers. Indeed, at Yalta, he struck some very favorable bargains with the Soviet dictator, despite the relative weakness of his military hand. Please realize, Yalta took place in early February of 1945. The Allies were just ending the Battle of the Bulge and really hadn't crossed into Germany yet at all. The Red Army, at the other hand, was within striking distance of Berlin. Despite these facts, Roosevelt obtained large German occupation zones for both the United States and Britain and a zone for France, which Churchill wanted. He paid a modest territorial price in the Far East for still deeply desired Soviet entry into the war against Japan, given the casualties that the U.S. Army and Navy were suffering at that point. As for the atomic bomb, it did not exist at that time. And no one knew if it would ever exist. Furthermore, Stalin agreed to deal with Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist government instead of Mao Zedong's communists in China. Roosevelt also negotiated favorable compromises on the UN veto and general assembly votes. The promised free elections in Poland and the rest of Europe were the best that could be obtained in light of the fact that the Red Army occupied Poland and the rest of Eastern Europe. Was this appeasement or was it hard bargaining and negotiation? And if appeasement, didn't Stalin and Churchill practice it as well as allies usually do? in order to maintain the alliance and achieve their common goal of victory. Now, given these facts about the war, an obvious question arises. Why do we maintain our myths and our misconceptions? The reasons are numerous. First of all, many of these myths and misconceptions reinforce our preconceived ideological notions. Our faith in democratic elections, for example, is directly challenged by the fact that voters made the Nazis the largest party in Germany during the early 1930s. It is much easier to say Hitler seized power than to admit this. Other myths and misconceptions reinforce 
beliefs about ourselves that are in turn misconceptions, such as the belief that we were ever truly isolationist or naive for that matter. The overestimation of the American contribution to victory does reflect traditional ethnocentrism shared by our allies. You go to England, you'll see they won the war. You go to Russia, you will see they won the war. But it also reflected a desire to downplay the critical Soviet contribution to victory. That desire was quite strong during the Cold War that followed World War II. In addition, admitting that victory depended on alliance with a bloody dictator would challenge our view that this was, quote, the good war. In addition to these factors, conspiracy theories such as those about Pearl Harbor feed into what the historian Richard Hofstadter aptly labeled the paranoid style in American politics. They also reflect, as we have seen, an anachronistic projection of contemporary knowledge of events onto policymakers of the past who did not have such knowledge. The ultimates also feed into this paranoid style as well as the anachronistic projection of later military events, i.e. March 1945 to August 1945, onto early February 1945. No one knew in February that the German army in the Ruhr would be encircled in March and that other German forces in the West would crumble in April. Nor did anyone know that an atomic bomb would be successfully tested in July and used in August. In addition, there also appears to be a natural tendency to make and misuse historical analogies to support preconceived notions and plans. In this regard, the myths and misconceptions about World War II have proven very useful in justifying American policies since World War II. Indeed, just about every president since Franklin Roosevelt, with, with the possible exception of Barack Obama, has used the World War II myths in the collective memory to justify his own policies, most notably, but far from exclusively, Truman in Korea, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon, all in Vietnam, Kennedy again in Cuba, and both George Bushes in Iraq. These individuals were not necessarily lying. In all likelihood, they were not lying. Many, if not most, American policymakers believe the myths as much as the public does. But the events cited in Korea, Vietnam, Cuba, Iraq by these presidents had utterly nothing to do with the reality of World War II. And relying on this historical analogy has consistently led us to tragedy. Indeed, those tragedies emphasize the fact that faulty perceptions of history are in some ways more important than what actually happened. For people act on the basis of their perceptions. And when perceptions differ so dramatically from historical reality, they can and do lead to tragedy, as we will see when we turn to the Cold War. Lecture 20. Was the Cold War inevitable?
World War II was followed immediately by the long Soviet-American conflict we know as the Cold War. Indeed, some people argue that it actually began even before World War II ended. Now, given such an interpretation, it is far from surprising that some of the World War II myths discussed in the last lecture feed into a series of myths about the Cold War. For example, belief in the World War II Yalta myths that Roosevelt gave away half of the world to Stalin at the Yalta Conference can logically lead to a belief that the Cold War could have been avoided had Roosevelt not been so naive. But if one does not believe in the Yalta myths, one can reach an opposite conclusion that is equally incorrect, that the Cold War was inevitable. It was not. And in this lecture, we will explore how and why the Cold War took place and lasted for so long. In the process, we will deal with additional myths about this long Soviet-American conflict. Now, historians analyzing the origins of the Cold War usually cite divergent and conflicting histories, interests, ideologies, and personalities. Let's look at each of these briefly. History first. Russia and the United States had always possessed diametrically opposed political systems. Centralized autocratic tyranny for Russia versus decentralized democracy for the United States. Why is an interesting question. Perhaps geography. Russia, with a history of consistently being invaded across the open plains of Eastern Europe, may have needed centralized power to defend itself. The United States, protected by ocean moats, did not need centralized power. Now, despite this difference, the two nations had been friends throughout the late 18th century and most of the 19th century. Why? Because their interests did not collide during this time period and because they shared a common enemy, Great Britain. That was an enemy who sought to check the continental expansion of each of them, Russia in Eurasia, the United States in North America. And both the Russian and the United States governments operated on the basic principle in international relations that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Yet, there were predictions in the 19th century that these two expansionist powers would eventually collide. Secretary of State William Henry Seward wrote in 1861 that, quote, Russia, like the United States, is an improving and expanding empire. Its track is eastward, while that of the United States is westward. The two nations, therefore, never come into rivalry or conflict. Each carries civilization to the new regions it enters, and each finds itself occasionally resisted by states jealous of its prosperity or alarmed by its aggrandizement. Russia and the United States may remain good friends, Seward concluded, until each, having made a circuit of half the globe in opposite directions, they shall meet and greet each other in the region where civilization first began. Even earlier, 25 years earlier, in fact, Alexis de Tocqueville had ended the first book of his famous Democracy in America with the following, quote, There are now two great nations in the world which, starting from different points, seem to be advancing toward the same goals, the Russians and the Anglo-Americans. All other peoples seem to have nearly reached their natural limits and to need nothing but to preserve them. But these two are growing. 
each seems called upon by some secret design of providence one day to hold in its hands the destinies of half the world. Now, Seward's prediction of the friendship ending when the United States and Russia found their expansions colliding became a reality at the end of the 19th century, when their interests did collide in Manchuria. Interestingly, at the same time, the Russian government was cracking down on dissidents, and Americans were becoming more aware of czarist repression and condemning it. Ideology became much more of a factor as a result of the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution, which established the communist government in Russia that claimed its ideology of communism was the wave of the future. This took place at the very moment Woodrow Wilson was restating and expanding the American mission to recreate the world in its own image. The two nations thus had diametrically opposed and universalist ideologies, with each one claiming to negate the validity of the other. Not surprisingly, given that fact, the United States participated in Allied military interventions in Russia in 1918, at least partially designed to overthrow the Bolsheviks. It also refused to recognize the communist government of Russia until 1933. Now, reinforcing the ideological conflict was the mentality of the Soviet leader Joseph Stalin, a bloody tyrant who, many argue, possessed a paranoid personality that saw enemies everywhere and who in the 1930s had murdered all his potential rivals, as well as hundreds of thousands, if not millions of others, through his brutal domestic policies. Yet, None of these differences prevented the two nations from collaborating effectively as allies along with Great Britain during World War II. What had changed by 1945 was the fact that they had succeeded in totally defeating Nazi Germany and Japan. With their common enemies gone, there was nothing to offset their old differing interests and ideologies. A related factor was that Roosevelt had died in April of 1945. His successor, Harry Truman, did not possess Roosevelt's skill at compromise, nor the respect that the Soviet dictator had had for Franklin Roosevelt. Given these facts, some post-war conflict between the two wartime allies was probably inevitable at the end of the war. But conflict however serious, is not the same as 45 years of global hostility and the constant threat of World War III. Indeed, conflict between these two nations had existed since the 1890s and had not led to any Cold War before now. What had changed from previous eras and changed quite dramatically was the world in which these two nations existed. World War II had created a massive and unprecedented global power vacuum. Germany, Italy, Japan, all totally defeated, occupied, no longer major powers. Nor was France a major power, or any of the other nations of Europe that had been conquered and occupied during the war by the Germans. Nor was China, which never really had been a great power during the war, and which was now on the verge of civil war. Nor was Great Britain, who despite the Allied victory, had been massively weakened by the war effort 
and who as a result would soon lose its overseas empire and its ranking as a great power. In effect, only the United States and the Soviet Union remained as great powers, and their power had grown so substantially during the war that they were, in effect, superpowers. And as their differences became obvious after the defeat of the Axis powers, each began to see the other as its major adversary and to view the entire world as a zero-sum game in which a victory for one was a defeat for the other. Each also tended to view the other through the prism of the events they had just lived through, and thus as potentially similar to the Nazi enemy they had just beaten. The historical lessons they took from that World War II experience were never to appease and to negotiate only from positions of military strength. In addition, each viewed its own ensuing actions as defensive reactions to the aggressions of the other, thereby leading to a constant escalation of conflict. Yet, they were also incapable of defeating each other militarily, even before the advent of nuclear weapons. In August of 1944, the Joint Chiefs of Staff had issued a study which pointed out that neither Russia nor the United States could defeat each other, and had pointed out that there would be, after the war, a shift in the global balance of power unprecedented since the time of Rome. Nuclear weapons only reinforced this perceived military stalemate. Now, given all of these factors, it is far from surprising that conflict between the two powers quickly erupted and escalated from 1945 to 1946. First came conflict over the boundaries and government of Poland and the other countries of Eastern Europe that had been occupied by the Red Army. Cries on each side that the other was breaking the Yalta Accords. Then quickly came conflict over policies in occupied Germany, with the Allied Council of Foreign Ministers unable to reach any agreement on a combined policy or on a final peace treaty with Germany. There never was a final peace treaty with Germany. The dropping of an atomic bomb by the United States without informing the Soviets in advance of this weapon heightened Soviet suspicions and fears of the United States. Similarly, the later discovery of communist spies in the wartime atomic bomb project increased American suspicions of the Soviets. And the activities of local communist parties in Europe only heightened American suspicions and fears. Now, these communist parties had gained enormously in power and prestige during the war because of their anti-Nazi resistance activities. But Americans perceived them as stalking horses for the Soviet Union. That was a perception strongly reinforced by the so-called fifth columns of the fascist powers that they had witnessed before World War II in such countries as Spain and Czechoslovakia. And as these local communist parties took power in Eastern Europe behind the Red Army and looked like they could win elections and take power in Western Europe, American fears grew of a Russian red fascist takeover of all of Europe. 
The ideological conflict between the two, which lay dormant during World War II, had reemerged in early 1946 with two major speeches. First, a major February speech by Stalin, in which he revived talk of conflict with the capitalist countries as well as between the capitalist countries. That was soon followed in early March by a major speech by Winston Churchill in Fulton, Missouri, with President Truman sitting on the stage, during which Churchill warned that a, quote, iron curtain was descending across Eastern Europe. From Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. Then a year later, in 1947, when Britain informed the United States that it could no longer afford to support the Greek government against communist guerrillas or Turkey against Soviet pressure, the United States, with the famous Truman Doctrine, replaced the British in both Greece and Turkey and announced a global policy to, quote, support free peoples who are resisting attempted subjugation by armed minorities or by outside pressures. And with the failure of the March-April 1947 Foreign Ministers Conference in Moscow, new Secretary of State George C. Marshall proposed in early June the European Recovery Program that bears his name, the Marshall Plan. Now, the European Recovery Program would require and include the economic rebuilding of Germany, which Stalin feared and opposed. He was invited to join the European Recovery Program, but he interpreted it as designed to disrupt his empire in Eastern Europe. Consequently, he rejected participation, he forced his European satellites to do likewise, and he clamped down in the satellites where there was still a degree of freedom, most notably Hungary in late 1947, and then in early 1948 in Czechoslovakia via a coup. 1948 was the 10th anniversary of the Munich Conference. And what we see here in the United States is the role of historical memory as a major war scare ensued. Then, just four months later, in an effort to halt the rebuilding of the Western zones of Germany and the formation of a West German government, Stalin also instituted a blockade of the Western zones of Berlin, Berlin lay totally within the Soviet occupation zone for Germany as a whole. That led to the Berlin airlift by the United States. It also wound up escalating the formation of a West German government rather than stopping it, and the formation of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization by 1949 with the United States as a member. The first peacetime alliance in American history, unless you want to count the continuation of the War of Independence alliance with France after that war. Now, all of this was part of a new American policy enunciated in 1947 by State Department official George F. Kennan to contain Soviet expansionist tendencies. This policy, Kennan asserted, would lead either to a mellowing of the Soviet system or its total collapse. But containment also led to a major expansion of American power as the United States moved into areas around the Soviet empire. 
and thus Soviet perceptions of American aggressiveness necessitating a Soviet response. This mirror image effect by 1948-49 led the two superpowers to the edge of World War III. But World War III did not occur. Neither side wanted it, and in all likelihood, neither side could win it. Indeed, by 1949, the two superpowers had in effect divided Europe into spheres of influence, spheres which each was willing to go to war to defend. Each side knew that about the other. As a result, and rather ironically, Europe began the longest period of peace in its modern history, a long peace that did not end until the Cold War did four and a half decades later. But if peace had resulted from this division of Europe, why did the Soviet-American conflict not end at this point? Well, one key reason was that by this time it had expanded to the rest of the world because of the global power vacuum that I previously talked about. Indeed, in Asia, it resulted in a hot war instead of just a cold one by 1950. In China, civil war between the Chinese communists under Mao Zedong and the nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek broke out soon after Japanese defeat. And in October of 1949, Mao's forces won and Zhang fled to the island of Formosa. Although his defeat had long been predicted and expected by experts in the State Department, it sent shockwaves through the United States because of the public's long-held perception of China as an American ward. And this loss of China became a highly charged partisan issue that Republicans now used against the incumbent Democrats. The loss of China also took place at the same time as a series of spy cases and Soviet detonation of its first atomic bomb, all of which resulted in an anti-communist hysteria in the United States known today as McCarthyism. Then in early 1950, Mao went to Moscow and signed a treaty of alliance with Stalin. Meanwhile, the peninsula of Korea, previously part of the Japanese Empire, had been divided by Russian and American occupation forces, much as Germany had been divided by occupation forces. Russia and the United States had then each established a rival government, one in the north, one in the south. Now that division may have suited the two superpowers. It did not suit either Korean government. Both of them threatened to unify the peninsula by force. With Stalin's acquiescence, if not his blessing, the North then invaded the South on June 25, 1950. The Truman administration interpreted this as a Soviet move that could not be tolerated. In a telling analogy showing the impact of World War II thinking, Truman asserted that, that it was Nazi Germany's 1936 forcible military occupation of the demilitarized Rhineland all over again. And taking advantage of a Soviet boycott of the United Nations Security Council due to its refusal to replace nationalist China with communist China, the United States obtained UN sanction for a military intervention to halt the North Koreans. Led by General Douglas MacArthur, U.S. and U.N. forces first halted the North Koreans and then routed them via a surprise amphibious landing at the port of Incheon. The administration then decided to take advantage of this victory to unify North and South Korea by force, 
with MacArthur's forces crossing the 38th parallel dividing line and moving north toward the Chinese border on the Yalu River. That led to a massive military intervention by the Chinese communists who viewed this U.S. military movement as a mortal threat. The result was a much expanded war that now threatened to turn into a full-scale global world war. The Truman administration now reverted to its previous aim of liberating only South Korea, and U.S. and U.N. forces fought their way back up the peninsula. When MacArthur refused to accept this policy and pressed for an expanded war with China, he was dismissed with the concurrence of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. As Joint Chiefs Chairman General Omar Bradley put it, to expand this war would be the wrong war at the wrong place at the wrong time and with the wrong enemy. An armistice was signed in 1953. That same year witnessed major changes in leadership on both sides as Dwight Eisenhower became president and Stalin died and was replaced by Nikita Khrushchev. Khrushchev denounced Stalin and called for a more open society. And for a brief moment, there appeared to be the possibility of a thaw in and perhaps an end to the Cold War. But instead, the Cold War intensified and expanded into new areas. Partially, this was because the pace of decolonization increased during the 1950s and 1960s, thereby opening new areas for superpower competition. But equally, if not more important, the patterns of thought and behavior that had already been established could not suddenly be reversed. Indeed, Republicans had come to power condemning the Democrats as being soft on communism and could not now reverse themselves. And the anti-communist hysteria was at its height. Indeed, both American political parties had learned by now that to be, quote, soft on communism was to court defeat and disaster. Meanwhile, in the Soviet Union, Anti-American propaganda continued while Khrushchev halted reforms and used brute force when it became clear, as witnessed in Hungary in 1956, that those reforms could lead to the demise of the Soviet Empire. The Cold War thus continued and expanded across the entire globe, and it became hot again in Vietnam, which will be the subject of the next lecture. But it remained cold in terms of direct Soviet-American military confrontation, with massive numbers of nuclear weapons on each side, creating a balance of terror that maintained the peace, albeit always at the verge of a miscalculated nuclear holocaust. By the late 1960s and early 70s, however, the bipolar world that had come into existence in 1945 no longer existed. Instead, new centers of power had emerged as Europe recovered from World War II and China emerged as a major player. And as China's major split with the Soviet Union became public and more intense, leading to armed border clashes by 1969. Sensing both the limits of American power in Vietnam and the possibilities inherent in the Sino-Soviet split, U.S. President Richard Nixon and his national security advisor, Henry Kissinger, pursued a triangular balance of power approach that led to a major lessening of global tensions. 
as a former hard, cold warrior. Nixon was able to use his reputation to sell this policy of detente to the American people. As the cliché asserted, only Nixon could go to China. And predictions arose that the Cold War might finally be coming to an end. But it did not come to an end. Instead, the Nixon-Kissinger detente ended by the late 1970s, and a new hot war emerged as the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan to prevent the collapse of its puppet government there and a victory by Islamic fundamentalists. Now, in retrospect, this event in Afghanistan and the simultaneous Iranian Islamic revolution constituted the wave and face of the future. And it threatened both superpowers, but they remained locked in their old conflict and did not see this. Instead, both Democrat Jimmy Carter and his Republican successor Ronald Reagan reacted strongly to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and supported the Islamic forces. Reagan also attacked the entire notion of detente, and a new and fierce Cold War that thus began. It is a new and fierce Cold War that we tend to forget because of what happened in the late 1980s. But it was one that nevertheless had many people thinking they were once again on the brink of World War III. The Soviets shot down a South Korean airliner bound from Alaska to Seoul, South Korea. The nuclear arms race accelerated, and some people talked about actually winning a nuclear war. Now, World War III, of course, did not occur, and for two basic reasons. First, the old generation of Soviet leaders died, and a new, young Soviet leader from a younger generation, Mikhail Gorbachev, instituted major reforms in Soviet domestic and foreign policy. Those reforms summarized by the terms glasnost and perestroika. Secondly, rejecting the advice of his hardline advisors, Reagan embraced the reforms and with Gorbachev instituted a new era of Soviet-American cooperation. The Cold War finally did end between 1989 and 1991, when Glasnost and Perestroika led not only to reform and a lessening of Soviet-American tensions, but to the total collapse of first the Soviet Empire in Eastern Europe, and then the Soviet Union itself. Well, what then was the Cold War, and why did it last so long? It was, in one sense, not a war at all, but a state of abnormal bipolarity following World War II that could have, but never did, result in World War III, because neither side thought it could militarily defeat the other. Yet there were numerous bloody regional wars fought within the Cold War, including Korea, Vietnam, Afghanistan, and a series of civil and regional conflicts fought by proxies. Now, as previously stated, conflict may have been inevitable when World War II ended, but the duration and intensity of this conflict was not. That intensity and duration resulted primarily from domestic and ideological factors in each country that, in retrospect, were almost totally at odds with the international realities after 1949, or at the latest after 1953. Without those domestic and ideological factors, the Soviets and the Americans could and should have ended the Cold War 
either with the European stalemate of 1949 or the Korean armistice and death of Stalin by 1953. But ideological and partisan political hysteria prevented that on both sides. So did the fact that thousands of American soldiers had lost their lives to international communism in Korea. After that, no American politician dared act in a way that could lead to accusations that he was soft on communism. Similarly, Khrushchev and his successors halted reforms when it became clear from events in Poland, Hungary, and Czechoslovakia that those reforms could lead to the end of the Soviet empire. They also severely limited their contacts and relations with the United States for fear of the impact on their people. Instead, they continued their propaganda against, quote, American capitalism and imperialism. But ironically, monolithic international communism never really existed. Witness the Russian-Yugoslav split by 1947, the Sino-Soviet split a few years later, and many others. In fact, one could say the real conflict was never about ideology at all, though many thought it was. Rather, what you had here was a global power conflict between Russia and the United States in a uniquely bipolar world that followed World War II. The real threat for the United States in this regard was never communism per se, but Soviet power and its ability to expand into the global power vacuum that existed at the end of the war. The early Cold Warriors clearly recognized this, as well as the limits of American power and the dangers of creating a garrison state in the process of combating the Soviets. Marshall, Kennan, Eisenhower all realized this and warned about it. As Kennan put it, the greatest danger that can befall us in coping with the problem of Soviet communism is that we shall allow ourselves to become like those with whom we are coping. Eisenhower, in 1961, warned Americans of the military-industrial complex. Containment was thus originally designed as a non-military and limited economic policy for Europe. But such limited concepts of containment changed in 1950-51 as the Cold War became global and hot in Korea, leading to the globalization and militarization of containment despite the continued objections and warnings by these individuals and others. And although the Republicans in 1952 attacked containment as defeatist and promised a more aggressive policy of liberation, containment remained the American policy under Eisenhower and then under, then under Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan, and Bush, albeit, as the historian John Gaddis has pointed out, with different strategies and different emphases in each administration. In this regard, and again, contrary to more recent mythology, Ronald Reagan did not win the Cold War or abandon containment. He maintained containment, albeit with different emphases. And if containment did succeed in winning the Cold War, the credit belongs to all administrations from Truman through Reagan and Bush. All of them desired to end the Cold War. None of them proved able to do so until the late 1980s. Was the conflict inevitable? Some Russian-American conflict probably was inevitable after World War II, but not the 45-year global conflict that left hundreds of thousands dead around the world and left the entire planet 
on the brink of World War III and nuclear annihilation. Indeed, as one of my students once wrote in response to an essay question regarding whether an earlier war, 1812, was inevitable, he answered it was not because no event in history is in inevitable, even though it may appear that way in hindsight. Even that economic determinist Karl Marx has asserted that man makes his own history, though often not out of cloth of his own choosing. Lecture 21, The Real Blunders of the Vietnam War. The Vietnam War, aptly labeled by historian George Herring as America's longest war, was also one of the most unsuccessful and internally divisive conflicts in American history. Indeed, the reasons for our failure in that war continue to divide Americans today. Many blame President Johnson and his advisors in particular for attempting to micromanage the war and for placing impossible limits on what the armed forces were allowed to do. In the famous words of actor Sylvester Stallone, as he went back to Vietnam in one of his Rambo movies, do we get to win this time? Others blamed the armed forces themselves for using a counterproductive military strategy. Still others blamed the domestic anti-war movement and or the press. Now, while each of these factors may or may not contain a kernel of truth, none of them, individually or together, deal with the central reasons for the American failure in Vietnam. If anything, they distract attention from those central reasons. The fundamental reasons for the American failure in Vietnam lie in the realm of political failures and faulty perceptions, both of the nature of the conflict and of Vietnam itself. From the beginning of the American involvement in Vietnam, which began not in 1965, a common assumption, but in 1950, if not earlier, right down to North Vietnam's military conquest of South Vietnam and the departure of the last Americans in 1975. Throughout this time period, the United States viewed Vietnam as part of its larger Cold War conflict with the Soviet Union. That was primarily because the insurgency against French colonial rule from 1945 to 1954 and then against the South Vietnamese government was led by Vietnamese communists under Ho Chi Minh. It was also due to the fact that rebuilding France as a bulwark against communist expansion in Europe was a key component of America's Cold War policy of containment. And you do not rebuild French power by supporting a revolt in the French Empire. Consequently, the United States followed a policy of benevolent neutrality toward France in the early stages of its war with Ho, and then active support of the French from 1950 to 1954. Key National Security Council documents at that time defined helping to maintain French control of Indochina as a key part of what Secretary of State Dean Acheson defined in early 1950 as the American defense perimeter in Asia and the Pacific against further communist expansion. The outbreak of the Korean War in June of 1950 strongly reinforced that decision. And consequently, the United States began to support the French in Indochina financially and in terms of military supplies. 
By 1954, it was paying for approximately 70% of the French war effort. But that war effort ended in failure. A failure symbolized by the communist capture of the key French fortress at the Nbn Fou in 1954 and France's decision to sue for peace. Now, the result of this was the Geneva Conference of 1954, the withdrawal of the French and the creation of independent states of Cambodia, Laos and a temporarily divided Vietnam in what had been French Indochina. At that point, the United States shifted its support to the anti-communist entity below the 17th parallel, officially known as the Republic of Vietnam and unofficially as South Vietnam, in an effort to contain the communist victory north of the 17th parallel that was the dividing line between the two Vietnams. All American efforts from that point on were directed at defending South Vietnam militarily against the attempt by both communist guerrillas in the South and the North Vietnamese army to conquer the South. These efforts started under South Vietnamese President Ngo Dinh Diem, and then after his assassination by the South Vietnamese military in 1963 under a series of military governments. The effort was at first limited to economic and military aid along with military advisors. But when that failed, the number of military advisors was increased dramatically under President John Kennedy. It had been 900 under President Eisenhower in early 1961. By the time of Kennedy's death in November 1963, it was up to nearly 17,000. And when that effort failed to halt the communists, President Lyndon Johnson began a sustained bombing campaign against North Vietnam and sent major U.S. military forces into the South. By early 1968, those forces numbered over 500,000, and they had largely Americanized the war. Now, those forces failed to achieve more than a military stalemate. That fact and the damage being done by the war, both domestically and internationally, in terms of America's global Cold War policy and commitments, led Johnson's successor, Richard Nixon, to scale down U.S. military forces and sign a peace accord with the North. Simultaneously, Nixon tried to build up the effectiveness of the South Vietnamese Army, a process known as Vietnamization. This was done at the same time Nixon was creating the policy of detente with the Soviet Union, which led him and his advisors to believe that the Soviets would hold back the communists in Vietnam while he completed this process and the American military withdrawal. The Soviets did not do so. Vietnamization failed, and the North Vietnamese Army was able to conquer the South in 1975. The key problems with the whole American approach to the war were threefold. First, the South Vietnamese government was never a viable entity. Second, the Vietnam War was much more than a Cold War conflict. And third, in some ways it was not a Cold War conflict at all to the Vietnamese fighting in it. The Cold War was but one of two major international events to take place once World War II ended. The other was the decolonization of Asia, Africa, and the Middle East, as nationalist movements in these areas succeeded in throwing out the European colonial powers that had previously ruled them. But those powers had been seriously weakened by World War II. 
Now, many of these nationalist movements had begun long before the 1940s. In Vietnam, they had existed ever since the French had created the colony of Indochina in the 1880s. The French had forcefully suppressed early rebellions against their rule, but not the nationalist sentiments which had always been strong. Indeed, the Vietnamese had previously fought against Chinese imperialism for a thousand years. Now, at the end of World War I, one of these Vietnamese nationalists, then living in Paris, who would later take the name Ho Chi Minh, tried to see President Wilson at the Paris Peace Conference to plead his case for Vietnamese independence. He failed in this effort, at which point he went to Moscow, where the new Bolshevik government was more than willing to support any efforts that would weaken the capitalist European powers, then attempting to overthrow them. Ho, thus, was a communist and a nationalist. A fact Americans would have a difficult time understanding and, and accepting during the Cold War. We still do, for reasons to be discussed later in this lecture. Now, during World War II, the United States had supported decolonization of Indochina with Roosevelt explicit and emphatic in his condemnation of all colonialism and French Indochina, his prime example of the worst aspects of colonialism. After 100 years of French rule in Indochina, he said at one point, the inhabitants were worse off than they were before. And in Indochina, Ho and his Viet Minh organization worked with American agents of the Office of Strategic Services, the World War II predecessor to the CIA, to launch guerrilla attacks against the Japanese, who had seized control from a French puppet government in 1945. Ho and the Americans worked well together. And after the Japanese surrender, Ho announced the independence of Vietnam from France with words taken directly from the 1776 American Declaration of Independence from England. By 1945, however, both Roosevelt and his successor, Harry Truman, were having second thoughts about decolonization. And as the Cold War developed and increased in intensity from 1946 to 1949, so did American support for its European allies with colonial empires. The final blows to any American support for Ho, or even neutrality during his ensuing war with the French, were the 1949 communist victory in China and the 1950 Korean War. From that point onward, the United States was determined to contain communism in Asia. It was also determined to rebuild Japan as its major ally in the area and as a counterweight to communist China. Vietnam was seen as critical to this effort, at least partially because of its geographic proximity to the resource-rich Dutch East Indies, soon to become Indonesia and British Malaya. In an extraordinary irony, the United States was now, in effect, fighting to obtain for Japan the economic component of the greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere that it had fought to deny Japan during World War II. Please note in this regard, that Japanese military movements into French Indochina led to the American freezing of Japanese assets in 1941 that in turn led to Pearl Harbor. Now, as previously noted, American support for the French in the early 1950s failed to change the outcome of this war in Vietnam. The United States did consider 
but eventually rejected a military intervention to save Dien Bien Phu. The um, Army Chief of Staff General Matthew Ridgway was particularly strong in his dissent against this idea. And the French at the 1954 Geneva Conference agreed to recognize Vietnamese independence as well as the independence of Laos and Cambodia. Vietnam itself was temporarily divided at the 17th parallel with French forces to withdraw south of that line and Viet Minh forces north of that line. Unification elections were to be held in two years. The United States refused to sign the Geneva Accords. It did state that it would not disturb them by force, but privately it labeled them a, quote, disaster that would lead to the communization of all of Southeast Asia. President Eisenhower publicly voiced this fear in his famous reference to a row of dominoes falling after the first one had fallen, an analogy that would become known as the domino theory. To prevent this from happening, the United States searched for and found an anti-communist Vietnamese nationalist in GM who was then living in exile in the United States. And the Americans hoped that GM could establish an anti-communist alternative to Ho in the South. In the South at that point was a French puppet government known as the Republic of Vietnam with its headquarters in Saigon. If GM could establish a successful government in the South, it would prevent any further expansion of communism into Southeast Asia. It would also prevent Democrats at home from claiming that Republicans had lost Indochina, much as the Republicans had previously accused the Democrats of having lost China. GM succeeded in wresting control of this South Vietnamese puppet government from Emperor Bao Dai, uh, who had been both a Japanese and a French puppet. And with it, GM obtained temporary control of the area below the 17th parallel. Now, by the Geneva Accords of 1954, that area was to remain separated from the North until unification elections in 1956. Taking advantage of this time period, the United States poured aid into South Vietnam, created the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization to defend the area, and supported GM's refusal to hold elections in 1956. Eisenhower and others noting that had they been held, the North would have won. In effect, the United States had decided not so much to defend South Vietnam as to create it as a non-communist alternative to the North and as part of the global effort to contain communism. Nation building as a major U.S. policy did not begin in the 21st century, but in the mid-20th century. Now, on the surface, South Vietnam appeared to be a brilliant success in nation building. Indeed, it became a showcase of what American aid could do. But beneath the surface, GM's government was always in serious trouble. And that trouble led the United States into deeper and deeper commitments to salvage what it had helped to create. Within a few years, GM had alienated much of the population in the South. He was a centralizer and a Catholic in an area historically decentralized and Buddhist. And as he moved to eliminate his political opponents, they fled to the old Viet Minh cadres. They formed the National Liberation Front and conducted guerrilla warfare against GM. 
By 1959, Ho's communist government in the north, unwilling to accept the cancellation of elections and the permanent division of the country, had decided to support this insurgency with military aid and forces. The new Kennedy administration strongly believed in the doctrine of counterinsurgency as a way to counter communist guerrillas globally. It therefore decided to send in the newly created Special Forces, or Green Berets, as well as other military forces to stop the communists by winning the hearts and minds of the South Vietnamese people. By 1963, that effort had failed miserably. And the United States then sanctioned a military coup that overthrew and assassinated GM. But that only made the situation worse with ensuing military coup after military coup, just adding to the instability of the government and failure in the war against the communists. Indeed, by 1964-65, the communists were about to win. That was one of the two major reasons Kennedy's successor, Lyndon Johnson, decided to escalate the American involvement via the bombing of North Vietnam in retaliation for two supposed attacks on U.S. warships in the Tonkin Gulf. That event we will examine in greater detail in the next lecture. The second major reason for Johnson's escalation was politics. 1964 was a presidential election year, and Johnson wished to neutralize the issue of Vietnam in his campaign against Republican Barry Goldwater. The bombing and the Tonkin Gulf resolution served this latter purpose very well and Johnson swept to a stunning victory over Goldwater in the November 1964 elections. But it had much less of an impact on the Vietnamese communists, who were not scared off by Johnson's actions, and who continued their successful military campaigns. Consequently, Johnson decided in April of 1965 both to launch a sustained bombing campaign against the North, instead of merely retaliatory bombing, and to send combat troops into the South, officially to defend U.S. air bases, but in reality to conduct combat operations against the communists as well. By June of 1965, the armed forces had made clear that they would need hundreds of thousands of troops and a new strategy, search and destroy. Johnson agreed. Once again, both to stop a communist victory and for domestic political reasons. This time, to obtain passage of his great society bills, as well as head off any Republican charge of being soft on communism and losing Vietnam. By 1968, American forces numbered over 500,000. They had succeeded in preventing the communists from winning, but not in defeating them. To do that... It became clear after the communist Tet Offensive of early 1968 would require hundreds of thousands of more troops and placing the United States on a war footing with no end in sight and no guarantee of eventual victory. In addition to misunderstanding the nature of the war, the United States had grossly miscalculated the enemy's will perhaps because it tended to view the enemy in Cold War terms as merely puppets of the Soviet Union, rather than as fierce nationalists. 
To make matters worse, the war was by this time ripping the country apart and severely weakening United States global military containment of the Soviet Union everywhere else. Vietnam by this point contained a very high percentage of American ground, naval, and air forces, including 40% of all U.S. combat-ready divisions, one-half of the U.S. US tactical air power, and one-third of its naval strength, meaning those forces were not available to be used anywhere else in the world. The war was also leading to a severe questioning of American policy by its European allies, with the possibility of losing those allies. It was also leading to increased prestige and influence for the Soviets in the entire Third World, which for obvious reasons viewed the American war effort as neo-colonial rather than anti-communist. The war destroyed the presidency of Lyndon Johnson, who in the spring of 1968 decided not to run for re-election. His successor, Richard Nixon, realized the failure of Johnson's Americanization of the war and the damage it was doing both domestically and internationally. But like his predecessors, and for the same reasons, he would not accept defeat. Instead, he began the process of Vietnamization and the de-escalation of the American military presence in South Vietnam, but combined with an expansion of the air war against the North, to force it to agree to American terms at the Paris peace talks. He also believed that with detente, the Soviets would lessen their military support of the North and apply diplomatic pressure. All of this failed as badly as the efforts of his predecessors. Nixon did obtain with the Paris peace accords a return of American prisoners of war, an armistice in place, and the ability to remove the last U.S. combat forces from Vietnam but no lessening of communist pressure. North Vietnam used the Sino-Soviet split to get aid from both China and Russia. The Soviets, in addition, refused to see detente as including Vietnam. And the South Vietnamese government continued to be weak, corrupt, and totally reliant on American aid and unable to win nationalist support from the population. It thus collapsed with incredible rapidity in the face of a North Vietnamese offensive in 1975. So did the Nixon presidency by this time. Nixon resigned under threat of impeachment and conviction for his role in the Watergate break-in to Democratic National Headquarters during the 1972 election campaign and for the ensuing cover-up. Now, on the surface, this is purely a domestic issue. It has nothing to do with the Vietnam War. But beneath the surface, it had a great deal to do with the Vietnam War. The Watergate break-in and a host of related illegal activities had involved members of the Committee for the Re-Election of the President, with the acronym CREEP, former CIA operatives, and members of a group known as the Plumbers. The Plumbers had been formed to stop leaks of classified information having to do with Nixon's foreign policy in general and Vietnam in particular. Leaks such as Daniel Ellsberg's release of the classified Pentagon Papers on the history of the Vietnam War. Now, while the administration sought to stop future leaks by charging Ellsberg with a crime and prosecuting him in the courts, the plumbers broke the law by breaking into the office of Ellsberg's psychiatrist in an attempt to find incriminating evidence against him. 
This effort soon broadened into a host of illegal operations against the entire anti-Vietnam War movement and eventually against any opposition to Nixon, including the Democratic Party. Thus, the break-in to Democratic headquarters in the Watergate building was part and parcel of a much larger issue. The Watergate break-in was just the tip of the Watergate iceberg. Indirectly, then, the Vietnam War destroyed two presidencies, that of Nixon as well as that of Johnson. The links are not obvious on the surface, but they are definitely connected. And one task of the skeptic is to look for and find such historical connections that may not be apparent. Now, why did the Americans fail? There were, of course, many additional reasons to those analyzed here for the American failure. To name but a few, Johnson's incremental bombing campaign against the North faced a lack of effective targets and totally failed to intimidate the North Vietnamese. It was also based on the very questionable doctrine that strategic bombing could force an enemy to surrender. Furthermore, the Army search and destroy strategy led to massive civilian casualties and destroyed the very society the United States was trying to create. Indeed, some have argued that the United States never really had a clear strategy. Now, many other factors could be listed and analyzed. But the basic problem that underlay all the others was the insistence on viewing the war in Cold War terms rather than Third World nationalist terms. And along with this went the related ignorance of Vietnamese history and culture. That ignorance actually was at least partially the result of the Cold War. For during the McCarthy era in the 1950s, many, if not most, of our few Asian experts had been purged from the State Department for their policies and their prophecies regarding China. That ignorance of Vietnamese history and culture resulted in a subsequent underestimation of both the willingness of Hanoi to face American firepower and suffer massive casualties and the difficulty of creating an effective South Vietnamese government. Furthermore, since Washington viewed Vietnam as part of the global Cold War, it did not, indeed it could not ever make Vietnam its top priority. In effect, every administration put into Vietnam only what was necessary to avoid defeat during its watch, not enough to win. As one high-ranking Defense Department official, Assistant Secretary of Defense John McNaughton, would admit in 1965 a full 70% of the reason for the bombing of the North was to avoid a humiliating defeat. Even the more than 500,000 troops that Johnson sent was not enough. Given Hanoi's ability to send 200,000 soldiers a year into the South and the length and size of the enormous American logistical tail, closer to 2 million soldiers would have been needed. And that was utterly impossible given America's global commitments and priorities. In addition, those troops would have probably been needed for a decade or more, given the Asian as opposed to the Western concept of time. As Chinese Communist leader Chou Enlai supposedly said when asked for his views on the significance of the 18th century French Revolution, it is too soon to say. And Vietnamese nationalists viewed their struggle through the lens of nearly a century of struggle against the French and a thousand years against the Chinese. 
This decision by each administration only to do what was necessary to avoid defeat during his watch was also motivated by domestic factors, most notably a desire not to be charged by your political opponents with being soft on communism or having lost Indochina. Ironically, or perhaps appropriately in light of these facts, the American failure in Vietnam had far more negative domestic consequences than international ones. Contrary to domino theory, it did not lead to the communization of all of Southeast Asia. And the nations in which the communists did triumph soon went to war with each other. Vietnam invading Cambodia, China invading Vietnam, while China and Russia almost went to the verge of total war. Does that sound like monolithic communism? Nor did the American failure in Vietnam seriously affect the global balance of power between the United States and the Soviet Union but it massively affected the United States domestically, ripping the country apart, destroying two presidencies, and ending the bipartisan consensus in foreign affairs that had existed since World War II. It also led for the first time to a shattering of the faith of many Americans in their government and indeed their country. Decades after the Vietnam War and the Cold War ended, we still live with these negative consequences and their aftermath. Ever since the war ended, Americans have either sought to ignore it or else to draw analogies between the Vietnam War and more recent military inter interventions. The problem with such analogies is that one tends to look for events in the past that will support one's pre-existing position on any contemporary issue and to ignore contrary historical analogies, even though they might be more appropriate. There is also a related tendency to look for analogies to events in one's own lifetime only, rather than the distant past. Illustrating both points was the proper analogy in search for historical lessons for the Cold War and Vietnam. Was it the 1930s, as most Americans thought, or were the events and lessons of the long Peloponnesian War between Athens and Sparta 2,500 years earlier more appropriate? In addition to this, every event in history is unique. History does not repeat itself, and every analogy is thus inherently flawed. A colleague of mine, when asked about analogies during the 1980s between El Salvador and Vietnam, said there were none. But how do you compare what occurred in Southeast Asia with what was occurring in Central America? But we apparently insist upon drawing historical analogies anyway. And if we are ignorant of history, we will draw them only from what we have experienced in our own lifetimes. A deep knowledge of history can avoid that. And with it, perhaps, some of the worst pitfalls of historical analogies. And while history does not repeat itself, patterns of human behavior do. For Vietnam, Perhaps the most important lessons are in that realm, in particular, the tragedies of faulty perceptions that result from historical and cultural ignorance. Lecture 22, Myths About American Wars. In the last lecture, we examined some of the major misunderstandings associated with the Vietnam War. But Vietnam is far from the only American war that is misunderstood. 
Indeed, numerous misunderstandings exist about most American wars. So do numerous myths. One major myth concerns our tradition of citizen soldiers to fight our wars, a tradition that began in the colonial era with every able-bodied male colonist supposedly ready to grab his trusty musket off the mantelpiece of his home and go out to successfully defend his community, be it against Indians or the French or the Spanish or during the Revolutionary War against the British. Now, as with most myths, this one contains an element of truth, indeed, much more than simply an element. During the 17th century, colonists had to rely upon themselves for defense, and they thus created in the New World from English tradition the militia system in which every able-bodied adult male in the community was a member and liable for military training on muster days, as well as military service when called up. Militia were heavily involved in the Revolutionary War, and the militia system was enshrined in federal law after the Revolutionary War with the Militia Act of 1792. That remained the basic military legislation for the country until the early 20th century. But in reality, the muster days during the colonial era were more social events than occasions for military training, and the militia proved to be an unreliable as well as an untrained body of soldiers. Their members came and went as they pleased, and their elected or politically appointed officers were anything but competent. There were also numerous exemptions from military service, and the system was in a state of serious decay, if not outright collapse, by the time of the Revolutionary War. Now, the war did witness a major revival of the militia system, but its members, for the most part, remained unreliable and unable to stand up to British regulars especially a British bayonet charge. Washington consequently placed little faith in the militia and instead focused during the war on the creation and the rigorous training of his Continental Army to fight the British regulars. Militia did play a crucial role in numerous battles and in winning the war, but only when properly led and primarily in conjunction with the Continental Army. Had Washington been able to have his way, little reliance would have been placed on militia after the war. But realizing that would be politically impossible, as well as ideologically and practically impossible, Washington called for a system whereby the central government would control the militia and impose uniformity on it in terms of arms, organization, and training. But that proved to be equally impossible. Consequently, a dual defense system emerged under the Constitution. It consisted of a small professional army and the state militia, with authority over state militia split between the national and state governments. But with the passage of the Militia Act of 1792, what that actually translated into was no centralized control and no uniformity. All males aged 18 to 45 were required by this act to enroll in the militia, but there was no federal control over training, arms, or officer selection. Primary reliance was thus placed not on the militia, but on a small professional army 
augmented by volunteers in times of war, as well as a draft during the Civil War, and on special elite volunteer militia units that had begun to form in the colonial era. These gradually evolved during the late 19th century into the present-day National Guard. Now, militia units were used during the 19th century, usually with disappointing results. They did very poorly during the War of 1812, and their lawless behavior during the war with Mexico was so outrageous that the Mexicans labeled them, quote, bandits vomited from hell. Regular officers concurred, and there was little love lost between militia and the regular army. Indeed, regular army reformers consistently called for either an end to the militia system or strong federal control over it. The National Guard did come under greater federal control during the 20th century, but during the two world wars and the Cold War, primary reliance for manpower was placed upon a national draft. A system of universal military training was proposed, but it never passed. Consequently, we retain today the dual system of a regular army and elite volunteer militia units. But that is not the citizen-soldier concept of universal military obligation and service. That, as well as the belief that untrained or poorly trained citizens can defeat regulars, is part of our national mythology. Another major myth is that we and our leaders only go to war for defensive reasons and when forced by aggressors to do so. In this regard, many view the decision by President George W. Bush to go to war against Iraq in 2003 as an anomaly, a break from past American history and traditions. It is not. The fact that we went to war in Iraq on the basis of faulty or manipulated intelligence regarding weapons of mass destruction is also viewed incorrectly as an anomaly in American history. In reality, numerous past presidents have presented incorrect information, sometimes knowingly, sometimes unknowingly, in order to obtain congressional and public approval of war. Similarly incorrect is the belief that we Americans always, quote, win the war but lose the peace because of our political naivete. In point of fact, the reverse has often been the case. The rest of this lecture will attempt to dispel such myths by examining presidential behavior prior to America's major wars, as well as the military history of those wars and the political results. Let's look first at the issue of defensive wars versus wars by choice. Historically, many if not most of our wars have been wars by choice. In point of fact, only World War I and World War II were wars in which we were actually forced to declare war by the previous actions of our enemies. In the 19th century, both the 1846-48 war with Mexico and the 1898 war with Spain were wars by choice. The first to acquire California and New Mexico, as well as a favorable boundary for Texas, and the second to force the Spanish out of Cuba. Similarly, in the 20th century, we chose to go to war in Korea and in Vietnam in the 1960s as part of the Cold War. In a somewhat gray area is the War of 1812, as President Madison and the Congress went to war in desperation 
because of the failure of their previous measures of economic coercion designed to force the British to cease violating American neutral rights on the high seas. Well, what about the Civil War? The South chose to secede and to fight for independence, while the North chose war in order to prevent this. Similarly, Americans chose to fight against what they saw as British violations of their rights in 1775, while Britain chose to crush their rebellion by force. Even in the two world wars, our enemies argued that our previous non-neutral acts had made us an unofficial belligerent and forced them to attack us. In 1917, it was our booming trade in war material and our loans to the Allied powers that led the Germans to announce unrestricted submarine warfare against our shipping, as well as everybody else's. In 1941, it was our freezing of Japanese assets, which in effect embargoed the oil and steel that Japan relied upon. And that is what led Tokyo to try to obtain these resources by force in Southeast Asia. And to attack the only military force capable of stopping them, the U.S. fleet at Pearl Harbor. Similarly, the decision via the Lend-Lease Act of 1941 to give war material free of charge, first to Britain and eventually to the Soviet Union, and then to use the U.S. Navy to help convoy that war material across the Atlantic, made the United States an unofficial belligerent in the war against Germany. In all of these wars, we argued that our enemies left us no choice but to go to war. But because we made such a claim does not mean that it was true. Well, what about incorrect and or manipulated evidence for going to war? In 1846, President James K. Polk manipulated both the evidence and the way it was presented so as to leave the Congress with no choice save to declare war. First, he sent an army under General Zachary Taylor into disputed territory along the Rio Grande River. And when Taylor's army clashed with the Mexican army, Polk asked Congress for war on the grounds that, quote, American blood had been shed upon American soil. But it was disputed soil, not American soil, as a one-term Illinois congressman named Abraham Lincoln and others would point out. Indeed, Lincoln would get the nickname Spotty for asking Polk to identify the spot on which American blood had been shed upon American soil. In addition to this, Polk may very well have sent Taylor's army into the disputed territory to provoke a war, as he was determined to obtain California, and his efforts to do so by diplomatic negotiation had failed. Now, in addition to all this, Congressional Democrats attached the war resolution as a rider to a military appropriations bill for the army. And a portion of that army was then engaged in hostilities. That made it nearly impossible to vote against the measure. Jumping to World War II, in September of 1941, President Franklin D. Roosevelt claimed that the U.S. destroyer Greer had been, quote, wantonly attacked by a German submarine in the Atlantic. And he responded as commander-in-chief with an order for U.S. warships to shoot on sight when they spotted German submarines. That began an undeclared naval war with Nazi Germany, 
one that became official when Hitler declared war on the United States soon after Pearl Harbor. But in reality, the Greer had been trailing the German submarine and radioing its position back to a British fleet that had responded with air attacks against the sub. The submarine had fired on the Greer in self-defense. Now, more common historically than such blatant manipulation of the facts has been the presentation of evidence that was believed at the time, but that later research showed to be incorrect. One of the major factors that President James Madison cited in asking Congress for a declaration of war in June of 1812 were the British orders in council that Madison claimed violated American neutral rights. Actually, those orders in council had already been rescinded, but neither Madison nor the Congress knew that in June of 1812 because the news could not travel to America that rapidly. The only way was sailing ship. And it arrived, the news arrived, after war had already been declared. In 1898, one of the major reasons Congress declared war on Spain was the sinking of the U.S. battleship Maine in Havana Harbor, a sinking that two Navy boards of inquiry concluded had been caused by an external mine and that the public believed obviously had been planted there by the Spanish. But no evidence was ever presented that the Spanish had been responsible for the mine. And in the 1970s, a detailed Navy study concluded that the previous boards of inquiry had been incorrect and that in all likelihood, the Maine had been destroyed by an internal explosion caused by spontaneous combustion in a coal bunker. That then ignited a powder magazine and blew up the entire ship. In a separate category are war-causing events that were believed at the time because the administration wanted to believe them and consequently ignored contrary evidence. In August of 1964, President Lyndon Johnson and Defense Secretary Robert McNamara claimed that two attacks had taken place against American destroyers in the Gulf of Tonkin by North Vietnamese torpedo boats. They did this in order to obtain passage of the Tonkin Gulf Resolution, authorizing the president to use force to prevent future attacks. Johnson would later use that resolution to justify his ensuing Americanization of the Vietnam War. That had not been his aim in August of 1964. Rather, his aim had been to send a message to North Vietnam regarding American unity and seriousness of purpose. And, as I previously noted, to neutralize the issue of Vietnam in the 1964 presidential election campaign. For those reasons, the administration had prepared this resolution months earlier and was simply waiting for an episode to justify presenting it. It thus chose to ignore contrary evidence arriving that the second attack may never have taken place. The first attack clearly did, but that the second attack had never taken place. That the blips on U.S. sonar were actually caused by the wakes of the ships as they took evasive action that was not needed. Second supposed attack took place 
at night. The administration also chose to ignore its own actions that had probably led to the first attack. In particular, the Soto intelligence gathering missions with warships running into North Vietnamese territorial waters and then racing out, and OPLAN 34A operations against the North Vietnamese coast by South Vietnamese commandos who were transported in American naval vessels. Similarly, the Bush administration nearly 40 years later relied on faulty intelligence to claim that Saddam Hussein possessed weapons of mass destruction. And it ignored contrary evidence, in all likelihood because it had already decided to go to war and had convinced itself that the Iraqi dictator did possess such weapons. What about the cliche that the United States always wins the wars and loses the peace? Historically, the reverse has been the case more often. Militarily, the United States did not win the War of 1812. And politically, it did not lose the peace. To the contrary, its military forces were consistently defeated by the British in 1812 and in 1813. And in 1814, the British invaded and burned Washington. Only the last minute turning back of a British assault on Baltimore and the turning back of a British invasion down the Champlain Valley at the Battle of Plattsburgh Bay prevented total defeat. Yet American diplomats at Ghent in Belgium proved superior to British diplomats and obtained a highly favorable peace treaty, one that ended previous British talk of obtaining American territory in the war and creating a separate Indian nation to block further American expansion. The peace treaty also implicitly accepted American sovereignty much more strongly than had the peace treaty of 1783 that ended the Revolutionary War. As for the neutral rights issues that had led the United States into a declaration of war, they were rendered immaterial because of the simultaneous end of the Napoleonic Wars. What about the war with Mexico, 1846 to 48? Here we won both the war and the peace. At least the peace President Polk had wanted when the war started. But as the war went on, Polk and many Americans thought more and more about acquiring all of Mexico, just annexing the entire country. Polk then accepted a more limited treaty that obtained his original territorial desires, California, New Mexico, the Rio Grande boundary. One reason he did so, and indeed one reason his peace envoy, Nicholas Trist, disobeyed orders, Polk had ordered him home, Trist disobeyed those orders and negotiated this peace treaty. Why? Because despite its military victories, the small army in Mexico City faced the risk of being cut off and having to deal with guerrilla warfare. The head of that army, General Winfield Scott, asked Trist to stay and to sign the peace treaty. What about the 1898 war with Spain? Here we also won the war and the peace. Indeed, we acquired an overseas empire that territorially went beyond what we had actually conquered 
during the war. As for World War I, contrary to popular belief, while the United States did play an important role in the eventual Allied victory, its participation in the war was brief, officially less than two years, in reality less than one on the actual battlefields. And the United States was not primarily responsible for the Allied victory. Indeed, the initial collapse of the German army and the Central Powers as a whole took place in areas far removed from American forces. Yet, the very limited role played by those forces was sufficient to enable President Woodrow Wilson to claim a dominant role at the Paris Peace Conference. Indeed, his only very firm instruction to General John J. Pershing was to keep the American army separate, not to allow it to be amalgamated into French and British forces so that he would have a strong bargaining position at the Paris Peace Conference. Now, Wilson did not get everything he wanted at Paris, but the compromises in the Treaty of Versailles reflected most of what he wanted, most notably the League of Nations. That the League failed to keep the peace is not relevant. That is a separate issue. Similarly, and as discussed in a previous lecture, the United States did not win World War II all by itself. It provided only 25% of the Allied armed forces during that war. Nor did it lose the peace. First of all, there never was a peace to lose, as the Cold War precluded the negotiation of any peace treaty or even the calling of a peace conference. As for the claim that we nevertheless lost the peace to Joseph Stalin during the wartime Yalta Conference, a conference in which a supposedly naive Roosevelt gave away half of the world to Stalin, that very statement incorrectly assumes that Roosevelt possessed that half of the world to give away. As previously explained, he did not. Furthermore, despite its limited contribution to military victory, the United States emerged from World War II as by far the most powerful nation in the world, and indeed, the most powerful nation the world has ever seen. British historian A.J.P. Taylor once quipped, that Roosevelt was the most successful, indeed, in some ways, the only successful World War II leader. He made the United States the greatest power in the world, Taylor noted, at a cost much lower than that of any other major belligerent. What about the Korean War? Militarily, that was a stalemate. Nevertheless, the United States did succeed in obtaining its original political goal, it did not succeed in obtaining the later one of liberating and unifying all of Korea, but it did succeed in the original goal, the halting of North Korean aggression and the maintenance of the pre-existing South Korea. In Vietnam, the United States clearly lost the war, even though it may never have lost a battle. Yet it achieved in the Paris Peace Accords what Nixon and Kissinger had desired regarding a, quote, decent interval for Vietnamization and the removal of American forces from what had clearly become a military quagmire. What about the first Iraq war? Here, the United States succeeded 
both militarily and in its stated political goal of halting Iraq's aggression against Kuwait. Overthrowing Saddam Hussein was not in the original American or the UN sanction to go to war in Iraq. And of course, with the 1991 demise of the Soviet Union, the United States won the Cold War without ever having defeated a Soviet army. Well, why then? In light of all these facts, do we continue to believe that we do not start wars, that we only go to war in response to attacks upon us and on the basis of solid evidence, and that we always win the wars but lose the peace? To a large extent, these myths are the result of our bitterness and disappointment regarding the results of the wars we fought, especially the two world wars. That bitterness and disappointment was linked to our very unrealistic expectations regarding the ability of total military victory in a coalition war to translate into the total recreation of international relations in the image that we desired and that President Wilson and President Roosevelt enunciated. It didn't. It couldn't accomplish that. The two world wars and the nature of American democracy also helped to create a mythical belief that the only wars worth fighting are total wars for total victory and a total recreation of the world. None of that is true. The American belief that it is led State Department official George Kennan, who left the State Department and became a famous historian, led Kennan more than 60 years ago in a lecture to compare the United States to a prehistoric dinosaur with a body the size of a room, a large room, and a brain the size of a pin. You virtually have to whack its tail off, Kennan noted, to wake it up and make it aware that its interests are being threatened. But once awake, it responds with such fury over having been disturbed and a response that has no limit that it winds up destroying not only whoever has disturbed it, but its own habitat. Now, these myths are also part of our national mythology about ourselves, that we are a peace-loving people who only go to war when left with no choice, who are then militarily victorious against evil enemies because of our goodness, as well as our military prowess and divine protection. But we are then foiled and defeated in the peacemaking because as a peace-loving people, we are naive about war and peacemaking. This national mythology is in turn based on a belief that war is evil and therefore should be undertaken only when we are attacked and there is no choice. That may be true. I definitely believe that it is true on moral grounds and on practical grounds as well. For war is almost always a great gamble whose outcome cannot be accurately predicted. But that does not mean that what we should do, avoid war unless we are attacked and there is no choice, is what we have actually done in our history. The mythology is also due to the fact that we tend to confuse success in battle with success in war. 
One of the most misnamed books of the late 20th century was a history of the German general staff entitled A Genius for War. As numerous critics pointed out, it should have been entitled A Genius for Battle, as starting and losing two world wars does not illustrate A Genius for War. A Prussian military officer and theorist, Karl von Clausewitz, knew this, and he emphasized in his classic study on war, almost 200 years ago, that wars are fought for political goals and make sense only within that political context. Indeed, he argued, political goals should to a great extent determine the military strategy that is used so that that strategy does not inadvertently negate the very reasons one went to war. War, Clausewitz pointed out, has a tendency to go to the absolute, which was mindless violence. Real war was fought for political goals, but war did have that tendency to the absolute unless it was controlled. Now, our failure to understand this and to understand the difference between war and battle was boldly illustrated after the Vietnam War by the American who commented to his Vietnamese counterpart that throughout the war, quote, we never lost a battle. That may be correct, the Vietnamese responded, but it is also irrelevant. George Washington came to understand that during the War for Independence, as he achieved the political goal of independence, despite the fact that his army lost most of its battles and won very few. But those few, as shown in an earlier lecture, were enough due to their political consequences. We have forgotten that lesson from our 18th century past. Perhaps that is because as our power has grown, so has our hubris, our pride, our arrogance, and our ensuing blindness to our own history. Lecture 23, Who Matters in American History? Most Americans think they know the names of the great political figures in American history. Names such as Washington, Jefferson, Jackson, Lincoln, Wilson, Theodore Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Truman. There are, however, numerous other political figures whose contributions were just as important, but who, while far from being totally unknown, are far less familiar to most Americans. For events covered in the last few lectures, for example, what about Harry Hopkins, Franklin Roosevelt's right-hand man and virtual alter ego during World War II? Or George Kennan, the head of the State Department policy planning staff, who in 1947 authored the Cold War policy of containment and co-authored the Marshall Plan? Or Matthew Ridgway, the Army Chief of Staff, who played such a critical role in preventing American military intervention in Vietnam in 1954. There are also lesser-known historical figures in realms outside of politics, who, one might argue, are at least as important as any political figures. In this lecture, we will examine the numerous accomplishments of a few such political and non-political individuals and try to understand why, despite those accomplishments, 
they are less familiar than other figures. Such an analysis will also enable us to explore who in history we choose to remember and why. Let's do politics first. In that political realm, I have chosen one statesman from the 18th, one from the 19th, and one from the 20th century. John Adams, his son John Quincy, and George Catlett Marshall. Although two were presidents, and the third was one of our greatest soldiers and statesmen. And although each was very well known in his time, they are relatively unknown today, especially in comparison to their peers. Washington, Jefferson, Jackson, Franklin Roosevelt, Truman, and Eisenhower. After looking at these three, we will then look at some non-political figures in American history and try to figure out why they too are lesser known than our major political figures. In the process, we will also explore the so-called traditional grand narrative of American history and how it is under assault, yet perhaps in the midst of enormous change and expansion. But first, let us look at the three lesser-known political figures, Adams, Quincy Adams, and Marshall. John Adams first. Adams was probably the most important and respected of all the revolutionary leaders from New England. He played a major role in both Continental Congresses. He nominated George Washington to command the Continental Army. He helped to draft the Declaration of Independence, and he drafted the instructions that would result in the wartime Treaty of Alliance with France. He also obtained a critical Dutch loan while a diplomat in Europe during the war. He played a major role in the peace negotiations that ended the war, and he became the first official U.S. representative to Great Britain after the war. He was also a major political theorist, he wrote the Massachusetts Constitution, and, perhaps surprisingly, he defended the British soldiers put on trial as a result of the Boston Massacre. Now, during the Revolution, he had nominated George Washington to command the Continental Army in order to commit the southern colonies to a conflict that then centered on Boston. Similarly, he was elected as our first vice president, partially to provide a sectional balance to Washington, the Virginian, in the new government. He was the obvious choice to succeed Washington as president, but he inherited a diplomatic crisis with France as well as a growing partisan rift at home, with the opposition led by none other than his vice president and old friend Thomas Jefferson. The crisis with France erupted into an undeclared naval war in 1798 that the Hamiltonian wing of his own Federalist Party wanted to turn into a full-scale declared war. Such a war, when combined with the recently passed Alien and Sedition Acts, which virtually outlawed dissent, would have guaranteed Adams' re-election, though it also could have led to a civil war. But Adams refused to agree. He never filled the ranks of the special army Congress had agreed to create. And when France proposed negotiations to end the conflict, he quickly agreed. He also fired the Hamiltonian members of his cabinet when he discovered that they were subverting his plans to negotiate an end to rather than an expansion of the war. As a result of his moves, he was able to obtain peace with France, but at the cost of splitting his Federalist Party and thus dooming his own re-election attempt against Jefferson. 
Adams realized the political cost of his behavior, but he considered it the most meritorious actions of his life. I will defend my missions to France, he wrote, as long as I have an eye to direct my hand or a finger to hold my pen. They are the most disinterested and meritorious actions of my life. I reflect upon them with so much satisfaction that I desire no other inscription over my gravestone than here lies John Adams, who took upon himself the responsibility of the peace with France in the year 1800. But the cost was not limited to the election of 1800. As the only one of the five founding fathers elected president, but not re-elected for a second term, he became the forgotten one. Fittingly, he died on July 4th, 1826, the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, as did Thomas Jefferson, his old friend who had become his political enemy, but with whom he had eventually reconciled. His final words, Thomas Jefferson still lives. Jefferson, however, had died just a few hours earlier. Equally fitting, Adams once summarized and explained his own career by explaining to his wife Abigail that, as he put it, I must study politics and war, that my sons may have the liberty to study mathematics and philosophy, navigation, commerce, and agriculture in order to give their children a right to study painting, poetry, music, and porcelain. David McCullough, Joseph Ellis, and others have over the past few decades done their best to give Adams his due. And he is now better known than he previously had been. Nevertheless, he remains relatively unknown to the public, especially in comparison to his peers. Washington, Jefferson, Hamilton, Madison. Now, on Adams' death in 1826, his son John Quincy Adams was in the midst of his own largely forgotten presidency. Yet, like his father, he had had a brilliant career before he became president, primarily as a diplomat. He had helped to negotiate the Treaty of Ghent that had ended the War of 1812. He had also served as minister, really ambassador, to the Netherlands, to Prussia, to Russia, and to Great Britain. He had then been appointed by James Monroe as Secretary of State. In these roles, Adams had been responsible for some of the most important treaties and announcements in the history of U.S. foreign relations. The Rush-Bagot Agreement to limit naval forces on the Great Lakes, which was the first naval arms limitation agreement in modern history and the start of what would eventually become the famous undefended Canadian-American border. The Boundary Convention of 1818 that established a boundary with Canada all the way to the Rocky Mountains, as well as joint Anglo-American occupation of the Oregon Territory and thus a U.S. claim to the Pacific Coast. The Adams-Onise Transcontinental Treaty of 1819, by which the United States acquired Spanish Florida and a clear continental boundary with the Spanish Empire all the way to the West Coast. That also established an American claim to the Pacific Coast, and it is a treaty that ranks in importance with the Louisiana Purchase of 1803. Finally, the famous Monroe Doctrine that Adams, rather than Monroe, actually authored. 
Perhaps one reason Adams remains relatively unknown is that most of these diplomatic achievements remain relatively unknown. Adams became president in 1825, but he did so via a unique route that would plague and doom his presidency. Since none of the numerous candidates for president had received a majority of the votes in the Electoral College, or in the popular vote for that matter, the election was decided by the House of Representatives, with each state casting one vote. Now, as noted in a previous lecture, the choice boiled down to Adams or Andrew Jackson. Eliminated from the race by his low vote total, Speaker of the House Henry Clay of Kentucky encouraged his supporters to vote for Adams, even though Jackson had more electoral votes and more popular votes. Clay's support ensured Adams' election, whereupon he appointed Clay Secretary of State, the position traditionally seen and used as the stepping stone to the presidency. Jackson and his supporters screamed corrupt bargain, which it was not. And they immediately began a campaign to win the election of 1828 and, in the process, subvert Adams' presidency. In this, they were successful. And Adams was defeated in his 1828 re-election bid. Unlike his father, however, Adams did not allow this defeat to end his political career. He agreed to run for and won election two the House of Representatives from his home district, commenting that being so elected by your neighbors was an honor higher than the presidency. And in the House of Representatives, he became a fierce opponent of slavery and its expansion. He also acted to subvert the gag rule that had barred anti-slavery petitions from Congress. And he defended the right of slaves who had taken over their slave ship, the Amistad, to their freedom. He also opposed the annexation of Texas and the war with Mexico. In the process, he developed the nickname Old Man Eloquent. In 1848, he suffered a massive stroke while speaking out against that war, and he was carried out of the House chamber, dying two days later. Unlike the two Adamses, George Catlett Marshall was never elected president, but only because he chose not to run. In 1939, Franklin Roosevelt appointed him Army Chief of Staff over 33 senior officers. He held that post from the day Hitler invaded Poland to begin World War II, September 1, 1939, to the end of that war. During that time, he created a huge and highly successful army and air force of over eight and a quarter million men, by far the largest army in U.S. history. In the process, he won the respect and the admiration of Congress, the American people, America's wartime allies, and his colleagues on both the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Anglo-American Combined Chiefs of Staff, where he quickly emerged as the first among equals. Churchill called him the true organizer of Allied victory. Marshall was the obvious choice to command Operation Overlord, the 1944 invasion of France and the largest amphibious operation in history. But questions arose as to whether he could be spared from Washington, for he was, in effect, running the global U.S. war effort. Nevertheless, the command was his for the asking. But he refused to ask, 
When Roosevelt asked, do you want the command? Marshall responded that Roosevelt as president had to do what was best for the country, not what was best for George C. Marshall. Roosevelt then chose Marshall's protege, Dwight D. Eisenhower, for the command, commenting to Marshall that he, quote, could not sleep at night with you out of the country. The Overlord Command and his success at it guaranteed Eisenhower historical immortality and the presidency in 1952. You have never thought of yourself, Secretary of War Henry Stimson told Marshall on VE Day in May of 1945. And he continued, there is no one for whom I have such deep respect and I think greater affection. I have seen a great many soldiers in my day, Stimson movingly concluded, and you, sir, are the finest soldier I have ever known. Stimson was far from alone in that judgment. In late 1945, President Harry Truman, who considered Marshall the, quote, greatest living American, appointed him special emissary to China in a hopeless effort to avert a civil war. Then in early 1947, he appointed Marshall Secretary of State. Marshall proved to be one of the great secretaries of state, even though he served only two years. He established the containment policy in the Cold War, and as part of it, the European Recovery Program that bears his name as the Marshall Plan. For that, he received the Nobel Peace Prize in 1953, the first professional soldier ever to win that prestigious award. Marshall also established a bipartisan foreign policy with a Republican Congress and a Democratic president that lasted for 20 years. Nor was that the end of it. In September of 1950, at the age of nearly 70, he agreed to become Secretary of Defense in order to rebuild the U.S. Army for the Korean War. He also ended the inter-service feuding that had erupted into the so-called Revolt of the Admirals a year earlier, and he re-established good civil-military relations with the State Department, which had become badly frayed. He also played a key role in the 1951 relief of General Douglas MacArthur in what many consider the greatest threat to civilian control of the military in U.S. history. Now, throughout this extraordinary career, Marshall utterly refused to run for political office or even to vote. When asked for his political faith, he would respond that, quote, my father was a Democrat, my mother a Republican, and I am an Episcopalian. Nevertheless, he came under savage political attack in 1950 and 1951 by Joseph McCarthy and his supporters for the, quote, loss of China and MacArthur's relief. Another senator, William Jenner, labeled him, quote, a living lie and a frontman for traitors. When Marshall died in 1959, he nevertheless remained one of the most respected men in the country. But his reputation faded as the generation that knew him passed away. When I ask students today if they know who George Marshall was, most say no. And the few who respond in the affirmative can only say, indeed, ask, he had something to do with the Marshall Plan, didn't he? Well, why then are these great statesmen lesser known than many of their peers? For Adams, a major reason is that he followed George Washington into the presidency. And to say Washington was a tough act to follow is a major understatement. 
He was also an argumentative and often a disagreeable person, and a one-term president defeated for re-election by none other than the author of the Declaration of Independence, his former friend Thomas Jefferson. He could have defeated Jefferson and had a second term by turning the quasi-war against France into a full-fledged war. But he refused to do so because it violated his principles, which he would not do, especially for political gain. As with his defense of British soldiers on trial for the Boston Massacre, he was indeed, as per the title of one biography, Honest John Adams. His son, John Quincy, possessed a similar, if not even more difficult, personality. I am a man of reserved, cold, austere, and forbidding manners, he wrote. My political adversaries say a gloomy misanthropist, and my personal enemies an unsocial savage. One historian, George Dangerfield, has concluded that Adams was peculiarly fitted for public service, except in one respect. As Dangerfield wrote, Adams was almost totally deficient in the art of getting on with other people. Adams also followed into the presidency the last of the founding fathers, James Monroe. He was a one-term president, and he was defeated for re-election by the immensely popular and studied Andrew Jackson. Quincy Adams was also the only president to be selected by the House of Representatives, and under circumstances that led many Americans at the time to question whether he ever should have become president. In addition, much of his prior brilliant success as a diplomat and secretary of state was hidden from the public view, and it remains hidden to this very day. Now, Marshall also possessed what many have described as a forbidding personality. Nevertheless, he could have easily been elected president after World War II had he agreed to run, for he was clearly the most respected man in the country for his wartime work. But he refused to do so, much as he has refused to ask Roosevelt for the overlord command. As a result, he never achieved battlefield fame. That honor and with it the presidency and historical immortality, went to his protege, Eisenhower. The name of the European Recovery Program, in his honor, is what he is most remembered for by those who recognize his name at all. But it is merely the tip of an iceberg of accomplishments. Now, one common factor that may account for the relative obscurity of these three individuals today, despite their enormous accomplishments, during the eras in which they lived, is their refusal to allow personal political ambition to control their behavior or to violate their sense of what was right. Another may have been their utter honesty and refusal to compromise that honesty for political gain. Honest John Adams. Marshall, a reputation for never lying to Congress. A third may have been their knowledge of history, and their subsequent ability to take the long view regarding what was truly important. For Adams, that was peace with France in 1800 over re-election. For his son, John Quincy Adams, it was first the geographic expansion of his country without war, and then the crusade against slavery and for civil liberties. And for Marshall, it was the preservation of a truly democratic society in the midst of a global war. That is perhaps best illustrated not only by his refusal to lie to Congress, but by his charge in early 1943 to General John Hildring, 
the officer he had appointed to head a new civil affairs division in the Army General Staff that was to train military governors for occupied enemy territory. Marshall's charge to Hildring was never to forget that he was being handed what he called a sacred trust, the fact that the American people trusted their army officers. And Hildring could destroy that trust overnight, Marshall warned. It could happen if he did not understand this. This is my principal charge to you, Marshall said. This is the thing I never want you to forget in the dust of battle and when the pressures will be on you. A fourth factor that may account for the relative obscurity of all three was the strong belief each had in the concept of selfless public service. And that belief may have precluded them from actively seeking the publicity and popularity necessary for lasting fame. But let us expand our analysis further to explore not only why we tend to remember certain political figures and not others, but also why we tend to remember political figures at all, as opposed to figures whose accomplishments lay outside the political realm. What about great religious leaders and theologians like Jonathan Edwards, Charles G. Finney, Reinhold Niebuhr? What about economic and technological leaders from Eli Whitney to Steve Jobs? What about black civil rights leaders from Frederick Douglass to Martin Luther King Jr. and James Farmer? And what about feminist leaders from Lucretia Mott and Elizabeth Cady Stanton through Betty Friedan, author of The Feminine Mystique, and Gloria Steinem? In this regard, who matters most to us from a given past era may vary depending upon what we wish to know about that era. These figures whom I named are all very well known to historians who specialize in U.S. religious, economic, civil rights, or women's history, as opposed to political history. But beyond that rather obvious fact, many of the figures I named come from relatively recent fields of historical study that developed during and after the 1960s and 70s as part of the new social history, a history of groups that had been left out of the traditional grand narrative of the United States, a narrative that had focused on white male political leaders. In the process, these new historians transformed and continue to transform the study of U.S. history. These historians also played a major role in the destruction of the traditional grand narrative of U.S. history. For minorities and women have histories of their own that do not appear to fit the political history of white men in that narrative. Or don't they? One could argue, for example, that the 20th century theologian Reinhold Niebuhr was at least as important in the emergence of the United States as a superpower as Franklin D. Roosevelt and Harry Truman, essentially for his religious concepts regarding the nature of power and the need to grasp it to do good while simultaneously recognizing human limits and the corrupting nature of power. Niebuhr attacked isolationism in the 1930s as immoral in the face of Nazism. He also attacked it after World War II in the face of communism. And he argued that isolationism was an attempt to maintain moral purity 
which he considered impossible for a Christian, by refusing to accept the responsibilities of power. But Niebuhr also attacked American efforts in the Cold War to remake the world in its own image. He considered this an example of arrogance and the corrupting influence of power, and he pressed for a recognition of human limits. Or as he phrased it in his famous prayer, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. George F. Kennan, who worked under Marshall as head of the policy planning staff in the State Department, and who authored the U.S. Cold War policy of containment, referred to Niebuhr as, quote, the father of us all. And he even invited Niebuhr into meetings of the policy planning staff. One could similarly argue that the Second Great Awakening revivalist preacher, Charles G. Finney, was at least as important, if not more important, than any of the presidents of his era. Why? Because of the link he preached between religious conversion and political reform, and the enormous political as well as societal consequences that that had, including, but by no means limited, as we have seen in a previous lecture, to the anti-slavery crusade that led to the Civil War. In the First Great Awakening, the minister Jonathan Edwards. One could argue he and his colleagues were more important than any of the revolutionary-era political leaders because their work, for the first time, created a common bond between the 13 colonies and led many to question established authority for the first time. Shifting to economics, one could maintain that Eli Whitney was more important than any political figures in causing the Civil War, not only for his well-known invention of the cotton gin, which had an enormous impact on Southern slavery, but also for his equally enormous impact on Northern industry via his pioneering work in the early 19th century to mass-produce muskets for the U.S. Army via interchangeable parts. Whitney is far less well-known for that, but it is, one might argue, just as important as the cotton gin. Similarly, one could claim that industrial and financial leaders from the late 19th century through the entire 20th century were more important in America's rise to superpower status than any generals or admirals or presidents. For the foundation of U.S. military power in the 20th century was its economic power that these men had helped to create. One could also claim that pioneers in the struggle for minority rights and women's rights from the pre-Civil War years through the entire 20th century were more important than the presidents, legislators, and judges responsible for government actions in these realms. Why? Because they changed people's consciousnesses. They mobilized people, and they thereby pressured politicians into action. Now, while our grand narrative, our old grand narrative, is thus dated and fractured, a new one may not only be possible, but actually forming right now. One that synthesizes all of the new histories with the old one to give us a much fuller, more informative, and more useful picture of our past.
Lecture 24 History did not begin with us. There's an apparent tendency to believe that history either began or was dramatically altered during our lifetimes. A few examples. Many believe the Vietnam War spawned the first major anti-war movement in U.S. history during the 1960s, and that that established the precedent for opposition to U.S. war since then. Many also believe that the 1960s gave birth to the Civil Rights Movement and similarly that the women's movement began in the 1970s. More recently, many have argued that the personal computer is the most important invention in U.S. history, if not in world history, and that with it, we have entered an utterly new era. More broadly, many argue that the pace of change is accelerating at an unprecedented rate and is influencing every aspect of our lives, and not always for the better. Now, some of these statements are simply incorrect. The anti-war and civil rights movements did not begin during the 1960s, nor did the women's movement begin in the 1970s. And the validity of the other statements regarding the computer and the pace of change are subject to severe questioning given a careful reading of U.S. history. In this final lecture, we shall explore the historical realities that challenge these incorrect or questionable beliefs, as well as why so many Americans tend to believe them. Let's look at the anti-war movement first. Contrary to popular belief, Vietnam was not the first American war opposed by many Americans. The revolution and war for independence were in all likelihood not supported by a majority of the colonists. Now, there were no public opinion polls at the time. But John Adams claimed that one-third favored the revolution, one-third opposed it, and one-third were neutral. In the 1798-1800 quasi-war with France, one of the two major political parties, Jefferson's Democratic Republicans, opposed the war. And they responded to wartime attacks on their civil liberties, the Alien and the Sedition Acts, with the doctrine of nullification in their Virginia and Kentucky resolutions. The result was nearly a civil war. The War of 1812 was opposed by an entire section of the nation, New England, and the other major political party, the Federalists. The war vote in June of 1812 revealed a badly divided nation. 79 to 49 in the House, 19 to 13 in the Senate, with all Federalists and most of New England voting no. New England states also refused to allow their militias to participate in attempted invasions of Canada during the war, and they continued their wholesale smuggling across the Canadian border that had been in effect since Jefferson's embargo in 1806 and 7. There was even talk of secession. And at the Harford Convention in late 1814, the Federalists proposed a series of states' rights-oriented constitutional amendments designed to limit the power of both the South and the national government. Major sectional and partisan opposition also existed to the 1846-48 war with Mexico. Many Northerners and many Whigs condemned the war as one of aggression 
designed to expand slavery. Indeed, by 1848, the Whigs were threatening to cut off funds for continuation of the war, which may have been a factor in President James K. Polk's decision to accept a peace treaty that acquired California and New Mexico rather than all of Mexico. And as noted in a previous lecture, a one-term Whig congressman from Illinois named Abraham Lincoln obtained the nickname Spotty for challenging Polk to identify the spot where American blood had supposedly been shed upon American soil. Now, mythology to the contrary, major opposition to the Civil War existed in both North and South. Lincoln was a minority president. He had won less than 40% of the popular vote, and there was major opposition to his policies in the North as well as the South. Indeed, Lincoln's administration became notorious for its violations of the civil liberties of those opponents during the war. That included the arrest and deportation of a pro-Southern former congressman in Ohio. And Lincoln came very close to being defeated for re-election in 1864 by one of his former generals, George McClellan, who ran as a Democrat, the party that included a large number of peace supporters. The South was also badly divided into pro- and anti-slavery factions, as well as secession versus union factions. West Virginia seceded from Virginia over this. Now, there was no opposition to speak of during the brief 1898 war with Spain, but there was plenty of opposition to President McKinley's ensuing decision to acquire an overseas empire, a colonial empire, as a result of that war. The Treaty of Paris ending the war and formalizing the acquisition of the empire faced major opposition in the Senate and in the public. You had the formation of the bipartisan anti-imperialist league and acidic criticisms from such notable Americans as Mark Twain. The Senate accepted the treaty, but only by a vote of 57 to 27 barely the two-thirds needed for ratification. Even more opposition arose to the ensuing war with the Filipinos who desired independence rather than merely to trade one colonial master for another. There were revelations of American torture of the Filipino guerrillas leading to congressional investigation and denunciations of the army and the administration. Major opposition also existed in regard to American entry into World War I in 1917, even though the war vote passed the Senate and House by the overwhelming majorities of 82 to 6 and 373 to 50. And in 1935, Marine Major General Smedley Butler, who had participated in military actions in the Philippines, in China, in numerous Central American and Caribbean countries, as well as France during World War I, proclaimed that during his 33-plus years in active military service, he had spent, quote, most of my time as a high-class muscle for big business, for Wall Street, and the bankers. In short, I was a racketeer, a gangster for capitalism. And Smedley Butler was, at this point, the most highly decorated officer in U.S. history. 
Now, while there was virtually no opposition to our entry into World War II after the Pearl Harbor attack and the Nazi declaration of war, there had been plenty of opposition to Roosevelt's pre-Pearl Harbor policies, most notably aid to Britain, policies that his numerous anti-interventionist critics claimed would lead the United States into an unnecessary war. Opposition also existed to major U.S. policies in the early days of the Cold War, with former Vice President Henry Wallace and the Progressive Party challenging Truman in the 1948 election. Even during the supposedly placid 1950s, major anti-nuclear and pacifist movements existed. There was also opposition to the Korean War, though not anti-war opposition per se. Rather, there were Republican attacks on President Truman for executive war-making without the consent of Congress and on his limited war strategy. Instead, many Republicans backed General MacArthur's calls for an expanded war against China. Interestingly, similar dissent occurred during the Vietnam War, with those calling for escalation and expansion of the war, outnumbering those who favored de-escalation and or withdrawal before 1968. That history has in turn been relatively ignored in the new historical emphasis on anti-war movements. Now, why was this long history of major anti-war movements forgotten by most Americans? Partially, it got buried in an outpouring of patriotism after the Pearl Harbor attack and by the bipartisan foreign policy during the early years of the Cold War. Related to this was the anti-communist hysteria during the 1950s that stifled dissent. Furthermore, all these previous anti-war movements failed including, contrary to mythology, the Vietnam anti-war movement, save perhaps in the sense of avoiding even more escalation. And we tend to spend more time studying successes than failures. In terms of specific wars, many of the loyalists during the Revolutionary War fled the country and resettled in England or Canada. In doing so, they deprived the United States of the people who would have written the anti-war history of that conflict. Federalist demands and threats at the 1814 Hartford Convention became public news after the arrival of the peace treaty that ended the war and Andrew Jackson's smashing victory at New Orleans. And it led to the demise of the Federalists as a national party soon thereafter. That served as a warning to future politicians never to risk open dissent against the war. And as discussed in a previous lecture, some presidents manipulated the facts so as to minimize anti-war dissent and force dissenters to vote for war. James K. Polk, for example, had his supporters attach the war vote as a rider to an appropriations bill for the army then under attack by Mexico along the Rio Grande. How are you going to oppose that? The government also actively suppressed many of these anti-war movements, especially those during the Civil War and World War I. And in suppressing them, it wound up also suppressing their history. And the bipartisan foreign policy and anti-communist hysteria of the 1950s created an environment in which consensus school historians 
such as Lewis Hartz and Daniel Boorstin, tended to emphasize the lack of conflict in American history rather than the conflicts. The Civil Rights Movement had an equally long history. For African Americans, it began with the anti-slavery movement itself that started in the mid to late 18th century and accelerated in the 1830s. Simultaneously, free blacks fought against segregation laws in the northern states. So did black leaders like Frederick Douglass and their white supporters before the Civil War, during the Civil War, and after the Civil War. Now, black leader Booker T. Washington did give up on such rights in his famous Atlanta Compromise of 1895, but he did so only temporarily in order to obtain white support for improving the economic condition of African Americans. And he was almost immediately challenged by other black leaders, such as W.E.B. Du Bois. Indeed, Du Bois would help to found the NAACP in the early 20th century. And that organization would begin to challenge Southern segregation laws and other denials of black civil rights throughout the first half of the 20th century. This effort would culminate legally in the famous 1954 Supreme Court case of Brown versus the Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas, a case in which the court, by a 9-0 vote, declared segregation unconstitutional. But there had been many previous years of litigation and court decisions leading up to this moment. The equally important court insistence that desegregation occur, quote, with all deliberate speed, occurred only a year later. So did the critical Montgomery bus boycott, which brought to public attention a young black minister named Martin Luther King Jr. Now, why was most of this history forgotten by so many Americans before the 1960s? The plight of free blacks and their efforts to obtain their civil rights before the Civil War tended to be forgotten amidst the much larger and more basic struggle at that time against slavery. The movement for black civil rights after the Civil War failed, despite the passage of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution during the Reconstruction Era. And as was stated in regard to the anti-war movement, we tend to spend more time studying successes than failures. In addition, white America as a whole was racist and did not support equal rights for blacks, either before the Civil War or in the century following it. Indeed, segregation laws and other denials of black civil rights occurred in the North as well as the South before the Civil War, and de facto segregation existed in the North throughout the 20th century. Consequently, there was little interest in the history of the struggle for black civil rights outside of the African-American community. Finally, the consensus historians of the early Cold War years tended to downplay, if not ignore, the struggle, much as they had ignored previous anti-war movements. The women's movement also has a lengthy history in this country. As noted in a previous lecture, it began within the abolitionist movement of the 1830s over the issue of women speaking in public at anti-slavery rallies and serving in leadership positions. That led to the 1848 Seneca Falls Convention and the birth of the movement for equal rights for women, a movement spearheaded by Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Lucretia Mott, and Susan B. Anthony. The key issue during this time 
was the right to control their own property and wages and the right to vote. That struggle would last more than 70 years. During the Reconstruction era, the women's movement pressed for inclusion in the 14th and 15th Amendments that guaranteed black males their rights. But that effort was unsuccessful. And throughout the late 19th and early 20th centuries, women pressed to obtain the right to vote. They were finally successful with the passage in 1920 of the 19th Amendment to the Constitution. They also achieved symbolic moves towards equality with Franklin Roosevelt's appointment of the first female cabinet member, Frances Perkins, as Secretary of Labor, and the political redefinition of the role of First Lady by Eleanor Roosevelt during the 1930s. And during World War II, the Women's Army Corps was established under a female colonel, Oveta Culp Hobby, and women obtained jobs in a host of occupations previously close to them and symbolized by Rosie the Riveter. Now, why then was this history lost in the years following World War II? The situation that women found themselves in during World War II was generally perceived in the country as a temporary aberration caused by the exigencies of war and the temporary removal of millions of men from the workforce for military duty. During the Depression and New Deal, working women were perceived, as they would be again after the war, as taking jobs away from men. In addition to that, the combination of the Great Depression and World War II had led many women to postpone having children, a postponement that ended with the end of World War II and led to the post-war baby boom. And with that baby boom, a reassertion of women's traditional roles as mother and housekeeper. That reassertion of traditional roles in turn made the previous history of the early women's rights movement appear largely irrelevant. Now, why were these three histories rediscovered in the 1960s and 1970s? As with most movements, members of these three movements in the 60s and 70s searched for a usable past, and they found it in these previous histories. At numerous teach-ins during the 1960s, professors and students challenged the myth of past wartime consensus, and with that myth, implicit attacks upon their patriotism, by bringing up these previous anti-war movements, as well as challenging the government's version of the history of the Vietnam War. Civil rights activists similarly challenged prevailing racial stereotypes and values, stereotypes of docile and inferior blacks who had always accepted inferior status. Feminists challenged prevailing gender stereotypes and values and the idea that women had in the past docilely accepted their inferior status. And that, in turn, led a new generation of scholars to explore these histories in great depth and to produce a rich literature about them. That, in turn, has altered our views of American history. It also affected the ensuing development of the anti-war civil rights and women's movements, movements that are now aware of their past history. So what we see, once again, both in the burying of the history of previous movements and in their rediscovery and expansion, is how the present influences our knowledge and views of the past.
The search for what has been labeled a usable past often results in a powerful beam lighting up previously neglected history and in such a way as to alter our view of the past. Women's history, for example, did not even exist as a field of study in the 1960s. That does not mean women did not have a history. Of course they did. But it took the modern women's movement to rediscover and expand that history. History in this regard is not an objective and unchanging discipline that studies simply the facts about a dead past. Instead, it is a subjective and constantly evolving study of an alive and constantly changing past that is heavily influenced by the questions each generation asks of it in light of contemporary concerns. As a result, history tells us much about ourselves in the present as well as the past that is being studied. Now, what about our present belief that the personal computer is the most important invention in U.S. history, if not in world history, that it has ushered in a new era in history, and that the pace of change is accelerating at an unprecedented rate and influencing every aspect of our lives, and not always for the better. Is that true? Ironically, the belief that change is accelerating at an unprecedented rate is itself far from new. Alvin Toffler, in his 1970 book, Future Shock, propounded such a view many years before the personal computer revolution. In addition, a careful examination of American history reveals a series of fundamental technological changes long before the computer, each one considered at the time the most important and consequential in history. Now, each of these did produce profound changes in American life. And each was touted at the time as the most important and profound, as well as ushering in change so rapid as to be overwhelming. First, the steamboat in 1807 and the canal boom, 3,300 miles of canals by the 1840s, that tremendously sped up transportation and communication. Before this, transportation had been limited by the course of a river, its current, and the inability to move back upstream, save by rowing or poling. The trip from Pittsburgh to New Orleans, for example, had previously taken one month to get downstream and four months to get back. What did canals do? The 363-mile-long Erie Canal, built between 1817 and 1825, cut the cost of sending a ton of produce from Buffalo to New York City from 20 days to six. And the cost from $100 a ton to $5 a ton, or from 20 to 30 cents per ton per mile to 2 to 3 cents per mile. It also created a direct water route from the Midwest and from the Midwest to New England and northeastern ports with access to European markets. In short, it opened the Midwest to settlement and economic development. And as all of this flowed into New York City, it made New York City the largest city in the United States. And then came the railroad, the first major improvement in land transportation since the invention of the wheel. Ralph Waldo Emerson, taking his first ride on a train, commented, quote, distance is annihilated. Railroad construction began in the U.S. in the 1830s, and it then exploded. 
1840, there were 3,300 miles of track. By 1850, 8,879. By 1860, 30,000 miles. Now, beyond transportation and communication, the railroad deeply affected our agriculture, our industry, our westward expansion, our politics, our warfare, warfare, our culture, even our language. Words such as sidetracked, full head of steam, uncoupled, railroaded. And the railroad was perceived as altering everything and creating a new age. Indeed, it even led to the creation of our time zones, which previously had not existed. The same can be said about mass production from the first assembly line factories that began to replace cottage or household manufacturing with power-driven machines replacing hand-operated tools. At about the same time came the staggering, almost instant communication of the telegraph. 1844, in Samuel Morse's famous first words, tapped out on that instrument, what hath God wrought? Then came the internal combustion engine and the automobile, which had equally, if not more, profound consequences in each of these areas, as has been previously explored. Consequences that, in effect, remade the nation. Then came the airplane, which first revolutionized warfare, and then domestic and international travel and trade. And then nuclear weapons and power, which transformed warfare, technology, values, and culture in ways we are still trying to understand. So is the computer any different, or is it just another major change? And perhaps one not nearly as significant and altering as these earlier ones. Imagine for a moment a man who had been born on a Midwestern farm between 1835 and 1840, and who lived into his mid to late 80s. Think about the incredibly dramatic and life-altering changes he experienced. As a child or teenager, he would have seen and perhaps experienced his first railroad and would have been staggered by its speed, much as Emerson was. He might have also visited the local telegraph office and been astounded by this near-instant communication. As a young man in his 20s, he would have fought in the Civil War and thereby experienced what many historians consider the first modern and total war. As a young married man, he then would have experienced the Industrial Revolution, first on his own farm in terms of mechanization and transportation, and then in all likelihood in the city into which he moved, perhaps Chicago, which had hardly existed when he was born. Whether out of choice or necessity, given the plight of American farmers at the time, he would probably become an urban dweller. The Industrial Revolution and the move to the city would dramatically transform virtually every aspect of his life. And by the end of the century or the beginning of the next, he and his children would probably be using a telephone and have seen an automobile. By the 1920s, they would have been able to purchase one. That would transform his life and that of his family even further. So would a host of new devices that could be purchased and run by electricity in his home. And of course, that included the radio by which he now received his news and entertainment. He would also see with the Wright brothers' success and be staggered by the airplane, the fulfillment of a dream as old as human history, the ability to fly like a bird. He would have also seen, and perhaps his grandchildren would have fought in, the largest and most costly war in human history, what they thought and hoped would be the war to end all wars, World War I. 
Are we really experiencing technological changes more rapid, dramatic, and life-transforming than this individual did? Or is the belief that we are a distortion or a conceit caused by our ignorance of history or by the syndrome known as tunnel vision, whereby the past right in front of us as we enter a tunnel appears longer and more important than the bulk of the tunnel, in this case, the entire past before we were born? Now, this is a common human trait that can be overcome only by a knowledge of history and an understanding of its complexities that this course has hopefully provided. Does all of this mean I and other historians think history does repeat itself after all and that the present offers nothing new? Not at all. History does not repeat itself, save perhaps in terms of the emotions that drive human beings to behave in certain ways, love, anger, fear. And thus, there is a repetition in terms of patterns of human behavior. But history never repeats itself in terms of events. Each event is unique, as is each era in human history, and as is each new interpretation of the past that arises within each era. Historical interpretation is always linked to specific eras. Always try as we did especially in the lecture on the causes of the Civil War, to think of history as neither a single straight line or as a circle, the two most common methods of viewing the past, but instead as a spiral. Remember, I suggested visualizing such a spiral with a classroom blackboard as the event and time as three-dimensional and running to the back of the room and beyond. Via this analogy, we are separate from all past events and thus unique, but we are also linked to them in a multidimensional time stream of which we are a part. And being linked, we simultaneously see that history did not begin with us and will not end with us either. Now, this course has discussed only some of the many myths that abound in U.S. history. I hope you've gained facts and insights you didn't have before, and that it has encouraged you to be a skeptic yourself, to challenge other historical myths, and to search for the truth behind those myths. But the search for the truth is quite different from the claim to have found it. Keep the company of those who seek the truth, Czech President Václav Havel once said. Run from those who have found it. That is appropriate advice for all people, but especially for those who study history. For as we've seen repeatedly, though perhaps most clearly in the lecture on the causes of the Civil War, historical truth changes over time as new events lead to new questions and new interpretations of the past. History is an interpretive discipline in which we try to understand not only the past, but also the present by looking into the past. But as the present changes with the passage of time, our concerns change, and with them, what is considered the truth about history. My interpretations in this course are as time-bound as any others we have discussed. So if you take a skeptic's approach to history yourself, you may very well challenge some of the interpretations I have presented in my effort to counter some of the myths of U.S. history. And if you do not, in all likelihood, your children, grandchildren, and their teachers almost certainly will. There is always new and different light to cast on the past. We hope you have enjoyed these lectures from the great courses. Our courses are now available to order online. Visit our website at thegreatcourses.com 
or call our customer care representatives at 1-800-832-2412. That's 1-800-832-2412. Thank you very much. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.